Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with TELUS. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on February 5th, 2021. The time right now, 10.21 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That was Edelweiss from The Sound of Music. I believe that was a 1964 movie. The reason I played it was because Christopher Plummer, one of the stars of the film playing Captain Von Trapp, passed away at the age of 91. He was actually younger than you would have expected at the time he was in The Sound of Music, which now is like, I think, 56, 57 years ago. And given he's 91, you do the math, you'd say, I bet he, I thought he was older then. You kind of imagine him as an older officer in the uh, Australian, or not Australian, Austrian military at the time. But uh, no, he was actually uh, younger than the character he was portraying. They didn't give a specific age for him, but you would have expected that the actor from that movie back then would not even be alive anymore. But uh, he lived all the way, I think, till today, like today or yesterday. So that is why I opened with that. By the way, Sound of Music is not a historical piece. It's uh, semi-historical. There was a Von Trapp family, and uh, most of the characters portrayed there really existed, though they changed some of the kids' names to be better for film. I think there was some duplication between one of the kids' names and another character, so they had to change it around. But uh, there were a number of historical inaccuracies, like big ones, to where it's pretty much a work of fiction, including the very end when they're climbing over the mountains, which, uh, in fact, would have been impossible. They would have... Uh, where they were hiking... Uh, would have either been impassable or if they went a different direction, they would have ended up in Italy, which was uh, not the territory they wanted to end up if they were trying to flee from the Nazis. So um, a lot of things depicted in that film did not really happen and didn't even come close to happening. But it was a classic movie nonetheless. It used to be on at least once a year on network TV is kind of a special. So if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, 
you probably remember seeing it on TV. And I saw it a bunch of times that way. Anyway, we have a free roll tonight. And then I'll give you the agenda, then we'll get going. Uh, Trader Ruski said he'll be up around 3. So he's not going to be on at the beginning. Hopefully we'll still be be on at 3. It's not going to be the longest show tonight. But we are starting pretty late. It is getting close to 10.30 already. But he'll be stuck with the coronavirus stuff because that's what we always do at the end. He said last time, how can we do the coronavirus at the end? And I understand because he's been coming on towards the end recently and he preferred to talk about the poker and gambling stuff. But I put the coronavirus stuff at the end because this is not a coronavirus show. This is just a segment I do, which I am getting good feedback on. People are happy to hear these coronavirus updates. People like hearing what's going on. They like hearing my analysis of it as it's still very, very much a huge story in the world. So I will continue doing that until it is no longer a huge story in the world. We're doing our weekly coronavirus talks uh, this week, as we have been for almost a year now. Anyway, the free world began at 10.05. You have five minutes left to get in there, 25 minutes of late registration, so you have till 10.30. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. $50 is being given away this week. $20 came from Jeff Dime. He also gave $10 last week. Thank you to him. Someone who goes by RM, I don't know if he wants his name or anything given out. He's not a forum poster, but uh, a sometimes listener to the show donated $25, so thank you to him. And since that left us $5 short of 50 I threw in the other 5 myself. See, don't say I never do anything for you. I threw in the other 5 to make it an even 50, meaning 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. 25, 15, and 10 on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll for the information on the rules to qualify for the free money, which I can pay you in many ways, many ways. If you could think of a way that I can pay you online, I probably can. The only thing I think I don't want to do right now is Bitcoin, because Bitcoin, at least last I looked, the transaction fees are very high. And what's annoying with Bitcoin, and wasn't always the case, but is nowadays, and there's a lot of complaints about Bitcoin from a utilitarian standpoint, is that small transactions cost about the same as large transactions. So like sending 15 bucks in Bitcoin is not efficient at all because you will sometimes pay $5 or more in transaction fees, which obviously is a very high percentage. Now, if you're sending $1,000 and it's a $5 transaction fee, that's great, but not for $5, yeah, like it just doesn't make any sense. So I've actually asked some people who wanted to be paid in Bitcoin, would you like to be paid another way? And one way I can pay you is Bitcoin Cash, which has a much, much, much lower transaction fee. So if you have Bitcoin Cash or like some Bitcoin Cash, I can pay you that way. Uh, if you really want, you can eat the fees. Like if you really want your $25 in Bitcoin and are willing to eat the fees, that's fine. What I've been doing up until now is I was just paying the Bitcoin fees to transfer the Bitcoin to you because it wasn't that much money. And I said, you know, whatever, I'm not going to be that cheap. I'm a cheap Jew, but I wasn't that cheap. But what I, I, I I'm going to draw the line making these small payments and eating $5 on each payment to pay you 25 or 15 or $10. It just doesn't make sense. Unless you want to. If you really want to throw that other part away, I'll deduct that and then I'll pay the fee. But I don't suggest that. I suggest you find another way to get paid because now I really have just about every way to send you money online. You can guess what those might be. Zelle is one of them. Cash App is another. But there's uh, there's others you can think of that I will use to pay you. Even ones I said that I... Could not use, and now I can again. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 
That's the number. The Mount Charleston line. Do not text the Mount Charleston line, but you can call it. It's an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston, which is located near Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes away by car. Has plenty of snow on it now. 702-430-1808. is a separate line into the show, the Mount Charleston line. You can call as well. Just don't text it. If you do want to text me, you can text the main number, 775-372-8355. If you text me during the show, there's a good chance I will read your text on the air. If you text me during other times when the show is not live, then I will not read your text on the air. But you can also ask me at the beginning, please don't read on air, and then I won't. I will usually respond to you, and you can text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's never too late or too early to text me. And don't feel shy. Don't feel like you're bothering me. You can just text me, and I'll probably answer you. If you want to call the Call to Listen line, it's a way to listen to the show, which does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet, does not eat up any of your data, and best yet, it never buffers, never freezes, it just plays, just works, does not even require a strong cell signal. If you can complete a call to the U.S., then the Call to Listen line will work and will not freeze. It's great to use if you're driving in the mountains and barely have cell service. You're going to have a real hard time streaming. If that's the case, but the call to listen line will work great. 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. The alternate call to listen line is 641-741-1095. And remember, you can also call when we're not live and you'll hear a rerun streaming on there from our now almost nine years of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. It just picks one randomly and streams it and does that over and over till we come back on live. You can also go to the radio page on PokerFraudAlert.com and also listen that way when we're not live or when we are live. And we have a radio player which now works on every device. does not require Flash anymore. And the chat room does not require Flash anymore. You can go in the chat room with any device. All you need is a form account in good standing. So that's uh, something that you should know in case you've never gone to the chat room before. In fact... An individual just came into the chat room who calls himself Johnny Branley. He said, hey, sorry, let me say his name again. Johnny Brandy, not Branley. Johnny Brandy said, hey, Dan, been listening and lurking for six years, uh, reporting in from Montreal. So welcome, Johnny. It's true. I don't know you. I've never heard from you, but that's great. I'm glad you've shown up in the chat room and you can chat with the other people who are there right now. If you want to listen in the archives... The phone number is, not the phone number, if you want to listen to the archives, there are many ways to do so. We have iTunes, we have Google Podcasts, we have Stitcher, we have TuneIn. In fact, TuneIn can also be used to listen to the live show. We have two entries on there. We have the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line to listen to the archives. We have uh, Spotify, and we have iHeartMedia. You can also download or play the MP3 of the show. And you can uh, click on the MP3 button there on the radio page to do that. And the MP3 will work if you just click on it with any device. It'll just automatically play. So that's uh, something you may want to know. If there's any other way that you want to listen to the show, please let me know. Right now I have no interest in putting us on YouTube, but maybe in the future. But it's just kind of a pain for me, and it just kind of feels weird since we don't have a video element of the show. I'll consider it, but I give you so many different ways to listen, I can't see why that is necessary. But if you want some other way that I'm not providing, then text me, 775-372-8355, and let me know. So here is the agenda, and then we will get going. 
We're going to talk a lot about the Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu match tonight, which is over. It is over. Doug Polk has won. But there's a lot more to talk about than just the fact that he won. I will tell you my impression of the entire match, just in general, and how it finished up and everything like that. I did have a bet, a small bet on the match with somebody who listens to this show, and I am in the process of paying him. I've paid him most of the money, but due to some uh, transfer limits, it's a little bit slow. He, he sent me the money first. I didn't lose much, but because uh, it was a big underdog bet that I was making, he sent me all the money up front which I appreciate, and now I'm sending him his original bet and what he won back. But anyway, he's a nice guy. If if I'm going to lose it, I'm glad it's going to be to him. But anyway, I'll talk about the whole match in general. Not going to rehash everything that happened, but just uh, talk about my impression of the whole match in general. Then we're going to talk about some individual elements that have come up recently. First of all, remember last week I talked about the whole tanking thing that Daniel Negreanu did, and I gave my take, and... Daniel, he gave his own take on what he was doing with the tanking, which very much differed from what I claimed. And in fact, I, I had somebody sending me a text message, uh, really giving me a hard time about that, saying that uh, I got it all wrong. So I'm going to play what Daniel said, at least part of what he said, on his Dat Poker podcast, which is the podcast he does with Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan. It's called Dat D-A-T Poker Podcast. I believe it's on every week. So I'm going to play you a a clip of that where Daniel explains it. Then I'm going to play you a clip from Mike Matisau where he had regular Poker Fraud Alert listener Ari Engel as a guest on the show. And you'll hear him and Ari talking about what Daniel claimed. And Mike does not believe that to be true. And keep in mind, Mike is his friend. Mike is not a hater of Daniel's. They had a period where they weren't getting along, but they've made up and they are friends again. And in fact, uh, Mike bet on Daniel. So uh, Mike is going to – you'll hear his impression on that from his Mouthpiece podcast. And then I'm going to give you my commentary on who I believe. So we're going to revisit that since Daniel has put out his own commentary on the matter. Then we're going to talk about how Doug Polk claims that he's going to go on two podcasts and why I am not even trying to apply to be one of them. I've had a lot of people, a ton of people messaging me both publicly and privately get Doug Polk on here he's saying he's going to come on two podcasts you're a podcast why don't you get him on and my answer is no I'm not even going to try I'm not even going to ask you know when they say you miss all the shots you don't take well I'm missing I'm not taking a shot so I will tell you why I have a good reason Doug Polk also says he will not do this again and he cited hatred for poker this is a guy who uh won big money in this event, and yet he hates poker. (laughs) And then, where do we go from here? Does this mean that Doug Polk is done trolling Daniel Negreanu? Is this it? Is this the final troll of Negreanu taking his money, and is he going to drop the whole thing? I haven't seen any statement of his on that subject, but I'm going to speculate on what I feel is going to happen going forward between these two enemies, or maybe former enemies. Speaking of someone former, we're going to talk about Chris Moneymaker, who was a former representative of PokerStars for 17 years, who now is going to be representing a different site. He has signed with a new site. I'll tell you which site, and I'll give you my impression on that signing. Veronica Brill, co-defendant with me in the Mike Postle lawsuit, 
also had a lawsuit of her own against Mike Possel, which got dismissed prior to that. She's been on the show before. She was the whistleblower in the whole Mike Possel thing. I have some news about her. She's going to be a host of Poker After Dark. So we'll talk a bit about that. Las Vegas legend Tony Bennett has Alzheimer's. I will tell you a bit about Tony Bennett's history and what it means whether you could see him perform before he passes away. 888 Holdings told PokerFuse that they are working on a WSOP.com version for Pennsylvania, where right now there is only one legalized online poker site, which is PokerStars Pennsylvania. There is no WSOP site in Pennsylvania, despite the fact that it is legal there. Uh, they claim they are working on one, and they claim it may be ready by the 2021 WSOP, and it may be linked with the other WSOP.com sites. So we'll talk all about that and what this might mean for the World Series and for the future of online poker. Prism Outlets, P-R-I-Z-M, I think that's the way they spell it. Either that or the thing I read about it was spelled wrong. I mean, that's it's a weird spelling, but maybe that's the brand name, Prism Outlets. In Prim, Nevada, which also has been known as the Fashion Outlets Mall, that has been sold for a surprising price, a very surprising price. I'll tell you about that outlet mall and the sale price that was paid for it, and where they're going to go from here. Dutch Poker Stars players, and I don't mean Dutch Void, I'm talking about Poker Stars players who are Dutch, are going to be getting a nice little windfall, if they're winning players, that is. Anyone who paid taxes as a result of their winnings on Poker Stars who is Dutch, I don't mean Dutch ancestry, I mean actually living in the Netherlands, uh, they're probably going to get a pretty big tax refund due to a recent ruling. I'll tell you about that. And you may say, why are you covering that on this show? Because it's, it's an interesting story, even if this does not affect you, which it probably does not. But I, I was interested in the story, and I'll tell you guys about the story. Then we will do our coronavirus news. COVID numbers are on the decline in the U.S. since early January. That hasn't been covered very much, but it is true. Thank you, Joe Biden. Not really, but we are on the decline. I'll tell you the reasons why I think it's on the decline and what to expect going forward. Then we will talk about something that has been ignored for a while, but needs to be said, and that is the obsession with deep cleaning. How often do you walk into a business and they are keeping everything so clean and so sanitized and they're running around with disinfectant and just making sure that everything you touch is spick and span so you don't get the coronavirus? Sound good, right? Only problem is it's unnecessary. It's performative. It turns out that this is either... Barely helpful or useless. And this has been known for a long time. So why are they still doing it? We're going to discuss that. And finally, COVID tongue. Yes, there is such a thing. COVID tongue is certain disorders that will start to occur with your tongue, which may give you an indication you have COVID. It's important to know about this symptom because sometimes it appears early before other major symptoms show up. So if you notice COVID tongue, which I will describe to you as our final topic, then watch out and stay away from people. Uh, much like when your smell and taste abruptly disappear, you know you have COVID. Uh, same with this tongue stuff. It's not quite as definitive as the smell and taste thing. But if you notice that you have symptoms of COVID tongue, you should be very careful who you come in contact with. So I'll tell you about that as kind of a public service announcement. So that is it. That's all we have for tonight. I don't expect a super long show, but you never know. Sometimes the shows that I think will be short end up stretching for eight hours, and sometimes the ones that appear to be long 
Well, who am I kidding? They end up long anyway, like last week. But last week we hadn't been on for two weeks, and this week it has been one week. And notice we're on Friday again. We're going to continue being on Friday for the foreseeable future. So let's get right into this now. Talk about Doug Polk. So Doug Polk has won the match. The match is over. They played at a pretty quick pace over the last week, meaning they played a lot of hands. They played long sessions. They played uh, without much break in between. Uh, they pretty much wanted to finish it off since they were getting down the final stretch. And that's good. They didn't drag this out. In the final session, Doug won uh, $255,722 over 1,718 hands. He won approximately $1.2 million. He didn't make the full and complete calculation, but who cares? I mean, it was around $1.2 million was the final tally that Doug Polk was up on Daniel Negreanu. And uh, that is it. It's over. 25,000 hands got played. That was the plan. They played. There was never any uh, pushback on that. They both kept to their agreements to play. They both kept to the schedule as promised. Uh, there really was not much controversy about the match itself, aside from the limping and the stalling thing, which we talked about last week, which I'm going to touch on this week, since there's more to that story. Something that was expected that didn't really occur was that these guys would be at each other's throats throughout the match, that there would be tons of trash talk. Now, they can't chat because WSOP.com doesn't have chat. And that would have been great if they had chat. But yeah, Doug Polk did some live streaming during it, and then they had comments afterwards, and they sniped at each other somewhat, and Daniel complained that he was running really bad and he was, he was doing really badly in these all-in spots. And there was some of that. They weren't, like, super nice to each other the whole way, but compared to the way these two have gotten along over the past several years, this has been sweet as pie. And when the whole thing was over... They were both very complimentary towards one another in the post-game interviews, the post-match interviews. So what Polk said in a YouTube interview was, Negreanu did a really impressive fucking job with a lot of stuff he did. I did not think he would play this well at all. He did say one of the mistakes Negreanu made was that uh, he wasn't aggressive enough. He said he needed to be willing to fire more aggressively to win, that Negreanu is playing too much of a small ball style, but that Negreanu has really improved even during the match and that he's actually become a pretty good heads-up, no-limit player despite having very little experience in that, that he learned very quickly and that he believes that Negreanu is now good enough at heads-up, no-limit hold'em that he would be, quote, all but the very best heads-up specialist, which is pretty high praise. He's saying that just about everybody who were to sit with Daniel right now heads-up, no-limit, despite Daniel's very limited experience, is going to lose to him, that only the very best are going to crush Daniel or beat Daniel. Negreanu did not act like he was a bad sport or pissed off that he lost. I'm sure he was not very happy that he dropped $1.2 million to, to Polk, who had been so nasty to him all these years, but he did say it was a fun challenge. I felt like there were ebbs and flows. He's happy. He's a big winner in the match, and deservedly so. So notice that he wasn't saying, oh, he was so lucky, he didn't deserve it. If we only ran equal in, in luck, that I would have beaten him or would have been a lot closer. He didn't say that. He just, uh, yeah, he's the big winner, and he deserved to be the big winner. So it's basically Negreanu conceding that Doug Polk was the better player there. He de- deserved to win. He did win. In fact, he deserved to win, quote, big, which he did, and that uh, Negreanu claims he has no problem with that. Now, it's possible that Negreanu realized that having – 
like a sour grapes attitude at the end would look very bad for him and his brand. And now that the damage is done, now that he has lost 1.2 million to Polk, instead of being a dick about it, he can just uh, be very gracious, and that will speak well for Daniel's reputation. It's very possible that privately Daniel thinks that he kind of got ripped off, ripped off by the dick, and that he just ran really bad, and that he deserved to win but didn't. But he didn't vocalize it, which is what's important. Yeah, you can think whatever you want, but uh, it's, it's what you say that matters, and what your actions are that matters. So, okay, he, he was a gracious loser. I gave him credit there for that. And uh, Polk was a gracious winner to give these compliments into ground. I mean, Polk could have beaten him for $1.2 million and mocked him. He could have said, ah, look at this. Ah, what a fish. Thanks for the $1.2 million, dummy. And he, he wouldn't have to use those words. He could just really be rubbing it in that uh, someone he's been trolling all this time, that he, that he that Daniel's own ego led him to play this ill-advised match in Doug's best game and even turn down the chance to play some of Daniel's better games as part of the match, which Daniel did. And this cost him over a million bucks. I mean, there was a lot that Polk could have mocked about this and even done so in a way that uh, some people would have not thought inappropriate. But Doug decided to take the high road and be complimentary. He decided to be happy with the over a million dollars he won and say, okay, I can say nice things about Negreanu. I just took 1.2 million bucks of his money plus all the side bets I won. I'm happy enough. I don't need to bash the guy. Pretty nice to each other at the end. But prior to this finishing, as we talked about last week, there was that controversy about the limping and the stalling. It was not totally smooth sailing. Still, if you look at the way these two treated each other, especially the way Polk treated Negreanu over the last several years, they were sweet as pie. There really wasn't that much trash talk. People expected the whole thing to be a lot nastier. They expected it to be a lot more uh, really pointed insults and trash talking and uh, criticism. And we didn't see that much of that. We saw a little of it, but not that much. In fact, I told you on a previous show when this match was in its earlier stages about some other high-profile heads-up matches that Negranu had in the past, and one of them was against that group that called themselves Dream Clone, the ones associated with Brett Ritchie. And I had mentioned that some of the guys in Dream Clone were really ripping Negranu hard during that match, which took place over a few weeks. So that that had a lot more hostility than Polk and Negranu here, and yet Dream Clone didn't really have a problem with Negranu prior to this. They just decided to talk trash to have fun. And Still, they engaged in more shit talk than Polk, who actually disliked Negreanu. And by the way, just in case you think that Polk was really just acting all this time and didn't really dislike Negreanu, or maybe he's only doing it for clicks, he was doing it for clicks, but at the same time, he also disliked him. And that's why it was so easy for him. He got to bash someone that he legitimately did not like, and it got him attention, and it got clicks on his channel, and it also allowed him to better promote his own upswing poker, uh, his training site. So Doug was winning in all ways by doing this. And really, Doug single-handedly changed Negranu's reputation in poker. And Negranu has to know this, and he's got to really resent this. And you know what he says publicly is a different story, but uh, he really must resent Polk because Polk uh, really hammered him on a lot of things and did it very effectively. He trolled him very effectively. 
Negreanu did make some missteps. He did uh, kind of get out of touch with modern poker pros, with the trials and tribulations of mo- modern poker pros. He also drank too much of the Kool-Aid of Amaya-owned poker stars, and he really became more of a corporate shill than one of us. And that pissed a lot of people off, because prior to that, he was one of us. Prior to that, Daniel Negreanu was a pro who understood other pros. And then all of a sudden, he was not. All of a sudden, Daniel was kind of this, this shill who would say whatever poker stars wanted him to say. And that really disappointed people, because he was kind of seen as a down-to-earth man of the people. And that was, in fact, a lot of his appeal. Daniel was always really good with the fans. Like, I, And I saw it personally. I saw personally he would always take the time out to talk to fans, to sign autographs, to take pictures with them. Uh, if they're railing his table, he'd kind of put on a little performance and uh, do a lot of table talk just to make it entertaining for them to watch. And he avoided any kind of uh, scandal of his own, and he was basically a good citizen. So Daniel was great for poker. He was great for the average poker fan. When you met him, Came off as a great guy, friendly guy, not arrogant at all. So all that he was doing right. And that was what rocketed his popularity as high as it became, aside from just his good results, which obviously were excellent as well. But that results alone wasn't what uh, made Daniel who he is as far as poker notoriety. A lot of this was uh, his personality and his accessibility to the average fan, especially in person. And word got around about that. So that's a big credit to him, as I've said before. But uh, as he got more and more out of touch and he got more grinder hostile, he started to look down upon the poker grinder, the the, the type that uh, wasn't personable, wasn't trying to grow the game, was, wasn't trying to make poker more fun for everybody, but someone who just would keep their head down and grind and try to make a living in poker. But at the same time, not scamming anyone, not doing anything unethical, just just people who may not want to get into the personality element of the game. Just they want to play, they want to win money, they want to support themselves. And nothing wrong with that. That's a, a completely legitimate choice as a poker player. And Daniel did not respect that, and he put these people down, and he put the grinders and poker stars down. He He made a lot of mistakes with that. And while that's nothing like someone who's a scammer, or anything else like that, you know, he didn't uh, directly harm anybody, or even really indirectly harm anybody. He, he didn't harm anybody. I mean, let's be honest. But he kind of came off as a dick with all that stuff. And he kind of came off as someone who looked down upon even other poker pros who were just uh, non-high-profile grinders. He kind of felt like, if you're not like me, if you're not uh, trying to make the game fun around you like me, uh, I don't like you. And that, that didn't come off well. And then his wishy-washiness with the Supernova Elite debacle, that wasn't his fault, but his reaction to it wasn't handled well. And Doug seized upon all that, and Doug mocked it repeatedly, and this resonated with people, because people started to notice this too, and Doug would say, hey, look at this, look at that, Daniel isn't the guy you think he is. And eventually, especially with some catchy little slogans like, more rake is better, where Doug found that... uh, clip where Negreanu said not those exact words, but was kind of implying it uh, regarding certain changes on poker stars when they raised the rake. Uh, he really effectively trolled Negreanu and changed a lot of people's opinions on Negreanu. So Negreanu still had some popularity. He still had his 
fan base, but he wasn't universally liked anymore. There are a lot of people who thought uh, negative things about Negreanu a lot more than before, thanks to Doug Polk. Doug Polk, however, he, this, you know, he was not doing this just because he felt it was right. He had a personal dislike of Negreanu going back over 10 years. And uh, he found a way, now as he was growing in popularity, and his YouTube channel was growing in popularity, he, he was using Negreanu as s- someone to step on to elevate himself. So he was not doing this for the public good. And he was overdoing it. He was treating Negreanu like the most horrible person in poker when Negreanu was not. Negreanu said some stupid things, he did some stupid things, but he didn't hurt anybody. I understand why people came to dislike him. I didn't dislike him. I don't dislike him. I, I neutral on Negreanu. But uh, Doug, the, the way he talked about him, it's like he's a scorer to the poker world, which, which wasn't true. And uh, that wasn't fair. But at the same time, Doug didn't lie. Doug did not uh, spread falsehoods about Negreanu. D- Doug was just seizing upon every little thing Negreanu did that was questionable or wrong and magnified it by several times to where it just always looked like Negreanu was a dickhead. And so he, I would say he unfairly portrayed Negreanu as much worse than he really was. And he exaggerated a lot of uh, things about him. But at the same time, he didn't lie. So I, I kind of saw both sides of this and I saw why both men were not liking the other very much. Daniel used to always say he only played defense, that basically he didn't attack Doug, and Doug attacked him. And that's mostly true. I agree with that. But at the same time, uh, Negreanu was a much bigger name. Doug was punching up. And they talk about punching up and punching down. And the general rule in in comedy, in uh, in really anything where one person's criticizing another, is that generally when you want to throw public criticism at someone, I, I don't mean calling out a scammer or something. I mean just someone who's uh, acting in a way you don't like, that it's much better to punch up. That is, calling out somebody that is better known than you, more famous than you, above you in some way, than punching down. Than just like, if you were a famous guy or a very well-known guy, a very successful guy, and you're attacking someone much below you. So that's... Uh, Negreanu was punching up there. Which doesn't mean it's okay, but I'm saying that's... Uh, that's why he was going after Negreanu really hard, and Negreanu wasn't going after him as hard. Negreanu was just kind of hoping he was going to go away. Negreanu already had his notoriety. He he didn't need to do this to get people to pay attention to him. Doug did. So that's that's why it was happening that way. And when you are at the top of notoriety in your profession as Negreanu is, you have to expect you're going to get haters. That's just the way it is. You're always going to have a lot of detractors and haters, especially if you're very opinionated and put these opinions out on Twitter, especially things unrelated to poker like politics. I'm not criticizing Daniel putting out his political opinion. I do that on Twitter. Okay, So if I were to say he shouldn't be doing that, then I should be criticizing myself too. He can do that all he wants. I'm saying that when you are as notable as Daniel, then you may not want to do it. If I was in Daniel's position, I probably would not tweet about politics. Or if I did, I'd keep it to a very minimum. So the the because why it's because it it hurts your brand. If if uh, if your brand is appealing to everybody and being very likable and being very popular and being very marketable, then you got to watch what you say. You may want to say something. You go, nah, I better not say this. It's going to hurt my brand. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have a brand like that. So um, those that do follow me, those, those that do listen to me, it's because I'm opinionated. So that's fine. I can, I can do it because it doesn't affect me. But 
if I were in Daniel's position, I probably wouldn't. So he opened himself up to that as well, where he also drove away a lot of people who were conservative, who he would just keep putting down through uh, just very, very highly opinionated takes that were putting, that was basically putting down anybody who's conservative. And, uh, he lost fans there as well. Now, Doug didn't attack him on that. In fact, Doug is left of center himself. Not as much as Negreanu, but it's not like Doug's a Republican. He's not. But I, I'm just mentioning that as well. So, going on here, let's get to... Well, I, I'll give you my general take on the whole match before we move on to the next thing about this. It was clear that Doug had the edge. It was also clear that Doug did run somewhat better. I haven't seen this analyzed but I bet if they were to analyze, and probably someone will, all the big spots there, I bet it'll come out that Doug had better luck. However, I think if they both had completely average luck, Doug was still going to win and probably win by a decent margin, just not as much as $1.2 million. Uh, I do think that uh, Daniel made a tremendous mistake by allowing what was known as preflop charts, which... It's kind of a misnomer. It's not like they have a paper in front of them. A preflop chart is a program that basically uh, tells you what to do in every preflop situation you can think of. Postflop, they were not allowed to have any kind of assistance like that. But but why have that? Why why have preflop charts? Why why should that be part of it? Why should it be who has the better charts? It should be who can play better with their own brain with no assistance. So if you're going to play online, that's fine. And in fact, it's safer to do during times of COVID and easier to do. But there should not be technology involved in who's going to win or lose. It should just be they're playing online and whoever plays better and runs better wins. That's the pure way to have a match. The The fact that they allowed these charts is amazing. Now, nobody cheated by using the charts because they had an agreement beforehand, which shocked me that they can both use the preflop charts. And I think that's ridiculous. That just If the whole point of this match is to see who's better and who could beat the other, why are they bringing charts into it? That that becomes a, a competition of who has the better technology. And by the way, I, I heard that Doug's technology was better, that Doug had better charts. That's, of course, subjective, but uh, individuals I've spoken to about this who are in the know have told me that Doug probably had the better charts, which gave him an edge. Now, I think if they had no charts and they played online, Doug still wins. I think if they had no charts, played online, and they both ran average the whole way, that Doug would win. But I think it would have been a lot closer. If they played live the whole way, which would take a long time to get in 25,000 hands live because it's much, much slower. But if they were to play live the whole way, I think there's a good chance Daniel would have won because Daniel is very good at reads. Daniel is a better live player than he is online player. I have been with Daniel at the same table when he's made a lot of amazing reads. Now, admittedly, a lot of this was in Limit Hold'em, where he's better than he is in No Limit Hold'em. So it was a better game of his, and it's a game he was playing all the way back to the mid-90s. But still, uh, Daniel is a better live player. That's just where he thrives more. I'm not saying he's a bad online player, but Doug's strength is online, and always has been. You may say, well, yeah, but Doug Doug won the one drop. Yeah, he did, but uh, I'm not saying Doug is bad live. I'm not saying Daniel is bad online. I'm saying... Strength-wise, Doug has the edge online, and Daniel has the edge live. 
But okay, I understand why they played online because they want to get in a ton of hands and live is just going to take an eternity. Plus, we have COVID. So okay, I'm not criticizing the agreement to play online, but they should not have had charts involved. Definitely should not have had charts. Doug was uh, more willing to play aggressive and more willing to push the envelope and that ended up helping him. I think his analysis of Daniel's game, that Daniel was playing a small ball into conservative, that uh, he needed to uh, open it up a bit to win a match like this. I think that Doug is correct with that analysis. I think that Doug also gave a sincere compliment about Daniel that he greatly improved as it went on. I heard from people in the know again that uh, Doug thought very little of Daniel's heads-up no-limit game at the beginning of the match. He was kind of laughing at some of the decisions that Daniel was making and, in fact, even made reference to some of these on Twitter, kind of mocking certain things Daniel was doing. But as it went on, Doug was even admitting on Twitter that Daniel had greatly improved. Now, some people thought this was part of the meta game that uh, he's putting that out there so then Daniel gets a false sense of confidence and stops improving. But I think Daniel really did improve during it. I think Daniel learned a lot kind of on the job and that he took to it very quickly. And that's not surprising because Daniel has excellent card sense. Daniel is a naturally very talented poker player who has able to adapt over the years. This isn't the guy who just dominated in the 90s. This is a guy who played in the 90s, the 2000s, 2010s, and now 2020, and and has kept up for the most part with the competition, which has gotten tougher and tougher. And Daniel's also getting older and older. Now, he's not old. In fact, he's younger than me. I think he's 46. But it gets harder and harder to adjust and to learn new things and to even have the energy to put in to do all of that to compete with these younger players. And... uh but, but he's been able to. He's really been able to hold up very well in the changing poker landscape as far as being competitive. And I give him a lot of credit for that. I give him a whole lot of credit. And it does not surprise me that Daniel uh, learned quickly, even though he had very little experience in Heads Up No Limit, that uh, between the studying he did and the actual play he did, that he learned quickly and improved. Now, he didn't become as good as Polk. But, okay, Polk was one of the best heads-up, no-limit players of all time. So, sure, he didn't get to that level, but who would expect that? That would be shocking if he did. I think Doug really was impressed that Daniel was able to go from someone he kind of looked down upon in heads-up, no-limit at the beginning, saying, ah, he doesn't know what he's doing, what a chump, to, wow... He's getting better. Wow, he's getting tough. Wow, okay. I have an edge on him, but not very much anymore. That's. I think that's really what Doug was thinking. And you saw it in uh, Doug's limping strategy at the end, where he was kind of afraid he's going to give up his lead. And Doug would not have done that if he thought Daniel was so bad that he pretty much had no chance other than running amazingly. So, uh, in a way, the limping was kind of a show of fear. I give Daniel a lot of credit for that, but at the same time, I don't know how much 1.2 million is to Daniel. I don't understand his net worth. I really don't. I never have. I, I know he's never been hurting for money in recent times, but uh, I, I don't think he's so wealthy that 1.2 million is peanuts. I don't think it's like he has 100 million dollars. So 1.2 million, no big deal. I, I think. This is money he really wishes he had. I think that's uh, that's a lot to lose in a heads-up match. 
I mean, you really have to be very rich to be able to afford to lose $1.2 million in a single heads-up match, even one that stretches over some time to get in 25,000 hands. I mean, they, uh, it was kind of foolhardy, I think, to even engage in this knowing that he's the big underdog. And he was the big underdog. Now, I've heard rumors that he was backed, that maybe Bill Perkins was backing him, that uh, he really didn't have that much of his own money on the line. And that's possible. But still, um, I think where he made a mistake was that he did not insert games at comparable limits that he's better at, like limit games. Like make Doug play mixed games with him. Daniel's going to be the much better player. There's no question. And I, I think Doug will be the first to admit that Daniel is a much better mixed game player, especially mixed uh, limit games, than Doug is. Doug just does not have much experience in those games, and Daniel has a ton of experience in those and a lot of talent in those. So Daniel did this because he wanted to guarantee that he wasn't going to lose as the favorite. And we discussed this on a previous show, that it was more important to Daniel to be the underdog than to win money, which, if you think about it, is kind of insane. It really is. Isn't the poker? Isn't the point of poker to win? Isn't the point of poker to win both money and accolades? I would think money first, accolades second. But wouldn't you think that, in general, if you boil it down to the simplest concept, the whole point of playing poker is to win? But yet Daniel entered this wanting to be in a position where he's more likely to lose. He actually chose to be in a position where he was more likely to lose. And that's crazy. It's one thing if you sit down in a game that you're not a favorite in because either you just feel like gambling or you want a challenge or maybe you're delusional about your own skill level. That's one thing. But to actually have the opportunity to throw in a form of poker that you're good at and saying, nah, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's just play the one I'm not as good at against someone who's really, really good at it. To choose to do that just so you can be the underdog and not suffer any humiliation for losing as a favorite is crazy. It really is. And uh, it costs him $1.2 million. Or at least it costs somebody $1.2 million. May may not have all been his money, but uh, it, it cost him or his backers $1.2 million plus whatever side bets were involved. I'm not talking about side bets with third parties that have nothing to do with it. Like my side bet with a listener here, uh, that's, that doesn't have anything to do with this because it doesn't affect either of these two guys. But uh, I, I'm just really surprised that Daniel, it was that important to him to be the underdog, that he was willing to put himself in this position to likely lose a lot of money, which he did. Like, this isn't even a surprising result. It's not like, like, oh my god, I can't believe Daniel lost 1.2 million. Like, yeah, this is kind of, kind of like an expected result at these stakes over 25,000 hands. I don't know what people were betting on as the most likely finishing total, but I'd have to think it was something like this. And had he lost like 4 million, I'd say, yeah, that's much worse than we expected. Had he won, I'd say, oh, it's a lot better than we expected. Had it been super close, I would have said, yeah, it's much better than we expected for Daniel. But like losing 1.2 million over 25,000 hands at 200, 400, uh, no limit heads up. Yeah. That sounds about right. So the fact that he had kind of an expected result when the whole thing was said and done, and it was over a million dollar loss, and he chose to play under these circumstances rather than something more even to him, is pretty insane. 
and I wonder what he was thinking, other than like his ego was so big that he did not want to expose himself to the humiliation of not only losing to Doug, but losing to Doug when they were uh, relatively even in uh, likelihood to win because they each have uh, their own best games at comparable limits. So now Daniel can say, well, yeah, I lost over a million bucks, but I was playing one of the best in the world at Heads Up No Limit, and I'm not a Heads Up No Limit player. I mean, true. I can't argue with any of that, but it didn't have to be that. Okay, so now I want to talk about the tanking thing that Daniel did, which we we talked about previously. To quickly recap what happened was at about the uh, 80% mark in the match, Doug decided that he's going to play a much lower variant style. And that lower variant style involved limping pre-flop. And the reason it's lower variance is it keeps the pot smaller. So this way, with a pot smaller, then it's less justified to put big bets in. You can put big bets in because it's no limit, but it, it really brings down the limit of the whole thing. That's why even if you both start with a very deep stacks, a 200-400 no limit game is going to play much, much, much bigger than a 2-4 no limit game. Even if you start with the same stacks in both cases, because uh, if the pot is small going in, uh, you're not going to bet that much into it. So if you limp pre-flop, that's going to keep the pot smaller post-flop, and all the betting streets are likely going to have smaller bets than had you raised pre-flop. So Doug realized as he was starting to go on a losing streak and worried that he was going to chunk off the remainder of his lead if he continued to not run well, he decided to start limping. And this irritated Daniel, who kind of uh, saw this, and this is, of course, my speculation – I can't tell you what was in Daniel's head, but I believe that Daniel saw this as uh, poor sportsmanship, that uh, this was Doug being a chicken. This is Doug uh, being afraid to lose and trying to just run out the clock. And I think uh, Daniel didn't appreciate that, given that uh, Doug was the favorite in this match in the first place. Now, uh, as you'll hear, Daniel's going to say that's not why he did the, why he did the response that he did. Uh, he'll claim it was strategic, but uh, I don't believe that. But that was what I said last week. And rather than uh, go on about what Daniel was thinking, I'm going to let him tell you. I'm going to play from his own Dat Poker podcast that was from episode number 93 on uh, February 1st. Uh, you'll hear the discussion of this, and I'll pause it every so often and talk about it. And then I'm going to play what Mike Matisau had to say about this. And then I'll return to discussing... What I think, and I've already kind of given you a clue, but let's listen. Good. Um, Doug was up about 700,000 through 17,000 hands, 29 sessions. Session 30 went very well for Doug. Uh, I think he won about 300K, take him up over a million for the match. Um, and then session 31, Daniel, uh, and we'll talk about it in a sec, but he, uh, he had a huge session. I think at one point you were up 500,000, Daniel, in that session alone. Um, and, uh, Doug got some back at the end and you won almost 400,000 to bring the deficit down to about 600K through 19,000 hands. 
Um, so yeah, why don't we first quickly touch on that approach of yours? You, you and I saw some um, podcasts or some uh, YouTube stuff where you were saying, you know, fuck GTO. I'm just going to play exploitively and try and see if I can play some big pots and uh, and have a turnaround here. What sort of what went into that decision um, to to play that way? You were just getting fed up with uh, the way it was going, or what was it? Well, really, to be honest with you, it wasn't this drastic, you know, fundamental change to how I'm playing. You know, I'm still playing within GPO principles. Um, there are subtle things you can do to increase variance. So, for example, my opens, you know, were 2.4. Uh, I started making them 2.5. So slightly bigger sizing in a few spots just to make, uh, you know, variance play a bigger role. Because here's the thing. Like, I was looking at it from a perspective, all right, you can play it safe and just, like, see how much, you, you know, and, but you're not going to win that way. Or you can try to up, up variance if you can run good you know, get back in the match because it's a really limited time. Like, again, if I ever, you know, would have done a match like this again, I, I would have had a better understanding of like how few 25,000 hands is. It really is nowhere near as much as I thought. So we're at a stage now where we finally played our longest session on Friday. We played 1,300 hands really, really quickly. Um, this was after the Wednesday where – so I'll go back a little bit because it's important. Yeah, I think it was this week. So typically I found throughout the match that he played his best sessions on Monday. Always in terms of what he was doing, because things that were working really well, say, for example, on a Wednesday or Friday, you know, he'd come back on Monday and he'd sort of he plugged some holes and plugged some leaks in some stuff in some areas that we were really taking advantage of. And so Monday he would come with a new strategy. Well, in this case, after the 390K win that I had on Friday, he comes back, he comes in and he just like limps. And I was like, hmm, maybe it was a misclick. But I'm like, on both tables, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I didn't know this was coming. And so you know, we played the session. I was kind of like at the end of the session, and I still believe this. I don't. I think it's really, really uh, difficult to be somebody who's never really mastered that approach and use that, and it be you know positive EV. I can totally respect and understand his reasoning for wanting to do that to lower variance, right? But it to, you know to sort of make the the assertion that oh, it's just higher EV. That's why I'm doing it. That's clearly not true because if you thought it was higher EV, you would have just done it from day one. Now. So- do you think he was, hang on, sorry, quickly. Do you think he was referring to higher EV because of all the side bets? Like it was no, 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 no. He was specifically saying, because it's true to certain, you know, if you're, if you're an expert at it, like there is a, a very detailed kind of like complicated, uh, limp strategy with, you know, with, with an opening strategy that's, that's obviously, uh, adjusted that could potentially squeak out like the most minute of, of EV if you're playing in a no rate game. So if you're playing in a rate game, I don't even know if that's even true. So because we're playing essentially with no rake because we get the rake back, you know, theoretically, you know, it could be. I don't think it would have been for him because I just think that yeah, I, I think it would be difficult for him to adapt that strategy. But for me, I've sort of played against it uh, for a long time. So now here's the thing. We play the session. I win about 50K. But now, you know, he's probably going to do this on Wednesday. So I get my guys to work on it. We run a bunch of sims on how to defend, you know, limping strategy and what he was doing. And so now I'm left with, so basically, this is the process of how I was making decisions, okay? Now I have an iPad. You know, can I just quickly set it up? Sorry. So uh, on that day, there was about 6,000 hands left, right? So to talk about that, um, you know, Doug moving into this, he's got 6,000 hands left. He's up, you know, a, a fair amount of money, and he doesn't want to see that other $400,000 win that you just had because that's going to bring it close, right? So he wants to play a different strategy um, to lock down the win, so to speak, with 6,000. 6,000 hands yeah. is a lot. To try right. and lock like down. when you start limping, you essentially lower the stakes in a way because you're basically making like a lot of the pots 
you know, 25% of the size or a third of the size in a lot of cases, right? I want to ask one thing too, which is when he first... Yeah, that's Terrence Chan. Before we get to Terrence's question, that's exactly what I was saying. I was exactly saying that he lowered the stakes. And I believe that Negranu was unhappy about that because they agreed to 200, 400 stakes the whole way. And then when Doug starts to worry that he's going to chunk off the remain remainder of his lead if he doesn't run well, that he essentially lowered the stakes by limping. I fully agree with that analysis, and I think that's why Negranu was unhappy. And he's kind of saying that here in a roundabout way without directly saying he was unhappy. He's saying, well, we're looking how to counter that. So then then he's going to explain how they countered that. But let's listen to the question that came from Terrence. goes to the limping strategy. Um, you're... I don't know what the rules or the terms are. Can you kind of go like, hey, call timeout. I wouldn't I I wasn't expecting this. I don't know how to defend against the limping strategy. I'm gonna take an hour off and study with my team to get this limping strategy. You didn't do that. Obviously, I don't know if that's against the rules or whatever, but you decided to just play it and just kind of go, Well, let's just wing it and then I'll study with my team after and, and see how we're gonna counterattack the strategy. Yeah, no, the rules that I agreed to was to play every other day at least two hour sessions. So at the very least, I'm like, all right, well, we'll play this out for the two hours and then I'll do my homework, you know, later in the evening and the next day and sort of get this down. So I thought to myself, all right, he's going to, you know, he's going to execute this limping strategy. Up until this point, I was not using any preflop charts at all. I memorized all my ranges. Like I didn't need them. I just was, I know what to do. I, I had them memorized. With the limp strat, it's very, very complicated. And I'll, I'll give you an example that in a second. Here, let me find it in my phone. But so... So what I had to do, because I wanted to play perfectly, I was not going to just be like, all right, well, I'm going to go in there and, and guess. I'm just going to be like, all right. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm making no decisions preflop. None. None. I'm just literally following what, you know, this. Ooh, right. right. Which was a lot in the outset because you had more preflop charts. Well, that, that's actually, on their end. That's, not, that's our, not our show. Uh, so, so here's why. Okay, so there's plenty of reasons why on Wednesday I was playing incredibly slow. All of the possible theories are true. Every one of them, right? But here's the one that I think people don't realize in terms of like learning how to balance and stuff. Me playing two tables, doing the following is... Do we, do you have a, who has a stopwatch? Either one of you have a stopwatch? I can get one. You've got a stopwatch. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me if you, the following things. Did you limp or did you make a 2.4x? Name a hand, you know, whatever. Name a hand. Okay. And then give me an RNG number. So, like, any number from 1 to 100. And then say go. All right, Terrence, you do the RNG number. I'll do the hand and uh, the action. Right? Oh, I, need, I, I need a stopwatch, too, then. Uh, See, this is getting stupid. I, I don't even know exactly what they're going to do here. But what's stupid about this is Daniel's trying to invent a bunch of busy work he was doing to try to counter the limping strategy. So, no, I wasn't stalling. I just had a lot more work to do. I, I had a lot more to do in order to figure out how to play optimally against this. I was not doing this on purpose. I was just, uh, it, this requires me to do a lot more in the background. So Doug changed his strategy, and I had to change my response, which is much slower. So I wasn't intentionally being slower. It just got slower because I have to do a lot more. That's basically what he's trying to say. But let's listen to the way he explains it. <laughs> oh, you well, no, do it all together, all together. at the same time. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, 2.4x, jack 7 off, 21. Okay, so that's the 2.4. That's the limp one. It's 2.4. Now i got to find jack 7 off. Jack 7 off. You said the RNG was what number? 21. 
21. So it says basically jack seven off. So raise only half a percent. So that's 95% call. I, I just check. Oh no. Yeah. I call. No. Fuck. Yeah. No. Yeah. I call because it was a raise. So I would call. How long was that? Okay. So this is stupid. I mean, this is, he can say that. There's no way to prove this isn't what he was doing. But I, I thought he was doing this, uh, when Doug wasn't limping, I, I'm not understanding where the difference is between when Doug is limping and when Doug is raising. I, I just don't get this. And the truth is that's not what was happening. I can't prove it. But I very strongly feel that this was on purpose, that this was kind of a protest, that uh, this was, okay, Doug, you're going to do this, then I will stall and it's going to become so unpleasant for you and so tilting for you that you're going to learn. You're going to learn that you stop doing this, that when you stop your crap, I will stop mine. So I don't care what Daniel has to say about, oh, I have to look at these charts and, and figure out what to do. Uh, I, I don't believe it. I don't believe that was the reason for this slow play. And uh, I really think that uh, after Daniel ran through that one session where Doug took him by surprise with the limping, and he won, but not very much. You know, Daniel won 46K, which wasn't going to put enough of a dent into the lead that Doug had with the remaining time as far as hands to play. So Daniel got very frustrated. As he said in his own words, he felt Doug was lowering the stakes. As I said last week, the proper thing to do at that point was to say to Doug, no, 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 I don't like this. This is bad sportsmanship. This is against the whole concept of what we're trying to do here. Uh, go back to playing normally. You can change your strategy, but if you're really trying with 20% less left, with 20% left in the match to uh, lower the stakes, essentially, to protect your lead, that's against the whole concept of this whole thing. That's against the spirit of the match. So I'm halting this until we come to an agreement on this. That's what he should have said. Instead, he kind of worked to annoy Doug to change his ways. And, and it worked. Doug changed and uh, started playing normally again. I guess it was successful. But I, this sounds like a lot of excuse-making after the fact. And it's because Daniel got a bad reaction. A lot of people said, oh, we lost respect for you. This is childish. A lot of criticism. A whole lot of criticism was aimed at Daniel after this. So he has to say this. He He can't say he was... Uh, trying to annoy Doug into going back the other way or that this was a protest because that wouldn't have come off well. But I believe it was a protest and I believe he was mad that Doug was refusing to play him at basically the same stakes they had the whole way in order to protect the lead. I think he saw it as cowardly given how much was left in the match. 20, 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Okay, literally that's how long it takes me, which is exactly the amount of time you get you know, in your decision. So when it's on you, you get 20 seconds. Now that See, this reminds me of what people do in live tournaments when they stall. People who want to stall to uh, make the money, for example, when they're not hand for hand yet. So we're very near the bubble in a tournament, in a, in a big tournament, and uh, you don't want to be the one busting right before the bubble, and they're not doing hand for hand yet. So, yeah, I mean, there are decisions to be made. So it folds to you. And you see Jack-3 offsuit. Well, normally that's just a quick fold. But you think, you think, you think, you look down, you think, you look at your chips. You know the whole time you're folding, but no one can see you have Jack-3 offsuit. I'm talking about like a live tournament. So uh, you stall and throw it away. And everyone 
watching you knows exactly why you with the short stack are th- stalling like this. But if questioned, you could defend it and say, look, I'm short stacked. We're on the bubble. I was thinking of shoving all in and decided not to. Now, if they could see your card and see you had Jack-3 offsuit, they would know you're full of crap. But since they can't see that, you have plausible deniability. And that's what's going on here. Daniel has invented plausible deniability. It's assuming it's in on uninterrupted, where I'm not actually in a hand on you know, the table, right? So if I'm facing a turn bad or whatever, and if I'm actually the button, on, if I'm facing it on both tables, now I'm really screwed or I'm actually going to my time, right? I'm going to stop it here. If you want to hear the rest, you can uh, go to the 11-minute mark at episode number 93 of that poker podcast you can hear this whole thing but you heard what i wanted you to hear now we're going to go over to mike mattisau's take on the whole thing which is a bit different this is at the uh one hour 28 minute mark i'm going to fast forward uh that's why he was so upset with eight thousand hands to go that doug decided to try and change strategies and and, and unfortunately, you know, we, me, me and Ari are going to talk about that here in a minute. Uh, but that, I, I kind of thought that uh, that I kind of agreed with Daniel. Now I want to see what Ari has to say afterwards. So, what's your opinion on uh, Daniel deciding to play real slow and uh, put Doug on tilt? What's your opinion? I, I thought it was funny, but what do you think? So to start off, when talking about Daniel, um, I, I like him, and uh, my personal interactions with him have been really good. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I can't say I was the biggest fan of um, the outbursts uh, this year uh, no, online. I wasn't um, either. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, I just I don't really see the issue with uh, wanting to live. Like, I don't I don't to me. Well, you know, I, here's the thing. I, there I, is. Listen, uh, we got another call. We'll get back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike and Ari. Hey, Mike and Ari. Uh, my opinion on Daniel's slow playing was pretty funny because he just shoved it back in Doug's face. That's how I felt. Cried like a loop. He yeah. did cry like a bitch. Even after he won 135k, he was still ranting and crying like a bitch. So you know what? I I I felt it was fine. Um, I he told me he was going to do what he was going to do before he did it, and I was laughing. I'm like. Oh, I can't wait to watch. He said, well, don't watch too long. You're going to be bored to death after about 20 minutes. And so, but, 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 but all I told him is like, I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not watching a watch. I'm watching a watch Doug live tweet, right? Yeah. So what do you think here? I mean, you know, Mike Mattisau, he's just a loose cannon. He just goes off. He just speaks. He says things he shouldn't say sometimes. So probably Negranu isn't thrilled that his friend, Mike Mattisau, is revealing their private conversation. But here, Negranu told him that you're going to get bored very quickly, that it's going to take very long. It's going to be very slow. Negranu even tweeted this, that it's going to be very slow. And it did not seem like he was implying that he's going to be doing a lot more work in the background. It's going to slow it down. He's like, no, this is going to be slow. You're not even going to want to watch. That's what he told Mike. And when Mike said back, I'm going to watch this just to see Doug's reaction. It's not like Daniel said back, oh, no, no, no. It's not going to be that slow. It's just going to be slower than, no, no, no. Like, I'm sure the two of them were laughing their ass off about how Doug is going to whine and complain about this, which he did. But... There's no way that this just happened to be an unfortunate side effect of a counter strategy to limping. Right? And see what he was going to say. And Doug's live tweets were like, he was on full blown tilt. 
And he had a, yeah, and he, if he stayed doing that, who knows what he might have beat him for. But da- see, that's what I'm trying to say. Daniel knows, doesn't want to do that. But he was basically, here's the thing is, Doug went public and said, I got to do what I got to do. Well, Daniel just decided, well, I got to do what I got to do. Now, yeah, there is that context for sure, because like, Doug, obviously, in the last few years, has gone completely off at Daniel in a oh, way which ridiculous. Dis- yeah, you know, di- disproportionate. You know, Daniel mm-hmm. may have done one or two things which were somewhat questionable in the right. supernova lead thing, but the the the, the way Doug went off on him was completely disproportionate. There's way bad. There's yeah. actual in the poker industry. Well, I didn't I didn't want Daniel to play Doug. I go, why were you give this guy a microphone? Build his and brand up, but and, and then put, drive people to his, his site. Why would you do that? And he's like, "Well, it's COVID. Uh, I have nothing else to do. You know, I want the challenge." <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. I had the same. I'm wondering the same thing. Doug is the one who gained from all of this. He won money. He was a favorite to win money. He got more publicity. Uh, he claims he's not involved with upswing poker anymore, but I, I'm sure he still owns a good part of it. This was all good stuff for Doug. And, like, what did Daniel get out of this? Yeah, he deserves credit for that, A. And then, B, imagine if you're, if you know, if let's say, let's say I'm, you know, I think I'm pretty good at PLO8. If I get a player who's way worse than me at PLO8 that wants to play me a bunch of hands, right? they get to pick whatever they want, you know? They want me to use my left hand only with, and move my mouse with my left hand. I'll move my mouse only with my left hand, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. They get to, they like, so, so Daniel is coming into Doug's thing and, and Doug is just making tons of EV in this. I mean, right. the opening up were like four to five to one in, right. in Doug's uh, this, No one. This idiot over here, Doug. this idiot over here has 13,000 at a total of eight to one and, uh, I'm dead. So. <laughs> oh, you got eight to one though? Well, I bet four and a half to one for 10K. And then I got with Moneymaker ten to one for two thousand, and then I got another ten to one for another thousand. So I think it comes out. I've got thirteen to win, uh, like ninety one. Yeah, this is before the whole thing was over. But uh, obviously, Mike lost his thirteen k. I should have known when I was on the same side as Mike, which I knew. We even talked a little bit about this privately. I should have known when I was on the same side of Mike, I was going to lose because Mike is not a good side better. Anything Mike bets on, that's not poker that he plays doesn't turn out well. Mike does not have a good track record with uh, winning things outside of the poker table. He he is definitely not like another well-known Mike in poker, Mike McDonald. Mike McDonald, you want to be on his side. Whatever side McDonald's on, uh, you want to be on that side. Uh, with Mike Madison, you want to be on the opposite side usually when there's any kind of uh, bet on something. So, yeah, he lost that. I lost a much smaller amount, but we both lost. And you can go listen to this if you want episode 61, uh, The Mouthpiece with Mike Matisau with special guest Ari Engel, a listener to the show, who I'm sure is going to hear back his own voice when he hears this week's episode. I do not believe for a second that this was just an unfortunate side effect. I believe this is totally intentional, as Matisau said, that Doug is going to do what he's going to do to preserve his lead, and Daniel is going to do what he's going to do to counter that in whatever way he has to. And if being annoying and stalling is the way to counter, then he shall do so. And he did. And that's what I believe really happened. Let's talk about why I did not ask Doug to come on here. 
because uh, that's something that people are curious about. Doug Polk stated that he is looking for two podcasts to come on. I think he said he's already going to be on uh, Joey Ingram. He's going to be on some other. But then uh, if two others that he did not mention want to be on, like the, he, he will select two others to be on that he didn't mention there. And you can reply to that thread if you want to be considered. That's basically what he said. I'm paraphrasing. But that's basically the message he put out. And a lot of people thought that um, a lot of people thought that he should come on here. A lot of people wanted him on this show who listened to Poker Fraud Alert. A lot of people brought my attention to it, said, oh, you got to get Doug on. Someone even asked, maybe you should delay the show until Doug can come on. Well, then we would never have another show if I delayed the show until Doug came on. But I didn't even ask him. It's not like I asked him and he rejected. I just didn't ask him. So why didn't I ask him? Well, let me compare this to you're in high school and one of the really popular girls, you hear that she has made an announcement that she does not have a date for prom and she is going to consider anybody who wants to take her to prom, she will consider. She's putting out the word that she's single and uh, if you want to go to prom with her, that maybe you should ask. If she barely knows you're alive, if she barely knows you exist, you should not approach her and ask her because the answer is going to be no. If she says something like that, she probably has in her mind one of very few people that she would want to actually go with, that she'd actually say yes to. She's probably hoping certain guys that she has in mind will ask her. And everybody else has zero chance. Anybody that she doesn't really know or like if they go up to her and ask, she will tell them the chance of going with them is 0.0. So if you were to go ask her to prom after she kind of puts the word out about that, all you will do is humiliate yourself because she will politely say no and you'll walk away with your tail in between your legs. Now, it's not that I'm so insecure that I can't stand being ignored or being told no about Doug coming on this show. It's that, similar to that, Doug does not know me. Doug knows of me. He obviously knows of me because I'm one of his co-defendants in the Apostle thing. But he knew of me before that. But we don't know each other. We've never even had a conversation. We've never been at the same poker table. We've never uh, been among the same circles. We just have had no interaction. I think he uh, quote-tweeted my announcement of that Apostle lawsuit that we are both part of. But we've really had no interaction. You may wonder, did I discuss anything with Doug about being co-defendants in this? No, I have discussed some things with other co-defendants, but not Doug. There are certain co-defendants with whom I really had no prior relationship, and uh, I never really discussed anything with them. There are certain ones I did, certain ones I didn't, depending upon uh, what kind of relationship I had with them beforehand. So obviously, like Veronica is one. I've discussed a lot with her. I've discussed uh, with other people I'm not going to mention. I, I have discussed some with Bart Hansen, who, of course, was mentioned there. But I've never discussed anything with Doug about that. And I, I don't think I ever will. He just doesn't know me. I don't really know him. I 
have watched some of his content. I read his tweets. I've come to learn a lot about him from his persona online. But I don't know him. And he doesn't know me. He knows much less about me than I know about him. This is not a high-profile show, Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We're not one of the biggest poker shows out there. We're not. We never will be. This is kind of a, a niche show. We're not a tiny show. We have a loyal following. I'm guessing we have about 2,000 listeners a week, which is good. It's not great. It's good, especially with poker declining in popularity. But uh, this is not a major show that everybody thinks of when they hear about poker podcasts. So if Doug and I just didn't know each other, but I had one of the biggest poker shows out there, yeah, he'd probably consider coming on. But given that this is not a major poker show in terms of audience, and given that we don't really know each other, there's no chance that out of two appearances that one is going to go to me. And when he put that out there, I did see it in kind of a way like he just wants to stroke his ego with how many people respond and beg him to be on their show. Because he could have phrased it a different way. He could have said, well, I have this and this I'm going to go on for sure. But like like Joey Ingram makes sense. Now, does Joey Ingram have a very big following? But he and Joey Ingram are personal friends and have been for a long time. So that makes sense. He's going on Joey Ingram. And and I think the other one he's going on is the same situation. But if he says, hey, I want to branch out to some other podcasts and talk about this. So if you're interested in having me on, let me know and, and I'll see uh, if I can fit you into my schedule. This way he's not promising anybody. He's just saying, hey, let me know you have an interest and, and I'll see which ones I can fit into my schedule. There maybe I'd give it a shot because then maybe he's going to be on 20 and we can be one of the 20. Maybe he'll be on 10. We can be one of the 10. When there's only two, it's very clear that he has only a few in mind he'd even consider. So why bother? Why 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 ask him just to be ignored or be told no? If 100% is going to be no, why even bother? Why why stroke his ego? Oh, Doug, 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 can you come on my podcast? Doug, please, please come to Poker Fraud Alert. Please, 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 I want to have you on. Please, please, please. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play this game if he's only selecting two. Now, I will say, if I were Doug... I would not come on Poker Fraud Alert Radio because, as I said, he doesn't know me. This isn't known as a major show. So why would he come on? It wouldn't make any sense. Now, if he'd like to come on, I'll be glad to have him on here. If he'd like to come on, I will treat him very respectfully. If he would like to come on and you actually know him, like, uh, let's say... Let's say you know him. I don't mean like you tweet with him every so often. Let's say you, you have some personal connection to Doug Polk and you go to him and say, hey, Doug, I really love Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You don't really know Todd Boutelis very well, but uh, I'd really love to have you on his show and I think it'll be very interesting. Maybe consider it. Uh, if you tell him that and you have some influence and he'd like to come on here, I will welcome him on here. But other than that, if you're just someone who just kind of watches him and tweets to him occasionally... Uh, if you want to mention the show, that's great. I'm not even going to ask because I already know that with two, he already has pretty much in mind what he's going to go on and what he won't. I, I think he already narrowed it down way before making that tweet. And the rest is just an exercise in ego. Much like the girl who puts out the word in high school that she's single and doesn't have a boyfriend for the prom. The whole thing is to stroke her ego. So 30 different guys ask her. But she already knows that almost every one of them has no chance. So, Doug, I'm not going to go to the prom with you. 
Because I'm not going to ask you to the prom. I will go to the prom with you, Doug, but I'm not going to ask you to the prom because I know that the answer is going to be no if I ask you. So I'm not going to ask. And I will ask somebody else to the prom who I think has a decent chance of saying yes. By the way, you may wonder, have I actually gone to the real high school prom? Did I actually go when I was in high school? Answer, no. But not for the reason you think. Unless I've said it before here. I did not go to my high school prom because the girl who asked me, I rejected. Yeah, true story. In 1990, early 1990, the prom was coming up and I had a girlfriend who I was not into anymore and didn't want to be with anymore and wanted to break up with her. But I, I kind of had to figure out the way to say it because we weren't fighting or anything. I just wasn't into her anymore. And that was the first time that had happened in my life where I just wasn't into someone anymore. And I, I didn't know how to say it or how to break up with her because my previous breakups like were after a fight that was very easy. Like either they dumped me or we had a big fight and kind of mutually went our own way. But this is one where we were getting along. I just wasn't into her anymore. So I'm, I'm just about to dump this girl. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. And then she asked me to prom. I go, shit, that's the worst timing ever. So that's that's when I had to do the deed, and she was not happy. So I could have gone with her, but I didn't want to. I was just about to break up with her. And that was that. Going to prom was never important to me. It did not matter to me. Had I been in a relationship which I enjoyed and wanted to continue with, and the girl wanted to go to prom, I would have. But this was not something that I thought was important. This wasn't a high school experience I felt like I had to have. So I did not. But I, I had the chance. But anyway, I never went to prom. And I'm not going to ask Doug to prom. It's not going to happen. So that's why I didn't ask him. And I'm not trying to send you guys to ask him for me. I'm not afraid to ask him. It's just I just know the answer. I don't want to play this dumb game. It's just something I don't want to do. We don't have any guests on this show because I don't go around and beg people to be on the show. I could probably have a lot more guests of this show if I just asked a lot of people knowing I'm going to get like a lot of rejections, but some yeses. And I'd probably get some surprising yeses. Some people I'd probably expect like 90% no, 10% yes. Uh, the 10% would come through, they say yes. But I don't. Like the way people end up on the show is we just sort of like talk. Either they come to me and say they actually want to be on the show or... I'm talking to them and I go, hey, well, you want to be on the show? Like, or, or something comes up involving them and I ask if they want to be on the show. That's like how people end up who are notable in poker on this show. I don't just kind of seek out people to be on here for interviews. Uh, in fact, sometimes when I'll ask people to come on, it's because it'll be requested where somebody will say, hey, I'd like to hear such and such person and, uh, and then I'll ask. But this isn't really an interview show. Though the interviews have always gotten a good reaction. People have enjoyed the interviews. I try to have the interviews be relevant to something going on. I don't just like having people on just because they're notable. But I would definitely have Doug on here. I'd enjoy to have Doug on here. I think it would be an interesting show. I think it would be a good interview. But I'm not going to play any game where I beg to have him on here when I know what the answer is already. Okay, so uh, moving on to the next topic related to the Polk-Negranu match. Here is where I'm going to give some criticism to Doug. I told you guys that I'm always going to be honest about uh, the entire situation with Polk and Negranu with everything else. And I have no problem with Polk and I have no problem with Negranu, honestly. But uh, when either of them says or does something stupid, I'm going to call it out. And something that Doug wrote was kind of irritating. 
Doug said that he's not going to do another one of these matches because he just doesn't like poker. He's just not into poker anymore. He hates poker. He doesn't like the game. So some people have asked him, are you going to play, uh, for example, uh, Dan Bilzerian? Or Bill Perkins at at big odds, where the, you know, you you give them back uh, such and such number of big blinds per hundred hands, something like that. Or uh, will you play Negreanu again? Like there, there's been various questions to Doug of, can you do more of these? We'd like to see more. And Doug said, no, no, we're not doing that. I I don't want to do it. I don't like poker. I don't like poker. This takes a lot out of me. It's time consuming. I don't enjoy it. I don't want to do it again. I'm just basically paraphrasing what he said. I, I don't have the tweet in front of me. I thought, I thought I had the tweet in front of me. I don't have it in front of me, so whatever. I'm, I'm not going to bother looking it up. That's just basically what he said. I didn't like that. If Doug Polk hates poker, you know what? There's the door. Goodbye. You can leave. He did leave for a while. Remember when he left to go start like a political channel? That worked out, right? It kind of reminded me of Michael Jordan going to play baseball. So you're, you're really good at one thing. You have a lot of notoriety in one thing. You're like, you know what? I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave on top. I'm going to go do something completely different where I have uh, really not very much talent. And I'm going to try to succeed at that. And I knew that was not going to work. I knew even though he had an existing following. I, I know what Doug was trying to do. He was trying to branch out and become a general YouTube star instead of a poker YouTube star. He was a very successful poker YouTube star, but... There's a ceiling to that. So he thought, okay, I'm going to become a general YouTube star, and I'm going to run a uh, a general channel uh, about politics or whatever. And that's why he changed his name to Doug Polk Vids, which is what his name still is on Twitter, Doug Polk Vids, like for videos. It was because it was to get away from poker. It's where it's not just Doug Polk's poker videos. It's Doug Polk's videos about everything. Uh, that was a failure. Uh, people were not interested, and he dropped it. He gave up on it much like Michael Jordan gave up on trying to be a baseball star. If Doug Polk really does not like poker, if he hates poker, then leave. Stop Stop reminding us that you hate poker. Stop reminding us that this was torture for you. You just won a lot of money. You just got to play a guy in a form of poker at, a, at high stakes where you were a tremendous favorite. And indeed, you won a lot of money. So here you won over... One million dollars. And then you have the nerve to complain that you didn't like it, that it was torture for you, that you hate poker. You did it once, but you're not doing it again because you hate it so much. Yeah, I'm sure you hated every minute of winning $1.2 million and uh, getting all the accolades and getting all the attention. I'm sure you hated every minute of it. Remember back in 2019 at the main event when Doug came back to poker after a hiatus? And played the main event and busted on day one and by his own admission played very poorly and basically chunked off his stack. And he tweeted that he was depressed from the moment he sat down, that he didn't want to play, that he hates poker, he didn't want to be there, that he succumbed to peer pressure, that he was peer pressured into playing the main event. (laughs) I, I mean, come on. Peer pressured into playing the WSOP main event? What the hell is he talking about? But he was peer pressured into playing the WSOP main event, hated being there, was depressed while he was there, and as a result of being depressed, played poorly and busted. 
Which, by the way, the last part, I believe, I really do believe he played poorly and busted because he was depressed about being there and did not want to be there. So he actually hated poker so much that the main event, he, instead of being excited for it and the possibilities of what the main event can bring, which the rest of us are when we play it, he was depressed about being there. And he basically shot off his stack almost on purpose. <laughs> so, so, okay, you hate poker now. I can't tell you what to like or hate, Doug. If you, if you hate poker now, okay, goodbye. You can leave. In general, I hate people, and I don't hate Doug, but I hate when people play poker despite claiming a hatred of it. If you hate it, either leave or play it and keep your mouth shut. If you hate it but you can't help it because it makes a lot of money for you, fine. We don't want to hear about how much you hate it. It's obnoxious, especially when you're doing a highly publicized match where you're winning a ton of money. So it's a bad look. Stop saying that. And look, if you hate it that much, just go away. Just leave. And as I said, I have no problem with Doug Polk. I just, I think it's very immature. I think it's a stupid thing to say. If you're burnt out, take a break. Take another extended break. Or leave for good. Don't keep going on about how much you hate poker. And don't say that's the reason you're not playing again. Now, it's very valid to say that this takes a lot out of you. It requires a lot of studying. It's very stressful. You don't want to do this. You, you don't like that it's something that is burdensome and that you're required to do it every other day and that before you could play poker when you wanted, now the freedom of being a poker pro is out the window because you have a required schedule. These are all good reasons to not want to do this again. You may not want to be on a rigid schedule or you may not want to have your life now doing a series of heads-up match matches, even if they're very profitable. It may be just something you don't want to do anymore. And that's fine. I'm not saying he's required to do these, even if he's big-time plus EV. I'm saying that if you don't want to do it, just say, this isn't appealing to me. I don't want to do it anymore. That's it. Don't, don't go on about how much you hate poker. Nobody wants to hear this. Just just leave. And at the end, if you do leave, you can just say, you know, I, I've played enough poker. I'm just kind of burnt out on it. Nothing against the game. I loved the game at one point. I've just kind of burnt myself out on it, and I just don't have much of a desire to play. That's all you have to say. Or you can just go. You don't have to give an explanation. You don't have to talk about hating it at all. You just say, I'm, I'm just kind of done. It's just a bad look. I'm winning a million bucks, but boy, I hate this. Oh, boy, this is tough for me. You guys don't know how much I'm giving up to do this. Giving up my freedom. All my freedom, I have to do this every day, and I, it's something I hate, and all I'm getting is 1.2 million bucks out of it, plus big side bets? Feel bad for me, folks. I'm sacrificing a lot to entertain you. I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what we're going to see going forward with these two. Since they were complementary towards each other, since they spent a lot of time playing each other, and they even... Uh, talked about hands back and forth and were cordial. Has this taken out some of the motivation for Polk to troll Daniel? Because I'll tell you something, it's much easier to troll someone that you don't have direct personal interaction with. And when I say direct personal interaction, I mean where you have to have like a real conversation with them. I don't mean interaction on Twitter. Or where you don't have to do anything with them. Where you can, you can just like snipe at them on the internet from a distance, and the only interaction you have is when they react to what they're doing. 
I have seen this myself. Obviously, I'm not nearly as high profile as Doug Polk, but uh, I have seen this myself on the internet with trolls, where once I actually have a conversation, especially privately with the troll, a lot of times that diffuses the whole thing because it kind of humanizes me to them. Or I've also had it where people that I am bashing will message me and they will say, hey, you know, why do you write this about me? This is this is pretty messed up. And then I'll give the reasons and then they'll give me their side. And even if I totally don't agree with them, sometimes I have like much less zeal for continuing to criticize them because uh, I, I, it kind of humanizes them some. I can I can actually feel it. I can say, OK, well, I don't agree with them, but I can see how they're feeling. I can see that uh, how this is affecting them and I can see I can understand their point even if I disagree with it. And as long as you're not like actively still hurting people, uh, I, I will sometimes bring down my criticism. And it's just kind of human nature. I'm not saying that if I'm criticizing you, you can shut me up just by having a conversation with me. I'm saying that it is much easier to criticize someone on the internet if they are kind of dehumanized to you and if you don't have to directly interact with them. So playing 25,000 hands heads up with someone where you've got to constantly uh, come about terms and uh, – and both show up there and then be interviewed about their play and uh, talk about hands and, and not come off as, as too much of a dick and, and sometimes give them compliments. Like, that starts to humanize them. And I think this is the first time, this is the first time that uh, Daniel has had that experience where, or not Daniel, where Doug's had that experience regarding Daniel, where he actually has to talk about Daniel that is not in a way to criticize or troll him. So, after having to do this for a while, is this going to take the wind out of the sail for trolling Daniel? And keep in mind that the trolling of Daniel had uh, greatly decreased in recent times since Doug kind of announced that not only is he done with poker, but he's kind of done with poker content. So he hasn't done much of that. So is this it? Is this the final hurrah of this whole thing? The next time something happens with Daniel, remember Doug kind of, the way this all came to be, this whole heads up match, if you're forgetting, is that Doug kind of came out of Daniel trolling retirement to troll him again over the outbursts that Daniel had when he was playing on WSB.com and streaming it when Daniel was uh, having his rage moments that people uh, criticized a lot and Doug could not resist. So he started putting out those videos trolling Daniel again, and this restarted the whole thing, and that eventually led to this match. So now that this match has taken place, is this it? Is Doug done? Especially because Doug won. Like, is this it? Is this the final kick in the ass to Daniel that he took $1.2 million of his money, and now he can walk off into the sunset and not continue trolling him? And I think the answer is probably yes. I think he's not going to announce that's what he's going to do. I think Doug is just kind of be, he's going to be done. I think he's not going to troll Daniel anymore. I think some people will even have less enthusiasm to see this. I think a lot of people will criticize Doug for doing this because it'll kind of look like rubbing it in, even if it's not about the match they played. It's kind of like, hey, you took 1.2 million from this guy in a match where he was a big underdog and now you're still trolling him? What the hell? So I think this isn't even going to be a good look for Doug if he trolls him about other things. I think Doug may not be seen as punching up anymore. It could be seen as punching down because even though Doug is not as well known as Daniel still, that Doug just beat Daniel in this match. And some people may see may see it as like a form of gloating, even if it's not gloating about this. 
So I have a feeling this might be it. I also think that maybe Doug has a little more respect for Daniel than he did before. I think he might have some more respect for his poker game. I think he might have some more respect for Daniel as a person. Uh, Aside from the whole limping and stalling thing, I think that he may see Daniel a bit more in a human manner at this point and may feel less of a desire to aggravate him and get him angry. Because clearly Polk really got a thrill out of watching Daniel flip out, watching Daniel react, watching people laugh at Daniel. Doug really enjoyed that. It wasn't just about the clicks. He really enjoyed watching people laugh at Daniel. And I think that might be gone somewhat now. Or might be gone completely. But we'll see. Now, if Daniel does something really notable that's worthy of criticism, I could see Doug coming out and either making a snide Twitter comment or even releasing a video about it. But I think for the most part, the Polk trolling of Negranu is probably done or mostly done. And that if you were a fan of that, that there's probably not going to be much of it. I was never all that into that stuff. Like, I found it became too much. I mean, like what Ari Engel said on that uh, Mattisau podcast, I, I agree. I thought it was disproportionate. I thought it was overdone. I didn't think Daniel deserved it to that degree. And I found it eventually kind of distasteful, even when Doug was right. I just felt like it was too harsh, too much. And the whole thing seemed a little too vindictive without a good enough reason to be vindictive. If Daniel had done some horrible thing to Doug, and this was Doug lashing back out, I'd understand. But he hadn't. I I think... Daniel the whole time is going, what the hell did I do to this guy? <laughs> and I think they just didn't get along going back many years, but Daniel didn't do anything bad to him. So Daniel must have been wondering, like, what did I do to really get this guy so dedicated to screwing with me? And unfortunately for Daniel, this comes with the territory of being famous and being outspoken. Okay. So we're going to move on to a totally different subject. If you want to call in, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also text the show anytime at the main number, 775-372-8355. From the 641 area code, is your bunghole doing okay? And normally I wouldn't even read that that uh, text message, but this is a legitimate question now because remember, I had a colonoscopy on January 22nd. Answer, yes. I have no pain. In fact, if you just dropped me from the past and dropped me here on February 5th, 2021, and asked me, how are you feeling? I'd say, hmm, the usual. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, hey, I feel pain in any area where this was done. And the abdominal pain I felt afterwards, that's gone. So really, it's back to feeling the same way I did before the colonoscopy, except I am now missing four polyps, including one very large one. So that part's good, and it's also good that I don't have any kind of lasting effect and I didn't have any kind of uh, damage from this, which is uncommon. Usually this is a pretty safe procedure. There's a small amount of risk. But uh, none of that happened. And probably the biggest risk of the whole thing was catching COVID in there. And that didn't happen either because uh, it was on January 22nd and I didn't catch COVID. And by now I would know about that. Unless I caught it and had no symptoms, which is fine too. (laughs) But I I think I just didn't catch it. 
So again, 775-372-8355. If you want to text me, even if you're not listening live, you can text me on the show and I will uh, respond to you. So, okay, let me move on and talk about Chris Moneymaker. Chris Moneymaker, if you remember, left Poker Stars and it was kind of abrupt and it was his choice. He was not fired. It is possible that he was offered a contract that was too low for his liking. It's possible that uh, it just wasn't enough for him to want to continue with the responsibilities he had with them. Because there were responsibilities. It wasn't just free money. It wasn't just they were stamping his face on things. Uh, he had to show up to certain things. He had to travel for certain tournaments. And uh, he may have tired of that. So whatever they were offering him at PokerStars after 17 years, he just decided, uh, I don't want it anymore. And he left. But the question was, what is he going to do after that? Do you think, you think Chris Moneymaker is going to go back and take a normal job, just go back to being an accountant or whatever he was beforehand? I knew the answer was no. Moneymaker has been known to have money issues despite his lucrative poker star sponsorship, especially in the first uh, several years after winning the World Series in 2003 and the $2.5 million prize itself. Despite things like that, uh, he has been known to be a degenerate. In fact, this is I'm not giving away his secrets. He has said this himself in videos that have been done of him about the subject. He has a, a, a sports betting habit, uh, a negative expectation one, by the way, and he, he has chunked off a lot of money. And he has been honest about that. Chris Moneymaker definitely needs money. He's not someone who's just sitting on a fortune and can just do nothing. And the question was, how is he going to support himself without that sweet poker star's money coming in? So my theory at the time was that he probably will go represent another room. And indeed, that is what happened. So less than five weeks after leaving poker stars, he joined a new site as a sponsored pro. America's Card Room announced that they signed Chris Moneymaker as a pro for the site. And uh, they tweeted this. WSOP main event champion, online poker revolutionary, and now ACR team pro. We're thrilled to welcome Chris Moneymaker to the America's Card Room family. Read the official announcement here. By the way, he's not an online poker revolutionary. He is someone who really fueled the interest in poker and online poker. That is true. But he did that by winning the WSOP main event in 2003 and having a very inspiring story for the average everyman poker player. That's how he did it. He was not a revolutionary for online poker. But I will say he was very influential to the 2000s era poker game. There's no question about that. So they put in this press release on poker.org, which they listed, which they uh, linked to from the official ACR Twitter account. One month ago, Chris Moneymaker shocked the poker community when he decided to leave poker stars after 17 years. The legendary 2003 WSOP main event champion isn't retiring from poker. Instead, he found a new opportunity within the poker industry at America's Card Room, which he discussed with poker.org. Following his decision to bolt from the world's largest poker site, the champ sought a new opportunity. He wanted to continue working in the poker industry, and his options were plentiful. Now, that, that part's true. There's a lot of sites that would be happy to have him. Promoting the game comes naturally to one of poker's top ambassadors. 
I agree with that as well. He was a great ambassador for the game, very nice and friendly guy, and perhaps most importantly, very down-to-earth and accessible. He's, he's the opposite of arrogant. You meet the guy, he really just seems like an everyday dude that's sitting next to you. He does not seem like uh, one of the most famous names in 2000s poker or, or some, someone who was single-handedly responsible for uh, uh, fueling a lot of the poker boom. There were were other factors that fueled the poker boom, but he was a big part of it, and uh, he he doesn't act that way. There's a lot of people who would be really arrogant after having done that. He's not at all. He he stayed the same guy. So, uh, uh, And and people know that, and people like him for that. Very likable guy. When I've interacted with him, he's always been nice. He's agreed to come on the show, by the way. This this is someone I'd be happy to have an interview with, by the way. This, This is someone I will ask to the prom. This is someone I, I will ask again soon if he'd like to come on. He he agreed last year when I asked him, and we just never got him on here. Anyway, he goes on to say, but Moneymaker wants to stay closer to home in Mississippi and would like to avoid traveling all around for work. So he found an opportunity to promote a poker site that's available in the U.S. unlike PokerStars. Okay, let, let's stop right here. I heard that was true. I heard from uh, insiders that... One of the things that drove Chris away from PokerStars after 17 years was not really dissatisfaction with PokerStars itself. It was that he was tired of traveling. He just didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, especially because PokerStars events tend to be pretty far away. And yeah, they'd pay for the travel, but but he got tired of it. He just didn't want to do it anymore. Just wanted to stay home. And he was kind of done. And this is what he had to say about that. I'm 45 years old. I've got three kids. I can't not work. But I'm not qualified for anything anymore. I couldn't do your taxes as good as H&R Block could. My only qualification in this point of life is, do you want fries with that? That's funny. So he kind of admits he's out of options other than working for a poker site. That is funny. That's, that's funny, but very refreshingly honest. You won't be greeted by Chris Moneymaker at your local McDonald's anytime soon. The Poker Hall of Famer instead is joining America's Card Room, a U.S.-facing poker site that offers Bitcoin deposits and withdrawals and has some familiar faces on board, such as vloggers Ryan DiPaolo and Jeff Boski. That's exciting. <laughs> like We've got Chris Moneymaker and uh, yeah, Ryan DiPaolo and Jeff Boski. Especially Jeff Boski. Jeff Boski is such a freaking phony. I did not like that guy. As of February 3rd, he becomes the face of poker uh, of the poker site as a responsibility he's excited to tackle. Moneymaker weighed other career options following his departure from PokerStars. He even considered opening a card room in Texas, and he might still do that someday. But as he said, in the meantime, I'm going through this process. I'm playing online poker. I'm starting to do pretty well. Somehow we started a conversation, he said of his new boss, Phil Nagy. I heard what ACR was doing, and I heard all the improvements they've been making to the site and how they're fighting bots. And basically, to me, it seemed like PokerStars did back in 2004, 2005. They're really trying to grow the game. Moneymaker praised the outspoken Nagy, and he's clearly appreciative of the opportunity. He could have signed on for another year with PokerStars and essentially been paid to do very little, but he liked what Nagy sold him, and he's excited to move forward with a new patch on his clothes. Now, here's the truth. I think he, as I heard from insiders, Moneymaker just didn't want to travel anymore, and Nagy said, hey, how would you like to represent ACR and not travel very much at all? How would you like to just sit in your underwear in Mississippi and mostly represent ACR online? Maybe go to the occasional tournament and wear the patch, but for the most part, uh, 
we, we slap your face on the site. We run promotions around you. You can sit and play online poker. We'll drop a bunch of money in your account. Uh, how would you like that? And he's like, sold. <laughs> so that's that's how it happened. Moneymaker also said he's taking the coronavirus seriously and avoided playing online poker since or live poker since March. His new role with ACR provides an opportunity he couldn't get from poker stars without traveling that he could play online at the poker site he represents. He said, I don't know when COVID is going to go away. We don't know what this virus is going to hold for us. We're hoping this year is going to be better as far as travel and getting out there and being able to do things. But they're having so many strains and all this other stuff comes out. You just never know when it's going to be. Fact check. True. I heard that as well. I heard that part of the reason he was done with the travel is because of COVID concerns. That, uh, like me, Mr. Moneymaker is uh, a little bit scared of COVID because he's not young. He's 45. And that's around the age where COVID starts to become more and more dangerous. And lung damage from COVID, permanent lung damage, starts to become a realistic possibility. Death while not common, is not so fluky that you can write it off as a possibility. It's something that if you're unlucky, it can happen to you. But the lung damage and other permanent damage like that is a lot more likely. It's not like catching it when you're 30. So he he just doesn't want to travel around and risk it. He doesn't want to be in planes. He doesn't want to be in cooped up places playing live poker and traveling for live poker that will be dangerous to him at the age of 45. I agree. I wouldn't want that either. So he's basically got a good situation here where he can do everything online and not risk COVID. Living in Mississippi, hundreds of miles away from New Jersey where PokerStars is available, made it difficult for Moneymaker to play on the poker site he was paid to remote. He'd already been playing on ACR and enjoyed the site, so naturally it was a perfect fit. Moneymaker can now stay home with his family and play online poker at the site he works for. No more constant traveling to the Northeast, leaving his family behind for work. I could be locked up in my house for another six months or a year, Moneymaker says. I want to be able to play poker and be proud of being able to play and support the site I'm playing on. That was ACR. There's a little bit more to this, but I'll, that, I'll stop right there. I think this is fine. Some people have asked me how I feel about him promoting ACR because ACR has a bad reputation. And my response to that is ACR doesn't really have a bad reputation. It has a flawed reputation, and there's a difference. A bad reputation would be equivalent to lock poker circa 2014. That's a bad reputation where the site is just outright ripping people off, not paying them, etc., etc. ACR does pay out. If you win on ACR, they pay you, just like Bovada. I know Trader Ruski hates Bovada. I know he's going to hate me saying this. But uh, Bovada, they pay you fast when you win. So uh, if, if you want to play on a poker site that's U.S.-facing, that has some decent traffic, and that has an excellent reputation with paying people, then ACR and Bovada are good options. They are both flawed options. They both have done some screwed-up things. They both have done some unethical things. ACR has a big problem with bots. Bovada has pretty horrendous customer service. They screwed Traderuski, as you guys know. They, they really did screw him. It wasn't a lot of money, but Traderuski, in principle, was pissed off, and I don't blame him. I would have been really pissed, too. So uh, these are flawed sites. But what other choices are there if you want to represent a U.S.-facing site? There was basically uh, com, which isn't really hiring sponsored pros. or uh, And then there's PokerStars. And uh, I, I, I guess there's Party also. But uh, again, they, he'd have to travel 
over to their tournaments. Uh, so, like, he's not near New Jersey where Party is. So, ACR was something that really just operates online, and it was a perfect fit for him. So, I understand. If he signed on to represent a site that was a no-paying site or a slow-paying site, or one with horrendous scandals like uh, UB back in the day, even, the quote, the new UB, which is really the same as the old UB, if he was a Perlot Friedman, I'd say, yeah, what an asshole. But I can understand him signing on with ACR. I've even, I don't have an account on ACR yet. People have asked me a lot of times, hey, can you send me ACR money? And I had to break it to them, I don't have an ACR account. But I, I've considered signing on there. And in fact, if ACR got a regular 08 game going or a regular Limit Hold'em game going at decent stakes, and when I say decent, that would be really high, but like 30, 60, that type of thing, then I would sign up there. I would play on there. While at the same time acknowledging that they've had issues with bots and they've had other things that have happened there, which I don't agree with. So I don't think they're horrendous or a scam site. I also don't think they've handled everything all that well and are flawed. So you can think these things at once. So I don't see a problem with Chris Moneymaker signing on there. I would only have a problem with him leading lambs to the slaughter. If he signed on for a site that was cheating people and just not paying them, like Locke was, then I would really have a lot of harsh words and say, Chris, you disappointed me. Chris, that's horrible. Chris, you're hurting your fellow human beings. But he's not. He's not hurting your fellow human beings. He's representing one of the two biggest online poker sites that's U.S. facing right now. And that is flawed, but if you play there and you win, you get paid. So that right there is most of the battle as far as whether sites are decent or terrible. There's only As long as there's not super users or some kind of major cheating, and as long as they pay you, then you're most of the way there as far as a poker site being okay. They can be flawed. They can drive away customers. Like Again, I fully understand and support Trader Ruski quitting Bovada because of how they treated him and how they screwed him. I can relate to things like that because those things get me angry too. At the same time, there's varying degrees to things. And when you're looking at regulated and unregulated sites, the, the unregulated ones are always going to be flawed. Most sites are not going to be like Esai Scheinberg run poker stars, which, by the way, also did some things I don't agree with. They were better than ACR, but they, they weren't perfect either. So don't think poker stars made no mistakes. They, they screwed people a lot in live events and then wouldn't tone up to it. And they really screwed people on Black Friday regarding their FPPs, including me. And I, I won't forget that. I don't think Esai himself necessarily made these decisions. I think he was kind of convinced that they were doing the right thing. I think Esai, for the most part, is a pretty good guy. But there were some decisions made that were definitely unethical by poker stars, even during the Scheinberg years. But I will admit they were by far the best operation of the unregulated sites. By far, they were the best. All these other sites, they're varying degrees down from that. You have ones that are good, you have ones that are okay, and you have ones all the way at the bottom which are total crap and scams. But ACR, they're not at the bottom. They just, they're flawed. Okay, let's move on to talk about Veronica Brill's new opportunity 
Veronica has really taken a lot of shit over the last uh, year and a half. She took a big risk being the whistleblower in the Mike Postle situation. Keep in mind, she was not the only one who had the suspicions about him. There were many people talking privately about it, and nobody had the balls to come out and say it in public. And Veronica, ironically someone without balls, was the one to come forward and say so. So Veronica came forward, and she said what she had to say about uh, her opinion of uh, Mike Postle and whether or not he was playing an honest game on the Stones stream. And not only is she currently being sued for having done so, but boy, did she take a lot of shit on social media. Because Mike seemed to blame her the most for every, because she started the whole thing. He seemed to blame her, as did his friends. And some really, really nasty and awful stuff was written about her on Twitter. Not by Mike. Mike has kept quiet on Twitter. But uh, there are these accounts on Twitter, some of whom I know who run them, like real people. I'm not talking about Mike Postle. I'm talking about other people who I have identified. And there's some who I don't know run them. And it could be one of uh, various people. I have my suspicions. But these accounts have written horrible and nasty things about her. One of them, as I've mentioned before, even had the nerve to mock her about her dead child. She had a child that died at the age of three, a very tragic story, which as a parent really made me incredibly sad to hear about. I didn't even know about it at the time that this troll was harassing her about it, but this troll was actually having the nerve to say that she was happy about it. I mean, it was just really, really horrible stuff. And a lot of the trolls, what they kept saying was that uh, she did this to elevate her status in poker, that uh, she's an attention whore, that uh, she did this vindictively just so people will pay attention to her, just so this will give her more opportunities. And this wasn't true. I can tell you that Veronica did this because she felt it was right. Now, I wasn't in her head, but I believe this very, very strongly that Veronica came forward because she felt it was right. And I respect that tremendously, and I've said this so many times. And it bothers me so much to see these trolls harass her like this. And I know some of them are Apostle's friends, and I I know some of them are just trolls that like screwing with her. I know that some people even bother her because they don't like her political takes. But she did something very brave, brave, and she's taken so much shit that's undeserved. She didn't do anything wrong here. She did something brave. She did something good. And it was very difficult. And she told me some other stuff that's been happening. I, I, I have felt very bad for her, for what she has had to endure. It's one thing if someone does something bad and they have a bad result or some fallout from it. Like if you scam someone and then you're caught scamming and then people start harassing you and people start trolling you and people start threatening you. Well, okay, I'll say I don't have any sympathy for you because you're a scammer because you did a bad thing and now you're suffering for it. You're suffering the consequences. You're suffering the reputational consequences. You're suffering from angry people lashing out at you. That's all fine. I'm not going to ever feel bad for someone who is in that situation. But when someone has done something because they believe they're doing the right thing and they're doing it at great personal risk to themselves and their reputation, and then 
some assholes try to make their lives miserable, it makes me feel bad to see. It makes me feel angry to see. Even though, like, Veronica's not a close friend of mine. I, I talk to her sometimes, but she's not a close friend of mine. And she's not really friends with any close friends of mine. But I really, as someone who calls out scams and has for so many years, I really relate to her story. I related to her story long before I was dragged into this stupid defamation lawsuit that's super frivolous and lame and that I have an anti-slap motion to have dismissed, to dismiss this uh, idiotic lawsuit in March, as you guys know about, that is uh, was prepared by attorney Eric Benzamokin. But even before that, even before October 1st when I learned about this, I felt very bad for Veronica, and I said so here on the show. So anyway, why am I saying all this? Well, Veronica has finally gotten uh, a positive piece of news, which has been lacking in the last year and a half. And that is, she is going to be the host of Poker After Dark in the next season, which I'm not sure when it begins, but she is going to be the host. I'm not sure what the host entails. I don't know if she's going to be doing color commentary or just kind of like the host who introduces the segments. I, I'm not sure what her position's going to be. I guess I could ask her, but I'm not sure exactly what she's going to be doing. But uh, this is the information that I got, which was on public Twitter. On February 4th, she tweeted, I will be hosting the next season of Poker After Dark. I was keeping it quiet, but... Uh, at Buffalo Hanks decided to let the cat out of the bag and in front of the GG Poker audience after telling me not to say anything, LOL. Don't get all excited because if I'm terrible, they will edit me out. <laughs> I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, so anyway, she is going to supposedly, which I, I believe, I mean, I have no reason to doubt this, be hosting the next season of Poker After Dark, which, as you know, was a very popular show in the 2000s, then it went away, then it came back about four years ago, and uh, now it is coming back, or now she's coming to host it. It came back four years ago, and she is going to be the host. Good for her. Regardless of what she's doing there, I don't know if she is going to be uh, color commentating. She, she definitely has the ability to do so. We, we saw that on the Stone streams. That was her main job with Stones. She was kind of like a freelancer who came into Common State for the the Stones live stream when it existed, and she I guess she could also be just the host. It's it's hard to tell what her role is going to be because yeah, she's an attractive female, and they'll usually have a an attractive female as like a like a host for this type of thing, like kind of introducing it, and then they'll the color commentators they'll have people who they think are good at color commentating. So she could be in either role. Like if it was a dude, I'd say, okay, it's a, I don't think the dude's going to be a host. I think the dude's going to be a color commentator. With her, it could be either one. But it's possible with both. But I'm happy she has this opportunity. And it is possible that she got this opportunity because of all the shit she went through. And I guess the detractors will say, oh, well, okay, this was her endgame. This was her endgame. She'll falsely accuse Possel, and then she'll play victim, 
and then people will feel bad for her and give her a job. I'm sure that's what the trolls are going to say. In fact, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'll give them that idea. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. I'm actually happy to see people give her opportunities like this, even if it is because they saw everything she went through or if they admire what she did and want to give her this chance. So it's possible she would have gotten it anyway, because remember, she she had a color commentating job on the Stone Stream, which was a, a pretty well-liked and well-viewed stream prior to the whole puzzle mess. So it's possible she could have transitioned from that to something like Poker After Dark. But it's also possible that she was given this position because of uh, everything that happened here. In which case, I say good. In which case, I say it is very deserved. I always like when people get good results out of their good actions. When they act right and they gain some kind of benefit from it, especially if they acted right out of the goodness of their heart and then get an associated benefit they didn't expect, I think that's great. I think that's the way it should be in life. Often it is not, but when that does happen, I like to see it. So uh, very good job, Veronica. I'm glad that you're there. I don't think you're going to suck. And I hope you're there for a long time. And I wish you success. I also wish you success in your anti-slap motion, which will be two days before mine. I don't know how you got ahead of me. I, I, sh- I should be ahead of you, Veronica, is the truth. I, we filed ours first, and now somehow yours is going to be heard two days before ours. There's, there's no justice in Sacramento. I want to be first, but fine. Since you were the original whistleblower, I guess it's fitting that you go first. Then we will go two days later. Hers is March 16th. Mine is March 18th, unless they are delayed further. But I, th- I think it's going to be heard on those dates. That's my guess here. Let's move on here. I want to talk a bit about Vegas legend Tony Bennett. Now, Tony Bennett is a performer and long associated with Vegas. How far do you think he goes back? I'm sure you've heard of him as an old school performer. But how far back does he go in Vegas history? If you had to guess, you'd probably say a long way, but how far? Well, Tony Bennett first performed in Las Vegas in the year 1952. Can you believe that? A guy who performed in 1952 in Las Vegas is still alive, which is kind of hard to believe, but it's the truth. 1952 is 59 years ago. Someone born in February 1952 is now 59. And Tony Bennett was performing. Not as a kid. He was not a child performer. He was an adult performer in 1952. He first played at El Rancho Vegas, which is no longer there. But he first played at the El Rancho in April 1952, almost 59 full years ago. When did he last play? Believe it or not, he last played at the Venetian in 2019 in Las Vegas, and then he played elsewhere in March 2020. So he was still active. Well, his family just announced that he has Alzheimer's, and in fact that he has had Alzheimer's for four years. So you may say, wait a minute, 
how come you just said that he performed at the Venetian in 2019 and that he performed all the way to March 2020 if he had Alzheimer's? How could he do it? Well, for whatever reason, um, he was still able to perform. He was still able to sing. He was still able to mostly remember the songs despite the fact that his mental status was declining. If you want to read a very long and detailed profile on Tony Bennett from the early parts of his life to the later parts of his life, uh, you can go to aarp.org, you know, AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. You can find an article about him there. You can just type in uh, Tony Bennett aarp.org and read a very, very long and detailed uh, story about him and the Alzheimer's. I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. It would take very long. He's someone who was uh, slowly declining and yet still had the ability to continue performing, which is interesting. You'd think that once this happens, you're going to have to quit. Now, Hal Ketchum I played his song to open up a show a few weeks ago. He died at the age of, I think, 67. He's a country music star. And he had uh, dementia. He had Alzheimer's. He had early onset Alzheimer's. And he actually performed until like 18 months before his death. And his wife said that he was in pretty bad shape. Yeah, the, the Alzheimer's had hit him pretty hard. But he, like Tony Bennett, was also able to still perform until finally the Alzheimer's uh, took that ability away from him. But that it's not like when Hal Ketchum was last performing that he was all there. He was not. I guess after you do the same performance over and over, when you sing the songs over and over, they get ingrained enough in your head that it, it would make sense that that could stay with you even as other parts of you start to disappear, even after other memories disappear, even after you don't fully understand what's going on around you. You can almost do it out of reflex. So apparently Tony Bennett still has that ability even today. You may think he stopped performing because of Alzheimer's, but in reality, what stopped him from performing was COVID. If you think about it, March of 2020 was when everybody started to shut down. We first heard of COVID in late January. Throughout February, people started to be careful and started to talk about it and started to get concerned. But uh, people were still going out and doing things. There weren't shutdowns yet. The shutdowns happened in March, and by mid-March, pretty much uh, life had changed big time. So that's what happened, was the last time he was able to perform because of COVID was March 2020, and that was that. However, I will say that he was substantially better in March 2020 than he is today. The last time he performed was March 11th of 2020, less than a year ago. It was at the Count Basie Center for the Arts in Red Bank, New Jersey. His uh, neurologist, Dr. Uh, Gayatri Devi, said that after he was forced to stop performing, that he took a significant uh, step downhill as far as his condition with the Alzheimer's. Dr. Devi said this has been a real blow from a cognitive perspective. His memory prior to the pandemic was so much better, and he's not alone. So many of my patients are negatively affected by the isolation, the inability to do things that matter to them. For someone like Tony Bennett, the big high he gets is from performing. It was very important. That's interesting. 
and I can easily believe it. They say even before you get something like Alzheimer's, something important to do in your senior years is to keep yourself mentally stimulated. They say to try to learn something new. They say to do something mentally challenging. Believe it or not, even poker could help as far as uh, keeping yourself mentally stimulated because you're you're having to figure things out on the fly. You're having to analyze things on the fly. Even if it's not new, even if you're used to poker and you're playing a form of poker you're used to, uh, that still stimulates your brain. What you don't want if you are worried about senility setting in is just sitting home and kind of vegging out. You don't want to just sit there and, and watch TV or uh, even like read a book. Like you, you don't want things that are kind of easy to do that don't require a lot of thought. You want something that requires your brain to really work. And I'm not talking about people my age. I'm not talking about younger people. There it's less important. But as you get into your senior years, not even like what Tony Bennett is. Tony Bennett is 94. But uh, even like at 65, 70, it's important to stimulate your brain as much as possible. Probably this show isn't helping you. Probably just, just listening to this show is, is causing worse Alzheimer's. I, I have a feeling that I'm going to have uh, a lot of older and really out-of-it people as I do this show over the years that uh, lose their cognitive abilities because they waste eight hours a week listening to this show and it stimulates nothing. There's no brain stimulation from this show. So may, maybe if you're old, you shouldn't listen to this show. Or if you do, you should do other things. I'm only half joking, actually, because the thing is, like, listening to a show like this, unless you're really thinking about the stuff I'm talking about, if you're just kind of passively listening and just go, oh, that's kind of interesting, that's not going to do anything for your brain. So you you need to do something that's more active regarding thinking and figuring things out. But also what's important is to uh, not just get yourself in a rut where you're not doing anything. So even though Tony Bennett was used to doing the same performance over and over, it still required some brain power and it still kind of gave him a purpose. As the doctor said there, the big high he got was from performing. That even after all these years, going back to 1952, he still really enjoyed performing. And that once that was gone, there a lot of the brain stimulation went away. A lot of the excitement for life went away, and it allowed his brain to decline a lot faster. Now, probably that year that has passed wasn't helpful either. At the age he is at, 94, every year is huge regarding your condition. Like, the average person my age is not going to change very much in their condition, especially their brain condition, but even their body's condition is not going to change very much from one year to the next in their late 40s, unless they get some, like, COVID. So... For that the typical person my age, that's not a big deal. But but when you're in your 90s, there can be a tremendous difference just from the passage of time. So it is possible this is going to happen anyway, no matter what he did. But I do agree that COVID was probably very harmful to some of these elderly people forced to just sit at home in their apartments alone during the shutdown. So this doctor is saying that a lot of his patients are having this problem. Now... The doctor recommended that Bennett continue to rehearse. And uh, what was happening was his longtime pianist, 
not penis, by the way, it was a long time pianist, Lee uh, Musiker was coming over. He lives very close by. He's able to walk over there. So uh, uh, Lee Musiker, his uh, longtime pianist, walked over and would play the piano for 90 minutes and Tony would sing. But it still wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as performing. Perform, you know, just singing along with his buddy playing the piano is not the same thing as performing. His doctor recommended he do this as an alternative, but it was a much lesser alternative. There was some attention that was brought to a collaboration that Tony Bennett did with Lady Gaga in 2018. In fact, it was something that started in 2018 and they kind of slowly put it together all the way through early 2020 by the time they finished. And uh, something that Lady Gaga said she noticed, and she wasn't trying to be disrespectful, she just observed it and she kind of felt bad seeing it because I guess she always admired him and uh, was really excited to be working with him, that uh, Tony was really known to be very uh, gregarious and someone who uh, did a lot of talking, that it it wasn't going to be a situation where they'd get together and he'd just kind of quietly work with her and not say much. Like She expected a very vigorous conversation between the two of them, even though uh, he was quite old. This is just uh, three years ago. However, when they were recording their new album together, he barely said anything. And she was trying to get conversation going. She said, you sound so good, Tony. And he said, thanks. That's it. She noticed that whatever she said to him, he'd give a one-word response. She felt bad because she knew that that wasn't the real him. It, it kind of seemed like he wasn't all there. He kind of had this blank stare. He was able to perform the songs. He was able to do the work. But he couldn't really hold a conversation. He would kind of just utter quick responses and that would be it. And that was so unlike him prior to the Alzheimer's. So she had recalled that she felt bad seeing this. And in fact, uh, someone who watched a video of her in the recording studio with him said that there was a clear sadness in Lady Gaga's face. And she kind of felt bad seeing what he had become, even though he was actually able to record the songs and sounded okay. Believe it or not, the opportunity to see him perform may not be completely closed. There may be a way, if you haven't seen Tony Bennett perform and you want to see it, there is a possibility that he will be able to, though I think probably it's not going to happen. But apparently he still has the ability to sing, even though his condition has declined a lot since 11 months ago when the shutdown began. He still has the ability to perform. Now, we still have to wait some time. Obviously, he'll get the vaccine very soon if he doesn't have it already. They're not ready to open up performance venues, even if he can perform and do so without fear of COVID. I think they're going to have to wait until a lot more of the population is vaccinated. So I don't know when it's going to happen to where a performance venue will open up again for him. And if he will be in the condition at that point to do it, or maybe even now the windows close and he can't. They're, they're saying that he still can, but who knows? Because it's not like he can go out and do it tomorrow. 
So that window may be closed. And of course, with Alzheimer's, it eventually kills you. So it's kind of a, a sad decline where people with Alzheimer's slowly just disappear. They disappear mentally. Everything about their personality vanishes. Their memories vanish. Long-time family members they can't recognize anymore. They can't remember past experiences. They are just in a fog. They kind of have a blank stare. They don't know what's going on. Every once in a while, some lucidity comes back like to some moderate degree and then goes away again. But as it gets worse and worse, that becomes fewer and far between and eventually they are completely out of it and then they die. Ronald Reagan, one of the more famous cases of Alzheimer's and from what I hear at the very end, Reagan didn't even know he was president. He didn't even understand what president was. He had no idea who he was or what his history was or what he had been. And that's sad. That's And it's it's a slow process, but it takes its toll over time. And you just kind of vanish. And if you think about it, you're not your physical body. You're really your brain. Your physical body is a vehicle that your brain uses. But as what's in your brain basically vanishes or at least can't be accessed anymore, I do wonder one day if they ever come up with a cure for this, if this could be something to be reversed. Like if you could bring a cure from the future, could someone get all of their memories back and their entire personality back? simply by this treatment, even if it seems like the damage has been done. Because sometimes what appears to be gone is just hiding or is just inaccessible in your brain. I had that experience myself two and a half years ago. I had it where my ability to feel emotions was taken from me and I could not, my brain could not process any kind of uh, positive emotions. I could feel emotions, but my ability to feel positive emotions of any kind, even love, was completely extracted. It was gone. I no longer had the ability to do it, and I was afraid I lost it forever. It turned out it was just hiding. It turned out that once the brain chemistry was restored to what it needed to be, to what it had been before, or at least close to what it had been before, that that rushed back and was no longer a problem. Today it's no longer a problem. I know this is different, but the brain's very complicated. There's a lot that's still not understood. So maybe if a cure is found that even those who are still alive and suffering from it can get all their memories back. And he's, of course, very, very old. And people who are not suffering from Alzheimer's at 94 still are uh, very fragile. And even if there was no COVID, they could pretty much die anytime from a number of causes. At, at that age, uh, everything's very fragile. So I don't think he'll perform again, but it's not completely something that is ruled out. And he is a Las Vegas legend. I, I don't know why I said 59 years. It's actually 69 years. That's pretty amazing. 69 years was the first time he performed. 69 years ago. It's, I don't know why I was thinking 59 this whole way. You're probably listening to this thing. What a moron. He can't do math. 
You probably think I'm senile. You probably think I have Alzheimer's. <laughs> How many times did I said 59? But uh, yeah, 69 years ago. Amazing. Sometimes if somebody's doing some kind of performance for that long, you just look at it with amazement. I thought of that with Vin Scully, who is still alive, but famed announcer for the Dodgers who worked for 66 years. And I go, wow, imagine doing a job like that for 66 years. So Tony Bennett started performing 69 years ago. He's still around. Now, he was quite young then, obviously. since mid-20s. Definitely a Vegas legend. And it's sad to hear what has happened to him. But maybe he has a few performances left in him. Okay, moving on to something completely different. We've talked before about the Pennsylvania online market, the online poker and gambling market there, where right now Poker Stars is the only online poker you can play on a regulated site in Pennsylvania, even though others had the opportunity to join and had not done so yet. So Poker Stars was the only offering over there and still is presently. And it's doing okay. It's it's not knocking it out of the park. Uh, Pennsylvania has the largest population of any legalized and regulated U.S. poker state right now. There aren't that many of them, but right now Pennsylvania is where there are the most people. So uh, Poker Stars Pennsylvania, uh, according to PokerScout.com, has an average of 400 people on playing cash games and that uh, a peak of about a thousand. So at most a little bit short of a thousand players you're gonna find playing cash on Poker Stars PA. So that's not massive. It's a lot smaller than other non regulated poker sites, both US facing and non US facing. To show you the difference, right now uh Poker Stars has uh over 5,000 people playing cash, and they have a peak of uh, about 14,500. The IDN Poker Network has, uh, right now, even more than Poker Stars, 6,500 people playing cash and a peak of about 10,600. GG Poker, which has become third, has uh, almost as many Poker Stars right now playing a 4891 with a 24-hour peak of about 7,500. So look at that compared to Poker Stars PA, which gets a peak of about a thousand and an average of about four hundred. So that's that's very different. So uh, it's not like Poker Stars PA is blowing up, but there is some optimism that there is some reason to believe that it would be profitable to open there and to have some competition for Poker Stars PA. If you think about WSB.com, they exist in three states right now. They exist in New Jersey, in Delaware, and Nevada. But what's more notable is the fact that they are combining their player pools. So when you're on WSB.com, you're playing against people in those three states. You don't even know who is where, but it's a combined player pool. And I have said for a long time that combined player pools will be the ultimate solution whenever it happens to having a decent online poker site again. Because still, even the very best of the legalized and regulated online poker sites are fail sites right now. They just they just don't have much traffic. They're just very inferior 
to the offerings even on something like an ACR or a Bovada, which are doing substantially better than these regulated sites because they can be in every state. They're not supposed to be, but they are. So until several states combine, you're just not going to have very active sites. And the problem is you need traffic to get games going because poker games are not something you play by yourself. You have to play with other people. In order to get people together, you need a lot of people there logged in at once who want to play the same thing. So not only do you need people online, but you need them willing to start games. You need enough people around where games get going, and then people log in, see a game going, then they join too. And it's 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 a a cycle. It's one of these things where action creates more action, and then less action causes deadness. So the U.S. facing regulated online poker sites just don't have the numbers yet. They just don't have the traffic. They don't have the potential traffic. The population is just not there to support it. So combining states, combining player pools is key, and. As we mentioned last week, because of the re-re-reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act, now the threat to this becoming illegal has gone away. And the ability to do this has become very clear, that this will continue, that this is not going to get rolled back. That was very important. I had wondered last week, when is Pennsylvania going to join in? And we got our answer. The answer is, maybe as soon as this summer. So here's what's going on. The senior vice president of 88 Holdings, whose name is uh, Yaniv Sherman, talked to Poker Fuse, which, by the way, carries this show without my permission. Poker Fuse just decided one day they're going to carry Poker Fraud Alert. They're going to take my feed and carry down their site. And I was like, should I complain about that? I'm like, yeah, you know what, whatever. They're, they get a lot of traffic. Yeah, they'll make a little money from running my show, and they, I don't get anything. But at least I, at least I get more of an audience thanks to them. I've had people tell me before they found me through Poker Fuse, so I'm like, you know, I, I could tell them take this down, and they probably would. But I'm like, okay, they they get me some somewhat of an audience, so let them. I didn't give them official permission, but let's just say I, I'm not stopping them right now. So anyway, uh, Poker Fuse did an interview with this uh, senior VP of 88 who provides the software for WSOB.com. And we found out from this interview that they are looking to expand into Pennsylvania. Now, by the way, remember Michigan just opened up for legalized online poker as well, and PokerStars just opened there. So that's uh, also a possible place they could pop up. But right now... 888 is not concerning themselves with Michigan. They're putting their eyes on the bigger prize, and that is the higher population state of Pennsylvania. So they're really hoping to launch WSOP PA, that is WSOP Pennsylvania, sometime in the summer of 2021, and they are really hoping to be up and running in time for the WSOP. Now you may say, wait a minute. How do you know there's going to be a 2021 WSOP? And my answer is, well, there's going to be something. They're going to, at the very least, hold an online WSOP. And Pennsylvania and, and 888, they really want to have the ability to where people can play the WSOP and the online events without leaving Pennsylvania. So that's the goal. The goal is to be up and running 
to where Pennsylvania residents or people currently in Pennsylvania can sign up and sit there at home in Pennsylvania and play WSOP online bracelet events. They may not reach this goal, but that's what they're trying to do. They also are trying to roll out a new version of the platform called uh, Poker 8. And it's supposed to be a desktop and mobile app that is going to be a complete overhaul of the online poker experience. So the fail software that's running right now at WSOP.com will be a thing of the past. They said it'll have major updates to Windows and Mac clients, as well as the Android and iOS apps. So that's what they're trying to do. They're hoping that on their new software, that you'll be able to play WSOP.com in Pennsylvania, and they are looking to merge it with the player pools of New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada. Of course, that would be necessary to hold these WSOP events from Pennsylvania. The whole point is that they want people to be able to play from wherever they can access WSOP.com. So we'll see if they get this all done in time. Of course, the priority right now is to just get it up and running, even if it's the old software, and then roll out the Poker 8 portion later. That may come after the World Series. But they really are looking to do this. And it's pretty likely that WSOPPA will be running at some point in 2021. But they're aiming for the WSOP, and I understand why. Now, what about Michigan? They said, we've already initiated our licensing process in Michigan. The regulator is still very much focused on getting most operators live on sports and casino. That has already been initiated and is in motion. We started our discussions, and depending on their position on shared liquidity, that will determine the timing of when we can launch in Michigan as well. So basically what he's saying is that they haven't even made a decision yet in Michigan regarding shared player pools. So until Michigan has decided that's okay with them, then they are not going to bother. They, they don't want to just be poker stars Michigan and then be fenced off in the state of Michigan. They, they want to enter Michigan if Michigan will allow them to share pools with other states, which makes sense because these, these little fail sites just in one state, it's not, it's not going to get it done. It's, it's going to lose money. So – they said the plan right now is to go live with what they call Poker 8, that new version of the software. But they, they have to get the regulator to certify that the software is able to go live. And that, as I said, if they fail to get Poker 8 running, they can still use their old client and just uh, run from uh, Pennsylvania by the World Series. So as, as far as branding, the question was asked... Uh, as far as branding goes, what we saw initially with the rollout in New Jersey was the All-American Poker Network was a brand that 888 was trying to push. It seems like that's lessened in recent years. I'm just wondering if that's a brand you plan to revive with the new opportunities. And he said, that's a good question. I think that brand or that joint venture we had with Avenue Capital back in that day was struck in 2012, early 2013, when poker was the front runner for all U.S. regulated gaming. And that casino was just available uh, in December in, in Delaware, New Jersey. That was an anomaly, but what we expected back then for poker was to roll out much faster across the U.S. because it was less contentious than the casino. What happened in practice was poker was a lot slower to be adopted, I think mostly because a lot less operators felt that they could participate. So that trend subsided and everything reemerged on the back of PASPA, uh, the PASPA repeal in 2018. That it was the, the law that uh, the repeal of allowed sports betting to be in places other than Nevada. 
gaming in general, along with sports betting, has taken the front stage. I don't know how this guy is missing the real reasons, because poker just isn't as lucrative as casino and sports betting. So that's why operators were focusing on that, and even governments were focusing on that, and not as much poker, which kind of just rode along. He said, I don't think the All-American Poker Network is necessary necessarily the brand we would get behind. I think 88 Poker has just as much, if not more, brand equity in North America. I think it's definitely a question if we're still asking, but unless proven otherwise, I think 88 Poker is a very effective brand. So basically, it's going to either be some kind of 88 brand or WSOP, but they're saying that this uh, other brand they had going is not going to happen. Anyway, you can read the whole interview on Poker Fuse. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I will read this one other part regarding the competition, such as ACR and Bovada. Do you think offshore operators pose a threat to legal regulated online poker sites in the U.S.? And he said back, they don't pose a threat. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, right. They, They pose a tremendous threat because they're bigger. They have more games offered. Now, eventually, you may beat them. Eventually, if regulated online gaming is good and if it is widespread enough there will be much less of a market for sites like Bovada and ACR but right now there's no comparison Bovada and ACR are much better to play on than the regulated sites so of course they pose a threat he said uh, it's just whenever you venture into a state you need to acknowledge the fact that people are already playing in that state much like sports betting you have to offer them or pry them away from offshore networks from what I know today these aren't the good old days between the UIGEA and Black Friday. It's a very different landscape. I think the offshore networks are much less, much less dominant. There's no full tilt out there. There's no poker stars. We don't see the brands. There's really only a couple of them out there today, but I think they're more focused on sports betting and casino. That's not really true. <laughs> you have ACR and Bovada, which are pretty prominent. So either this guy is just saying what sounds good or he's clueless. That's still going to remain very relevant, ACR and Bovada until they spread around enough. So this is good news. It's good news that there's an interest to continue spreading poker and that uh, hopefully all these states that poker is legalized in, which I think will increase because of the sports betting thing, because of the sports betting craze where states are rapidly legalizing it, poker will be a ride-along. And I think these states are realizing that in order to be a profitable ride-along for both the government and for the sites themselves that they need to be able to share liquidity, meaning sharing player pools with other states. So I think we'll get more and more cooperation, and I think we're really going to see a boost when California eventually joins in, whatever that is. Especially if you get New York, you get California, you get Texas, that's a tremendous boost to the player pool, a tremendous boost. You're going to have a lot of the population there at that point because uh, we're talking about... A lot of people, uh, like Texas has 29 million. Uh, New York has uh, something close to that. Let's look at their population. New York state population is uh, about 20 million. And then population in California is about 40 million. So can you imagine you get these three on board? That's like 90 million people. And the whole U.S. population is like 330. So that would be a huge infusion. As I said, right, right now, all the states combined where there's legalized online poker is less than California's population. So you need to get the big states in there and you need to get a lot of these small and medium states also on board and just combining all together. 
and then we'll start to have some nice-looking poker sites. And that can be kind of a, a secondary poker boom. It'll never be like what it was before. Poker was just bigger. It was newer. It was more exciting. It was something everyone was fascinated with. Now people are kind of jaded with poker. Just the availability itself is not going to bring everyone back to the game. It's not like, oh, wow, poker. We didn't think about poker before. Wow, cool. Let's try it. Like Everybody's tried it now. So now people just have to come back to it. There, There is a generation of people that didn't really get to play because if you think about it, it hasn't been that easy to play online poker for the last 10 years. It's been almost uh, 10 years since Black Friday occurred. So people who turned 21 back then are now in their early 30s. And that is a, a decent size of the population that is now starting to accumulate money from working at their jobs and that soon enough will be approaching middle age and these will be, be these will be people who can join the game and to them it'll be kind of new so we we do have that group that didn't play before that were just too young to play before 2011 and with every passing year that group becomes bigger so we can have kind of a second poker boom i th- i think if we get enough of online poker legalized especially if it's if it's connected to sports betting in some way especially if you could use the same balance that would be great if we could combine the sports bettors and poker players, the games will be tremendous. Because, for the most part, sports bettors suck at poker. You put the average sports better at a poker table with poker players, and poker players are going to crush them. So, that would be really excellent if there was a shared player pool between all these states. And that, in addition... These people ran up their money betting sports, maybe getting lucky, maybe just depositing and betting, whatever it is, and then they go play poker. That would be a tremendous boon for professional poker players who are ready to pick these people off, who are ready to just stomp on these players who the, the, the type they used to beat back in the mid-2000s when poker was at its height, when poker was most lucrative for the good player. And I, I don't want to sound callous here. Like you hear, you, I talk about stomping on them. I talk about uh, picking them off. The truth is that if you're a poker pro, you're not going to make money for the most part from other pros in the game. Now, if you're one of the very, very top elite pros, yeah, you'll beat the other pros. But for the most part, you're going to spin your wheels against the other pros. The only way you can make a living as a poker player, including beating the rake, is by beating the lesser players. And the more recreational players in the game, the more money you're going to make. So that's something we could possibly look forward to, but it's still a while away. But this is a good step forward. Okay, so I want to talk about the Prism outlets and uh, the sale that occurred in uh, Prim, Nevada. So Prim, Nevada is... The area that many people know as State Line, but actually is not State Line, because State Line Nevada is actually by Tahoe. Here's here's the little history of State Line. We've we've talked about it before, but very briefly, this was the first place you pass into in the state of Nevada when you're driving into the Vegas area north on I-15. So if you're coming from L.A., San Diego, wherever, and you're coming up the 15. Right when you get into Nevada, that's what is prim. 
it wasn't always called Prim. It was kind of referred to as State Line for a long time. That wasn't its official name, but it was known as State Line. And they changed it to Prim because uh, they didn't want confusion with State Line Nevada, which is actually the portion of Lake Tahoe that is in Nevada. Lake Tahoe is actually a combination of South Lake Tahoe, California, and State Line Nevada. So all the casinos are actually in State Line, not Lake Tahoe. It may feel like Lake Tahoe. It'll be called Lake Tahoe. It's actually State Line. So they didn't want a confusion. So they changed its name to Prim. Prim was based upon the uh, company that owned these casinos in the area called Prima Donna. And uh, the city they called Prim, P-R-I-M-M. And along those lines, the outlet stores, which were originally called the Fashion Outlets of Las Vegas, even though these were not actually in Las Vegas. It was 40 miles south of Las Vegas, off the 15, right at the, the border between California and Nevada. They changed the name to Prism Outlets, P-R-I-Z-M, which, of course, is a misspelling of the word prism, but it's basically taking the word prim and putting a Z instead of one of the M's. These are outlet stores. I'm not a big fan of outlet stores. Outlet stores, it's uh, it's name brands, and the attraction to them that people had. Outlet stores became big in the 90s, where you would show up and you'd be able to get name brands for cheap. And the concept behind it originally was cutting out the middleman, was that you're able to buy name brands without the additional markup by department stores. So you're just taking out an entire profit margin and getting something that's a name brand for a lot cheaper. Eventually it came to be realized, well, two things. It came to be realized that you weren't getting quite the same stuff. You were getting a lot of stuff that was kind of the reject stuff, either uh, irregular stuff, the stuff that wasn't made well, stuff that wasn't perfect, so brand, yeah, products that had kind of failed. Wh- whatever it was, you were getting what people did not want to buy in the department stores. And for that reason, you thought you were getting a good deal, but in reality you were getting something that wasn't worth what you thought it was worth. That was the first problem. The second problem was that they started to also raise the prices to where you weren't getting as good of a deal. People just were assuming that they were getting a good deal because they're shopping in an outlet store when in reality they weren't. So once word got around that outlet stores equal great deal, then those brands wised up and said, okay, well, we can raise our prices because people will just assume it's a good deal because it's an outlet store, and we can also put a lot of our rejected crap over here that the department stores don't want and uh, sell those at not even very cheap prices, and people will still be dumb enough to believe they're getting a deal. In general, anything that is mass-marketed as a great deal often is not. And I don't mean like temporary sales on something that you can sometimes get good deals that way. Like, like holiday sales on things or whatever. Like we have the President's Day sales on things coming up. Some of those can actually be legitimate good deals. But I'm talking about like a, a permanent fixture, like an outlet store. Uh, you may think you're a genius by going over there and go, oh, I'm, getting, I'm getting this uh, expensive brand for so much cheaper. Ha, 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 I'm so smart. No. There's a reason for everything. It, it's not as simple as like, oh, you're just cutting out uh, department store overhead. It's not that simple for the reasons I stated. And you may be getting rolled. You may be getting a much worse deal than you think. In general, you're going to get good deals by doing the research yourself, by being a smart shopper yourself, by by going off the beaten path, by figuring out a way to get 
the same thing for cheaper. That is how you do it. You don't do it by just going to a place that is promoted as being the same thing for cheaper all the time. There's always a catch to that. They can try to explain away how that works, but there's always a catch to that. And trust me, there's there's a reason I know these things. And I can tell you outlet stores are not the good deal that they purport to be and have not been for a very long time. And even at the beginning, when they were kind of a good deal, they were still not as good as you thought because, again, you get some of the reject stuff. Anyway, the fashion outlets of Las Vegas then changed to Prism Outlets was sold. So... How much was paid for the entire Prism Outlets? It's a lot of space. It's a lot of store space. How much was paid for this? $100 billion. Well, if you see the size of it, that wouldn't be surprising. $100 billion. But here's the real price that was paid for it. $1 million. Yeah. A little bit more, but $1.525 million for the entire Prism Outlets in Prim, Nevada. Now, that is crazy. I wasn't joking when I said that if if I knew about this, I would have bought it for that. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, it lost 95% of its value... In just six months. There was an appraisal in July of 2020 for $28.2 million. And uh, it, it, instead it was sold for $1.525 million. It is not clear who bought it. Now, there is somewhat of a decline in malls that have, has been accelerated by the COVID pandemic. Malls were already on their way out, and then COVID made things even worse. Right now, Prism Outlets, it's only 57.5% occupied. They do have H&M, Nike, and Williams-Sonoma there, but uh, it has been closed since March 17th, or it was closed on March 17th from COVID and then didn't reopen for another two and a half months till June 1st of 2020. Representatives from Prism Outlets would not comment on the sale. There was a loan on the property with an original balance of $73 million. At the time when this uh, loan took place in October 2012, the value of the property was was 100 times what it was just bought for, almost. $125 million it was valued at in 2012. So can you imagine this was bought for $1.5 million? Now... If you were to buy this, let's say I could have bought this had I known. Let's say I could have bought this for slightly more. I could have outbid. Remember, it was auctioned off. So let's say I could have outbid them and got it for $1.55 million. Make up that number. It was sold for $1.525. Let's say I bought it for $1.55 million. Well, that would not be the end of my expenses. I would have to run this thing probably at a loss because there's, it's one thing to own it. It's another thing to run it at a, as a profit. And it probably is losing money, which 
is the reason it was sold for so cheap. But the square footage there is 371,000 square feet. But in the long run, I have to think there's value. Because if you can buy it that cheap, then you don't have any kind of land expense at that point. You, you can own the whole property outright. You don't have to take loans against the purchase of the property, of the physical buildings. It's basically just upkeep at that point. It's upkeep and, uh, and staffing to manage the whole thing. And that's not nothing. But, you know, you, you, I'm not even kidding. I could have gotten together with a few guys and we could have bought into this thing and agreed we're probably going to take a loss for some time until this gets going again and try to run it as cheaply as we can and agree we're going to all split the expenses. And I have to imagine with 371,000 square feet that this thing could turn a profit if you own the property outright. Especially if you're just pretty uh, conservative with the money you spend on it. You you don't get to... You, you don't get big eyes about the whole thing and believe this is going to be a, a tremendous player in the game again, but more like you're providing the outlet space and you know you'll have some stores that are going to want to be there and that uh, you'll get rent and as long as the rent is greater than your expenses, then it's pretty much free money and that you can probably bring the expenses down fairly low especially if you want to close off a wing of it or something that there just isn't interest to fill up the stores. You also you could you could rent some space out at lower prices to entice more retailers to show up there. Now, it's not that simple because then that can piss off existing tenants who are going to want a reduction as well. So you may not want to do that. It's not as simple as you think, but you pick up something like this with 371,000 square feet and it's a known outlet center that has been there for a long time already with a few major anchor stores over there that people want to shop at. That's that's worth something. You just got to be smart how you run it. So I'm not kidding. If I knew it was going to sell for that, I would have really looked into it and looked into maybe going in with a few people running this thing and probably turning it profitable within a short time, especially when COVID's over. So that is pretty amazing that that massive thing, can you imagine how much it costs to build that thing? 371,000 square feet. It was valued at 125 million nine years ago. And now 1.525 million. It's not like it was just an earthquake there or something. Like it's, it's not like it got decimated. It's not like it burnt down in a fire. You're not just buying the land. You're getting a, a functional outlet store, uh, outlet center of 371,000 square feet. With running this sort of thing, a lot of it is what your goal is when you're running it. You can put a lot of money into it, and you can put a little money into it as far as ongoing maintenance. And if you just take the whole approach of we're just going to sustain it. We're just going to keep expenses to the minimum. We're not going to try to grow. We're not going to try to swing for the fences. We just want to operate at a 
profit and do what we have to do. Now that the whole thing degraded into a shithole or into a maintenance nightmare, but just to uh, do what's necessary and not much above that. And maybe even uh, lower rents down somewhat to get it full again. So there's really a lot that can be done if you get that sort of thing outright for that type of price, which is almost free, given the size of this thing. Pretty amazing. I would have never guessed it would go for that. These outlet stores actually got in the news in, uh, I think it was the late 2000s, because of a high-profile poker murder. Ernie Shearer Jr. killed his parents and is currently sitting in prison because uh, he... Uh, actually, it was Ernie Shearer III. Jr. was murdered. Jr. was his dad. But he killed his mom and dad, who basically wouldn't give him any more money to play poker. And he was broke, and he wanted the inheritance. And Ernie Shearer drove from Vegas to Northern California and murdered them. And he's currently in prison for that crime. He was convicted of that crime. I've played with Ernie Shearer before. This was profiled on Dateline and other uh, TV shows that covered this interesting case where the outlet stores, the fashion outlet stores in Prim had to do with this was that that was a big part in busting him. Ernie was under suspicion for having done it, but without proof, they weren't going to be able to do anything to him. However, they found a baseball bat at the murder scene, and they also found that uh, there was a tag that had been ripped off the baseball bat that was uh, Nike, and they figured out that the murderer bought the baseball bat at a Nike store. They were able to figure out that Ernie Shearer stopped in Prim on the way from Las Vegas to his parents' home in Northern California and stopped at an outlet, a Nike outlet store there to buy a uh, the baseball bat and the same size of shoes that made uh, the same size and type of shoes that made bloody footprints at the crime scene. Because uh, this was done to throw off police, because I think he wore size 9 shoes, and like size 12 or 13 shoes made bloody footprints at the scene. And of course, he was hoping they would analyze that and say, well, these murders must have been someone been done by somebody who wears uh, size 12 shoes, and then they check his shoes and say he wears only size 9, and clearly he doesn't wear shoes that are that big, so it wasn't him. So that's that's what he was hoping would happen. So... Uh, instead, this backfired because they found that someone made a cash purchase that, uh, like, it would match the timing perfectly of when he would have been in Prim from when he left Las Vegas, and that someone had made a cash purchase of that same type of baseball bat and that same type and size of shoes. And they found that he had used this credit card in Prim at a Chevron station. So while he did not use the credit card uh, to buy this uh, bat and the shoes, that he used the credit card uh, while he was in Prim 
and then they saw like minutes later someone made these this anonymous cash purchase at the Nike store, and obviously that was uh, pretty strong circumstantial evidence. So between that and kind of a grainy picture of his car driving into the complex, they were able to convict him, and he is currently in prison for having murdered his parents. Pretty ugly. And here is somebody who I know would never murder his parents, and in fact uh, spends a lot of time with his father. Brandon Drexel Gerson, hello. Free Ernie Sherber. Well, you can you can start a campaign for that. Listen, speaking of, uh, is this the, are we on the air? Is this the fraud show? The it is. One? It is. Did you see that the the very mall that you speak of uh, was in the news the other day? That's what. That's why we're talking about this about the one point five million. About the sale. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have gone in with people. I would have said, "Hey, Brandon, how, how do you want to? How can a mall go for how? How can a big mall like that go for a million dollars? I wasn't kidding. I said that if I knew about this, I would have participated in the auction process and I would have asked people to go along with me as far as the expenses in the upcoming years and just run this at a very like cheap way to where it's it's pretty much guaranteed to turn a profit. Just uh try you could to have sus- got that uh that Ben Samacon involved. He likes throwing money around. Oh yeah, it. yeah. I would have offered it to him. I would have offered it to, to whoever I thought uh would have been interested in, in this. I mean for one point five million and then uh, it really has tremendous potential if you want to just really Focus on keeping expenses down. If you yeah, but why the, did nobody bid higher than that? I don't it know. Make sense. I don't know. It was just twenty something million, I think, like six months ago. Well, was, that was the appraisal. That was yeah, the appraisal. But yeah, that's it. Doesn't make any sense. It, I, I don't know if the, it was one of these auction situations where just nobody was paying attention and they caught they, they kind of caught everybody else napping and just got it for that cheap. I don't know. Maybe it's some shenanigans thing that uh, I'm not understanding. But that seems like something like uh, I don't know, no, ten, fifteen years ago, C Money would do. He would just write on the internet, I just bought Prim, SFO, you know? Like, like you know what I mean? Something kind of like that. That, that. It would be pretty cool to just say, hey, you know those outlets at uh, Prim? They go, yeah. I go, yeah, that's mine. I own it now. Yeah. They go, what? I go, no, I really do. It's mine now. And what do you think a big anchor store like Nike pays in rent there? I, I don't know. I was wondering that. And they have a few anchor stores. I was wondering, like, like they, they must be – since it's 57.5% full and since they have some anchor stores and they've got to take in a lot of money between all that, like can't you – if you're not paying any money for a mortgage for the property, if you just own the whole thing outright, can't you make a profit? Like I would think so. You would think so. I've been there once in, in 20 years of living out here, 19 years, once, and I used to drive more than you back and forth to California. Uh, I think I've, I've been there once in, in the actual mall. I bought, I bought a pair of sunglasses. That is, that, all is, they ever that is one more before. time that I've been there. I've never been yeah, to that. Once. I just, I'm just not an outlet mall person. I explained a little bit before that I just I, – I think it's like a fake good deal, and it, it's just something that doesn't interest me. So I, Why do you think it's a fake good deal? Well, without repeating the whole thing I just said before you called in, uh, I, I think it's something that is – first of all, they – sell a lot of crap there that they don't actually want to sell to department stores or other merchants, things that are kind of reject mm-hmm. items or, or irregular items or th- things that had some kind of problem. And also they've raised the prices over the years to come closer to what they really sell for anyway because everyone has the impression that it, that it's a good deal there and they don't – they count on people aren't Okay, so check. let me ask you this then. So you tell me because there's a madness or method to my madness here why I'm asking uh, – uh, Back in the early fall of this year, so or last year, like I don't know, September maybe, October of 2020, I wanted to get a couple of winter uh, accessories from North Face. You familiar with North Face? Yes. You know, it's a, yes. The, yeah. Okay. 
So I'm looking online and I, I didn't, I think I own like two things from North Face, but I had bought them at Macy's. So I'd never bought directly from North Face. So I go to the website and I'm, you know, I want to get like a jacket, a vest and, and, you know, maybe some pants. So I look on the website and it's like, I was really astonished about how high the prices are. It was like 180, 200. I mean, it was, it was like 200 plus for some things. So while I was Googling it to look at uh, the prices, I saw that there was one outlet, one North Face premium outlet mall. It's the one that uh, – the weird one. It's the one downtown. It's like an outdoor premium mall. Do you know the one I'm talking about right by downtown? Yeah, I think so. It's been it's been there for a while. Okay, well, anyhow. So they call it – there's a North premium outlet mall, which is that one, and then there's a South, both on the strip. Anyhow, so I ended up going there, and I got like a couple things that were on – you know, the website that were literally like a hundred, hundred twenty dollars in some cases cheaper. It was the same exact thing. You know, and so I got out of there. I think I spent like, I don't know, maybe a hundred twenty, hundred fifty bucks, which otherwise would have been closer to three. And I thought, shit, I got a really good deal. Well, okay. Kind of, so so and it's good quality. It. Like I'm wearing it now when I'm, you know, going for hikes and walks and when I go out. And so anyway, I'm like, well, so how could that be a bad deal? Well, because there could be a few reasons. First of all, there could be some kind of irregularity which you may not even notice, but there's some kind of irregularity where they would not be able to carry it at a, at a regular North Face store or, or a store that, that sells North Face, uh, uh, like a, something they distribute to. Uh, second is it could be something that just wasn't popular, something that was kind of a design that was kind of a failure that wasn't selling well anywhere and kept getting returned. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different – Or it could just be that I did get a good deal. There's always a reason for this. They're not they're not going to give this away for much cheaper when they could sell it for a lot more elsewhere. There's always a reason for this. Now, now as far as what did you gain from this? Probably because you, whatever reason made it actually cheaper, you may not care about. So if it's slightly irregular, but you think it looks good on you and nobody will, no, will notice, fine. What do you mean slightly irregular? Sometimes like there's, there's like, like a, there's like like a, a pattern or something. Is yeah, right a pattern can be slightly wrong or or, or the, the size can be slightly off or one side can be slightly bigger than the other. Some, some things are very hard to tell sometimes. Sometimes it's easy to sell. Sometimes you can't you can't really even figure it out. Uh, and... and uh, so we're there. It's it's something where it's either they throw it in the trash or sell it through an outlet store. And sometimes you you can gain from that, and and that's and that's fine. And that if if this is something that you want, and it's something that you would have otherwise paid a lot more money for, and here you get it much cheaper, even if it's a tiny bit different, then that's a good deal for you. But but it's still not getting the exact same thing for. Uh, yeah, but if you can't tell, if it's literally like the slide of eye, it's like that. Asian woman counting the little whatever you call it on the Baccarat cards. Only one out of them, every hundred thousand people can detect them. It really doesn't make well, but you a don't difference. know. See, there, there, that's the problem. There, there could sometimes be like it could be a quality control issue that like the zipper breaks easily. It could be there's a lot of things that you you may not even be able to tell that could be a problem that they've, they've abandoned it for that Sorry, reason. So what would you do? You want to get something from the North Face? There, you go on the website and it's $180 for a jacket, and then you go to North Face and it's $80 for the same jacket, even with the knowledge that you know, but you can't see anything that, that is weird to you. Yeah, there's so a good chance I'd take a shot. Would I, you get the, would I would you get take the a shot at it. on the website or the 80 at the, the outlet mall? No, I'd probably, if I if I went there and it looked okay to me, uh, I would I would probably take a shot with it because of the tremendous price difference. I would just also know that I'm not getting the identical thing that I'm just I'm just I'm not just get outright getting a major discount. Like there, my my favorite thing as a cheap Jew is when I get the exact same thing for tremendously cheaper. Of any but of any, still may be the exact same thing. But maybe it's like you said it. They just had a overstock of inventory. It wasn't selling much. 
it can still be the same thing. Well, let, let me compare it to this. Sure. I'll compare it to this, but not as bad. Refurbished electronics. When you buy something that's refurbished, it's going to be a range from a total piece of crap. That's oh, but that's just full different. of issues. I mean, that's 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 not apples to apples. No, I know, no, no. I know, I know. There's some different, but I'm saying that there there is somewhat of a gamble where you, where you're buying something with like refurbished electronics. It range from a total piece of crap you're going to have a nightmare with, all the way up to something that functions just as well as as the I've never bought any electronics refurbished in my life. Well, you you know refurbished doesn't always mean what you think it means. Refurbished basically means uh it means it was pre-owned. It, but it what it could be as something as simple as someone buys it and makes up a flimsy excuse to return it after using it once or never even using it and or it's it just could an open be somebody box. Somebody dropped it in the toilet. I mean, you don't know right. That. You don't know, so, and, or it could be just a very right. buggy, uh, buggy uh, device that they don't really figure out what's wrong with it and just resell it. So, uh, so, so th- that's why I, I don't ever buy refurbished electronics, and I never would. But what? I, and and by the way, a little tip for everybody: you know, like at places which sell a floor model, where there's like a floor model they have out there, and eventually they sell it. Yeah, much Best cheaper. Buy does that. Yeah, but that's it's, but it's, it's it's not just the floor model. The floor model is also refurbished, so never buy that. So. This is different because electronics, there's a lot of hidden things that can go wrong. And with clothing, not as much. Clothing is mostly what you see. But it's not always what you see. Sometimes, as I said, the, the, the zipper can have issues. There, oh. there could be other problems that... I still feel like I got a good deal on my jacket. I think there's a good chance you did. But I'm just saying that it's not. It's still not the same thing. It's not. It's not the identical jacket that was for 180 probably. It's something- but you don't know that for sure. Like I said, it could very well be. They just had such a... You know, an over amount of uh, excess of stock that they couldn't get rid of it. It just wasn't popular. I mean, there are others. There are other. I'm not saying you're wrong, but you're not necessarily right either. No, you, know, you just you don't just know. know. I, I know. I, I don't know. But I'm just telling you that that's, yeah. uh, that's a possibility. So, well, I'll tell you this. I've shopped at outlet malls maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 times over the last 20 years. You know, every couple of years I'll go to Polo or and I've never had a problem. Never had the zipper fall off, anything fall <laughs> apart. You never. Well, I'm just being honest. No, I'm glad. I, I'm know, glad you've had a good experience. You know, I've gotten. Listen, I'm wearing the pajamas I'm wearing right now. Came from the Ralph Lauren Polo Outlet Mall, and I'm looking at it, and I don't think you could tell the difference, buddy. If I was well, okay, but I've got, I've got. I want to throw a devil's advocate point of view here. Mm-hmm. If if you are wearing something that, for whatever reason, the expensive name brand did not want to sell and kind of put their name on in a regular store, what's the difference between that and buying just an off-brand that isn't uh, Polo that uh, um, is also is going to be even cheaper? Like, like at what point are you, are you getting the same quality? If if it's it, it, does the name matter that much? If if there's something about it to where they're not selling no, it at the I regular like store? No, I like the reason why is these are like kind of like holiday-ish. You were like kind of red like a candy cane. I just like the color and the pattern. Okay. It wasn't I about mean, the... If you're happy with it, that's great. Like, then that's fine. I'm just yeah. Saying. No, I'm not a big like... It, it, I mean, you're right. It doesn't... You know, I have a pair of pajama bottoms from Kohl's, which I don't even know the brand. You know what I mean? So it's not... I'm not a fashion person like that. Where, and I know you're not either. Yeah. Where, you know, getting all that. But... All right. Well, I mean, that's interesting to know because I was thinking about it. Like, how could it be that? I mean, because... You're talking. Go to North Face. I don't know if you've ever looked at their prices. I mean, on the oh, website, no, I have. I, I the stuff I, is fucking nuts. No, I bought. Uh, I, I forgot what what brand it even was, but I, I, I went when I last went to go buy a ski outfit, which now is a number of years ago. But uh, I, I, I did it in Mammoth, and I, I think my 
old ski outfit got so old that I just kind of ripped apart, so I had to quickly go get a new one. So I, I had to go to one of the stores there, which is aimed at tourists, which I wasn't thrilled about. But but uh, I remember I was looking at the North Face. I got something else, but but some kind of comparable brand. I forgot what it was. And it, it's good. I, you know, I've been happy with it, and I've, I've worn it. When you've seen pictures of me skiing that I've posted occasionally, that's that's the yeah. outfit I bought. But uh, um, anyway, they... Yeah, if 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 you're happy with it, that's fine. Uh, but as I was saying before you came on, okay. Gen- so hold on. So hold on. Hold on. Let me ask you one last thing. And this is important. There is a type of cologne that I really like. I've been using it for like ten years. It's made by a company called Burberry. I'm sure you've heard of Burberry. Yeah. So there's this. I I don't even know the name of it. Like you know, there's different Burberries, but I have the box. So I just hold on to a box, and every you know, I get like four of them at a time. It lasts a year, two years. So anyhow. I go to an outlet mall, the one right on uh, the South Premium Outlet Mall in, in Vegas, and that's where I've been going. They have a, a discount, you know, perfume, cologne, whatever store there, and I've been going there, like I said, for well over ten years. The same cologne I get, I think I, they usually have a deal like two of them are like ninety dollars online from the Burberry website. One of them, okay, is close to a hundred dollars, and I'm getting two for less. What what is the cologne? Something's wrong with it. I mean, it's sealed in a box, and you know everything is the same. What what, what what's the the thing there? I don't know cologne. I, I don't know, but there's always a reason. In, what I was going to say is, in general, I mean, could it just be that people are coming in there and buying in bulk, and they just unload a lot of it? To me, I mean, that's the whole. Premise it, it, of- it can be that they that they have too much of it and need to let some go. Uh, it's not selling as well as they hoped. There's a lot of different reasons that things are are unloaded at these outlet places what what i'm saying is that in general i don't like getting any kind of deal that's just always there it's something that something that is cheaper that is that is purportedly cheaper that's just always available that just the general public and it doesn't require a lot of thinking or effort other than individual sales like during the holidays i'm always very leery of it because there's a reason it's cheaper there's a reason there's there's something about it that is making it to where it's less money, and not just because the company selling it hates money. So that's that's always well, in general the rule of thumb I use. That the less effort I have to put in to get something that's a good deal, uh, the worse deal it probably is. Well, we're gonna have to agree to disagree on this one because I think my Burberry cologne smells just as good as uh, the next guy that buys it from the website. <laughs> I don't think there's any distinguishable difference in my Burberry. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I don't. You know who we're gonna have to get. Uh, as an opinion on this, maybe we can get uh, Melissa Burr, who's actually Burberry on Twitter. She she yeah, should be the expert funny. on this one. So, so listen, let me ask you a question. Uh, did you already cover this uh, WSOP Pennsylvania, what have you? I did. You're a little bit too late. Okay, so just one quick question, and then we don't have to go into all of it. Is that is it potentially going to be pulled with Vegas as well, or not, Nevada as well? Not only no? potentially, it's, it's almost surely going to be. And oh, that's great news! They, they may, they may actually. I know it's great news for you because you have limited options there. So that's uh, it. May make WSOP less Still of a fail, be a fail site. It will be a fail site, but it'll be a little bit less of a fail site. And that they they're hoping to have it done by WSOP, so you can play WSOP events on there. How many how many citizens uh, live in uh, Pennsylvania? I'm sure you know the numbers. Um, I th- I think like thirteen million. Okay, well, that's cool. That, that would add a couple, I don't know, maybe a hundred thousand. To the pool? Yeah, 13, it is 13 nice. million. Yeah, that's nice. All right, cool. So, okay. All right, that's all I got. Okay, What's, well, uh, good, what, good. What, 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 Do we have any Vegas topics? Uh, well, we, 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 kind of, we kind of passed them here. Uh, the, uh, unfortunately, you, you called in at the wrong time. Uh, what do we have left? 
well, we we uh, we have a, a story which uh, may not sound interesting to some people, but I, I was interested in it about a a massive tax refund for uh, Dutch poker stars players that oh, uh, yeah, that they lovely. had. They had That's to, what I care <laughs> about Dutch poker. I that one. And then, and then and then some coronavirus stuff, which I think maybe you'll find some of that interesting. Jesus, slow news week, huh? Well, yeah, that's that's what happens, you know. You last, talked last, about the money maker, what have you? Yeah, we talked about the money maker. That was at the Jeez. beginning. Yeah, and we t- I talked I talked about the Polk uh, Negreanu thing to death. So we uh, wow. We're, we're, okay, we're, well then I, I, I this will be the last one I I'm going to ask because I just don't want to listen to the archives. Why why won't you apply? Is he really taking like applications for podcasts for, for two p of- for for two podcasts and the whole thing is just like an, i think an exercise in ego just to see how many people ask hey can you be a mine can you be a mine and i like he doesn't even know me he doesn't know me he knows of me he doesn't know me he's not going to choose this one this is not a major high profile uh poker podcast so so why why would i even bother asking when i know the answer that's that's what i said all right fair enough if, if, he, if he said we're going to take applications to just uh I'm going to be on a number of them, and he doesn't specify how many. I'd give it a shot. I wouldn't say it's a high chance, but I'd say maybe if he's going to appear on 10, sure. he'll choose this one as one of the 10. Well, but, listen, I guess I'm stuck talking with you about the Dutch. About the Dutch, okay. Because I, I'm hanging up for the coronavirus, buddy. I, it's no offense. You can be the Dr. Fauci of PFA, but I just – I mean it's on the news. It's every – I just – I'm over – Really? I, I, thought, I thought you would like yeah. that better than the Dutch uh, Poker Stars thing, but I never know. No, well, you know what? It's kind of a flip, buddy. It's really picked my own poison, but <laughs> – We'll go with the Dutch, what have you, and then uh, yeah, yeah, we, we'll we had a lot that. more last week because uh, I hadn't done it in two weeks because of that colonoscopy. But uh, oh, how is your uh, rectum feeling? And no, all that? no, everything's good. I, I, I feel like I did before, like they, like it never happened. All right, that's good to know. Yeah. So okay, see so here's here's what happened with with the Dutch uh, the Dutch poker stars thing, and then and then we'll do the coronavirus. And I think Brandon's going to hang up because he's sick of hearing about it. Well, listen, I hear it from the Lester Holt. I hear it. It's everywhere. <laughs> You know, do you ever listen to that Lester Holt? I find no. it very, very respectable. No, I, I have before, but I, I have a Well, but you know, do you think he's reputable? If Lester Holt tells you something, were you going to believe him for the most part? Um, or no, depends what he's saying. All right. So okay. Well, anyway. like one of the guy before, remember the, the the one guy who claimed he was under fire in Afghanistan, the, the Brian Williams. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't believe it was all he says. bullshit, and yeah. well, that killed his. Okay, right. that was that was not very point. reputable. No, so, it wasn't. A- anyway. Uh, here's what happened with the Dutch poker players. Uh, there is a, a version of Poker Stars called PokerStars.eu, which is uh, kind of one of the main versions of Poker Stars you can play on. And uh, Poker Stars EU had Dutch players playing on it, and the question was: Do they directly owe uh, income taxes? Or are they exempt from taxes if they make money on the site? It's not like the U.S. where just any income you make uh, gambling, it, it counts as just income as if it's the same for your job, and you have to pay income tax on it. Uh, in in uh, Dutch gambling law, which actually goes back to 1964, uh, poker is considered a different form of gambling. Uh, but uh, So p- pokers, poker, they have to pay – the poker players in the Netherlands – do have to pay a monthly gambling tax on winnings each month. But in 2015, the Dutch Supreme Court ruled that the poker players uh, that are the, – the sites that are established within the EU, the European Union, are exempt from taxes. So therefore, they don't have to pay it. So um, 
since uh, 2012, the Dutch players have been playing Poker Stars on Poker Stars EU. However, the Dutch tax agency said, wait a minute, Poker Stars EU, they may pretend to be an EU poker site, but they're not because they are based on the Isle of Man, which is not part of the European Union. Also, they claim that Malta is Poker Stars EU's official place of business. So uh, they said that uh, for that reason, this is not an EU poker site, and they have to pay taxes, and they did. Any Dutch poker pros who won money on PokerStars.eu had to pay taxes over that time period. They had to pay basically income tax, and I think fairly high. So uh, there is a, a continued uh, fighting over this where lower courts said one thing and uh, the Supreme Court said another. Anyway, there were a number of cases all over the court system involving this matter of whether PokerStars EU is really an EU site. And uh, these poker pros were really hoping it was ruled as being uh, EU because then they'd get their money back. Not only wouldn't they have to pay taxes going forward, but they would uh, get their money back. So, fine. Hold on. I don't have much that I'm ever going to possibly be able to offer in this kind of discussion, as I'm sure you can imagine. And this isn't a troll. Maybe you know this. I thought I remember back in the day when they were branching out to, like, you know, having to go to, you know, Poker Stars Italy, Poker Stars this, where it's all falling apart. That there was a, one country that literally the rules were that their, the customers of Poker Stars had to pay taxes, like, daily. Like, literally, like, either per session or within 24 hours, like, money was taken out. I never heard of for that. The taxes. No, I, I can't say much about that because I, I've never okay. heard about that. Uh, so. Unfortunately, I can't comment there. But this this is a little bit similar where they had to do it monthly, these Dutch players. Sure. Anyway, uh, kind of a compromise was struck by the Dutch tax agency. After it was ruled that uh, it did seem that this was considered an EU poker site, uh, and there was different courts ruling different things, but it, the, the Dutch tax agency was starting to worry that they were going to lose the whole thing when it was all said and done, and that they're going to have to kick back a shitload of money to everybody. So a settlement was offered to a group of 130 poker players, and uh, the settlement was as followed: that the settlement officially recognizes PokerStars EU to be located on uh, on Malta. And that uh, for uh, and Poker Stars at FR, which is a, the France version of Poker Stars, that for some reason Dutch players were able to play on for some time, but not anymore. Uh, that was decided that it's in uh, the Isle of Man. So, as part of the settlement, Dutch poker players will have to officially pay taxes on whatever they won on Poker Stars at FR in the past. They can't play there anymore, but when they when they played there in the past, that those taxes are still owed and they can't get them back. However. The winnings from PokerStars EU that they have paid all are getting kicked back. So millions of dollars are being sent. I'm not sure how much, but millions of dollars are being sent back from uh, the Dutch government to these poker players who pay taxes for whatever they want on uh, PokerStars right, EU. Let me ask you two questions. One of them is intelligent and one not so much. Okay. Will Lex Velda House be getting some money back in all likelihood? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he's uh, – Well, he's Dutch. I know, but is, doesn't he live in the U.S.? 
Uh, I don't think so because he plays on Poker Stars. Oh, he's, okay. he's a Poker Star pro. And he might. He might. Now, what about that Marcel Lusk, also known as that uh, dancing uh, Dutchman? I doubt he plays online. I just don't think you're wrong. Now, I I know uh, another player who who might be uh, what is this guy's name? Dutch Boyd. No, I I, I keep thinking of Dutch Boyd when I see Dutch something having to do with poker. It's like it's possible mm-hmm. to get out of my head. Is he saying about poker and Dutch? I, I immediately go to him. Oh yeah, Jorit van Hoof, who made <laughs> uh, the final table of the uh, of the main event. He's he's someone I'm sure is getting money back. Interesting. Now let me ask you real fast here. What do you think is more likely in 2021, Marcel Lusk to play online poker in Dutch and get a refund, or for him to shop at an outlet mall in Las Vegas? <laughs> a little bit more for the uh, online poker. A little bit more. I just don't see him as an online poker. I, I can't picture him like busting out a laptop and just sitting there in his underwear. So, so you think it's more? It's more likely that he plays online poker in in the Netherlands yes. and shopping at an yeah. outlet mall in Vegas? Yeah. He just, he those seem... suits he wears, you don't even know if they're off the rack or not. It's true. This this whole thing could be a big fraud that you, you think he's this dapper guy who spends a ton of money on suits. Mm-hmm. He, he may be going to outlet malls and buying irregular suits. All right. Fair That's enough. true. I I mean, I guess I guess the better question is, is he shopping at outlet malls in the Netherlands? Or or playing yeah. online poker in the Netherlands. That, that's no, that Lex Velda house. He's a he's because he's a what they call a streamer, and that's what they uh, yeah, are going after right. now apparently. Yeah. So he's he's a he's a. I mean, he was. I don't know. Maybe not now. He was last year a poker star pro, and he had like a big following. Yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd forgot about that. I for some reason I thought he was living in the U.S., but maybe he's not. I mean, I'm sure he has a residence here. Maybe he doesn't, but he's definitely. Definitely playing on Poker Stars, a thousand percent. I've seen him on the uh, on the Twitch, Twitch yeah, Twitch, Twitcher, yeah, Twitch. Yeah. Didn't yeah. he have like uh, some kind of health problem at some point? I don't know about that. Hmm. I forgot. It was like something pretty bad. Like something Recently? Like, yeah, like a few years ago. No, I don't know. Was it a heart huh. problem or something? I'm not sure. No, Google it. I don't. Yeah, I'm not uh, Googling it right it. now, but I can't find. I remember there's something I read about some kind of like kind of scary health problem he had not not like chad brown who was like destined for death in a few years but something that was pretty scary especially for his age he's yeah he's not even 40 yet hmm. well you know what you like talking about these uh eerie topics at times what about that dustin diamond huh oh yes yeah. i mean what blows my mind is you know i get all the the you know the discussion about maybe lived an unhealthy lifestyle, this, that, and the other. But how can you literally go from, like, being in Florida, hanging out, to, like, not feeling good and your body hurting you, to being dead of cancer four weeks later? Like, well, that's just some clearly he cancer. ignored it. He ignored it for a long time. And I was hearing that. I was hearing that he, he saw a lot of things wrong and just for whatever reason didn't get seen. And then only when things got really bad that he uh, – Well, how bad do they have to get? Like, if you're four weeks away from death, that's be- kind of nuts. Because you can – what can happen is you can feel like crap, but kind of just force yourself to power through it. And provided you can still, you still have enough energy to get up and and just live the day, uh, you, you can get through it. And then eventually, you're so miserable, you say, "I got to get this looked at." So, so everybody has different yeah. thresholds of what sends them to the doctor. You, you don't have cancer, just like I, I've never heard of before, where someone just finally you first notices a symptom of cancer. 
goes in and then dead four weeks later. Usually, when someone goes in for the first well, time, that's it's dead four weeks later. That's what I'm later. saying. I've never, yeah. I've never heard of such a case. No, I, I heard that there were, he was noticing things and wasn't doing anything about it. But well, who you have connections to Saved by the Bell cast? What do you mean you heard things? I, I hear you things all the time. The connections there. Look, we, we even have Harry Hollywood posting on the site who has uh, inside information about things that are not known anywhere. That's true. Have you seen right. Harry Hollywood's post? He, he'll say, like, such and such uh, show is going to be released on this date. You Google it, you see nothing about it anywhere, and then sure enough, they announce that date as the date it's coming out. Like, uh, tremendous accuracy. Go, go look. Go look at Harry Hollywood's posts. They're, they're, uh, How would I uh, – is there site. something recent you're referring to or no, just No, just, just the things that are over time here. That's, uh, just, no. I, I, I have information here. So anyway, uh, I don't know with Dustin Diamond what happened. I also wonder, like – did he just run really bad, or was there some kind of like unhealthy lifestyle that led led somewhat to this? I don't know. It, yeah, it's it. Whenever a celebrity dies early, I always suspect like what did they do to cause this? Which in some well, cases also probably his isn't mom, fair. His mom died of breast cancer, so right. So was, he was probably right. So there's probably some hereditary element to the cancer yeah. also, and uh, very sad. Regardless, yeah. Did you ever see that fail movie that that he was kind of? Partially I've never seen any movie he's been in my well, life. Well, no, th- he actually had – he wasn't in it. He actually was in charge of making it. In 2014, oh. there was a fail Lifetime movie called like The Unauthorized Story of Saved by the Bell. And it was – up no. until recently, you could find it on YouTube for free. They since took it down and now charged for it, which is funny. But I remember when that came out, the book version of it, because – you know, it was pretty salacious in the details. Cast members were, you know, doing drugs, having sex with each other, stuff like that. Um, well, I but. think it has something different because this this thing was very tame. That's what was so stupid. One of many stupid things about it. I, I saw it actually. I don't know six months ago when I was bored. I like I was pl- I was grinding online poker in the background. I just put this on. So uh, it was made in 2014, or at least released in 2014. And Dustin, it was told from the viewpoint of Dustin Diamond, though though he's not in it, and there's like a character playing him, and it's really about him in the past, not him in the present. But it was. There were parts of it that were interesting that kind of uh, I, I probably believe. Uh, there's a lot of things which were kind of uh, ridiculous. And what, what was really lame about it is there was nothing that salacious in it. There was nothing like you didn't see any of the cast members having sex or it wasn't even implied. It was kind of like said that Mark Paul Gosselar had a uh, like a almost romance with Lark Voorhees, but she was too religious to really do very much with him. <laughs> and, and then it all kind of fell, fell apart. Like, I guess that's kind of like mildly, mildly interesting to know, but it's like. Yeah, like is is that really worth putting into a plot of a movie? And then what I did believe and was portrayed in the movie was that first of all he didn't get along with with the others in the cast because he was much younger than they were, and also because he was uh, he was kind of strange. So between him just being kind of a strange guy and being a lot younger, they just felt like they had nothing in common with him. And so listen, let's go back circa I don't know two thousand seven, two thousand eight. We'll bring back an old game we used to ask. Uh, guests on the previous incarnation of the show uh we'll put you in the hot seat the game i'm referring to of course is fuck mary kill and the three women of course uh, i'll ask you daniel d is a d druff what's the middle yeah. initial in there d yeah d- daniel d druff yeah go ahead w- what you have to do in case you've forgotten the rules here you have to assign a fuck mary or kill to each one and then you have to give a pretty uh you know steadfast reasoning as to why you chose that specific adjective for the person involved. So we'll put you on the spot there uh, on the hot seat, Daniel D. Druff, and you know the, the Lark, I don't know. I keep, what's, lark how Vor- you lark Voorhees. Yeah. 
I can I know the other one, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, and then the third girl, the Jesse, what was her what's her name? Elizabeth, Elizabeth Berkeley. Okay. So you're on the hot seat. Let's go. I knew I knew that was gonna be the question. So okay. Yeah. Um This one isn't that easy. I, I the the one with fuck is the easiest one. I, I thought that uh, Elizabeth Berkeley was the best looking of the three. Really? I, I, yes, I know a lot of people oh, like. This, uh, this is really going to bring up some debate on the. On no, the I know there's debate about this. And I so, don't know. I, I think so, it's Tiffany Amber Thiessen. I know some people. It depends what. No, it depends what type you like. I, All right. I, okay. Fair enough. I like. So, uh, I, so I, I found her so the Elizabeth most attractive. Berkeley is fucked for you? Yeah, especially like like for uh, just like for for sexual reasons not about like who i'd want as a girlfriend again like this is not about mary this is about the, just the sex part uh i i found her the most sexually attractive of the three definitely mm-hmm. so that's what that's and, and you know i think she's probably not all that stable more stable than lark Voorhees, but uh, but the, as far as just who i choose to have sex with it'd be her not Wait, just be- stable as in the show or stable in real life no in real life she just kind of seems a little bit crazy to me when she was 16 no, I'm just talking about what what. Oh, you're talking about going yeah, back. Yeah, we're to going those days? back then, not now. Like we're going back to like when you were like oh. 17. What they look like, not okay. like now. With, but okay, okay. No, no. Well, I, it's funny because I was kind of thinking of their looks then and their personality now. Strangely enough, but okay. Um, I don't know why. I I, I probably shouldn't okay. be doing that. So but, that's fair. Uh, so anyway, that's that's, that's the answer there. Contentious among some listeners here. It, it probably right, will be. Enough. I'm sure there'll be some disagreement. So then, yeah. then uh, the the Mary would have to be. Uh, Tiffany Amberthees and she she uh, she, she kind of seemed more like that type, kind of seemed more like someone who uh, who who would be more stable and easier to get along with, and uh, and then I, I'd have to even I don't really have anything against her. I have to by default go to uh, process of elimination, the kill to to Lark Voorhees. And uh, well, those left wingers aren't going to like that. Maybe. They're not. It may not, but it's just it's it's really. Since yeah. I had to choose somebody, you know. It's not. It's not. I don't even like. Again, I don't have anything against her. I just uh, um, the other two were the ones I'd, I'd pick for each one of these. So I don't think anyone thinks you have anything against her. I mean, no, no, but there, how, no, well, how could you have anything? Well, against no, there's her? there's some there's some maybe that I wouldn't like for some reason. Like there's something about right. them that annoys me or bothers okay, so me. So is that again your view of it now as they're adults, or is that your view? Back when you used to yeah, watch the it's, show. Yeah, it still pretty much is, because Lark Voorhees is totally crazy now. No, okay, so what I'm asking is, if you if we went back and we had a, 19, a circa 1991, 1992 Daniel Diedroff on the same hot seat, would you, do you think, to the best of your ability and mental uh, acumen, would you pick the same girl? Yeah, I, I think so. I think okay. so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, See, I'd, have to go, I'd have to go differently. I would have gone... Uh, Fuck Tiffany Amber Thiessen, and to me it wouldn't even be a, a close second. Uh, I would have to go Mary Lark. Uh, I don't know. Say it again. The Voorhees. Yeah, and then I'd have to. I she annoyed me really. The, and then she was on the, the, the that strip movie that was just terrible. I know. I, I not as a person, her character just annoyed me. To always perfect, always straight A's, never, you know, the, I remember that one episode. No, where, but we were talking where, about the actresses. We weren't talking about the actual character. Well, I don't know who they are in real life. Well, how could I tell you that? I don't know what No, kind but, of but she's playing a, she's playing a role, though. See, I don't care if the role is annoying. It's but how would you know her. that Lark, whatever her name is, wild in real life? You know, she's never been, like, arrested. No, she's no not porn, wild. No. She's, just, she's gone kind of crazy. They've, they've well, had her on interviews. Well, she literally has mental illness, though, but that, that's... Right, right. That's, that's why I wouldn't want okay, to marry so her. Okay, so we'll see. This is the thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I should have prefaced this differently. Then I'm going on based on the show. Oh, okay. Like, See, know, I, I don't know much that. about any of these people in real life, anyhow. Okay. See, so I thought you were talking about the actors. The I, I didn't know you were talking about the fictitious characters. Yeah. Well, because I don't know enough to judge. Okay. I don't know what what maybe well, I've, I've heard maybe, stuff over the years. Well, listen, maybe maybe uh, 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 Elizabeth Berkeley has herpes all over her body. I mean, I'm just saying. No, I I, know. I, I would. You know what? I still wouldn't. I, I still. I don't know if I'd change it though, because like I. I agree that she was very annoying. I would never like the, the character that she had on the show okay. was very annoying. And I, I like if it was just sex, they just had to have sex. They're not see her again. Then that would be fine. It, I would never want sure. someone like her as a girlfriend. I found her very annoying, though not as annoying. There was a worse character on that terrible college years show that replaced her. I never her. saw that show. No, there was a, but I will tell you, though, the, 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 you know what the real wild card to all this is? If somebody throws in that, uh, I know I, I can't say her name right. Uh, Leah, what the the scientist, oh, the Leah Le, Le, Bermini, yeah, the one from the Hawaiian episode yeah. that was Zach's girlfriend. Now, she, do you remember? She was a cute little girl. Yeah, she was. Then. Yeah, I don't know if you remember the the you know, think of her. Believe it or not, she believe it or the, not, the, she she's older than me. Yeah, she, I knew she's like close to fifty, or if in her she 50s, is right? she is fifty. Yeah. Hmm. So they now, if I would have thrown her in the equation. Would that have changed any of your answers? Um, well, we're talking you, about. Hold on, to, again, preface it. We're talking about a circa 1991 thing. Yeah. Not, now, not with the Scientology and all the craziness. Well, at least you got out of it. Yeah, but I mean, like going back then, when if you were asked this question, when you know 1991, would you? What would you have? Would you have thrown her into the mix? Yeah, I'm not sure where either. She, yeah. Okay. So she was a pretty girl. Yeah, she was. Hmm. Mm. I didn't really pay much attention to her, though, until, like, uh, she was in that uh, King of Queens show. So I tried watching the college years maybe once or twice, and it was just so awful. It I was. couldn't even tell you who the characters are. No, no, I, like, I, I gave up on it, too. Anyone. That, that's why I was, there, there, there was a character that pissed me off that just uh, pissed me off because it was super annoying. There, it, it was uh, this character that was uh, supposed to be Slater's new girlfriend, and she was really just... Really, so annoying. I couldn't stand watching the show, and then the show just kind of was fail anyway. It right. just the, the whole thing was an abomination. Basically, they extracted anything that was charming about the original show. And all right, and, I'm going to ask you three real quick Saved by the Bell trivia questions that I could think of right off the top of my head, going back to you know the first season or so, just to see how how much you actually remember. Obviously, no cheating. Uh, and I'd be you know, mildly impressed if you can go for three for three. All right, the first one, um, I already have a hard one, but I'm going to save that till the end. Uh, the first one, what first season, what was the city and state that the show premised to be in? I, I believe it's supposed to be Malibu. No. Oh, my God. Okay, then I'm only going to ask you the rest. That's an embarrassing answer. I thought it was Malibu. Everybody was... knows the first season oh, the first... was Good Morning, Miss Bliss. Oh, no, I know about that, which... yeah. Okay, well, that's the first season. Where oh, was I, the first season? Oh, second? I don't, I, I don't, I don't know about Good Morning, Miss Bliss. I didn't even watch that. I just know yeah, about it. It got mixed into the other ones. You couldn't not watch it. It wasn't like a different show. Like they just re- re- revamped. No, it, it was completely different. They, they, they one spawned from the other. Everyone's but... name was this. No, 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 no. You're wrong. The first season, they did a, a full season of Good Morning, Miss Bliss. Then literally the next season they revamped the whole thing. NBC revamped the whole thing. Yes, kept I know that. Half the characters, but I'm saying it's the same. It's not like a different series. It's like I don't know what you'd want to call it. Okay, but they Anyhow. didn't. They didn't rerun it, so I never got to see it. 
Okay, well, it was set in Bloomington, Indiana. Okay, well, I didn't know that. I, see, I didn't see that. Okay. I, I never watched that season. Okay, and then that's going to kind of screw up my questions because I was going to ask you if you knew the two main cast members that got booted, but you wouldn't. You, I assume you wouldn't even know that either. No, I probably okay. knew it one time, but I don't remember now. I'll ask you an easy one. I'm sure you've, you've seen this just because it's been on the news now, and this is the last question. Who was Screech's first, and to my knowledge, I think only, love interest on Saved by the Bell? It was this character that like uh, Tori Spelling played. Yes, it was. Okay, very. I, 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 wasn't her name Tori also? Violet. Oh, Violet. That's right. And I know that because she literally just wrote something. It was on like all the news sites after he died. Like in like would even be like third person pretending it was her. Character. Oh, that's right. That's right. Like, there, there was there was a Tori. The confusing. There's a Tori on the show too. There was somebody else. Yeah, that's that confusing. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, anyhow, at least where I lived, they would mix in the first season with the other seasons because it wasn't like it was some separate show that, you know what I'm saying? So, like, sometimes you'd see, you know, the – I think it was, like, in the 90s it was on TBS. At least yeah, that's where I, yeah. I think I watched it. So, like, sometimes it would be Good Morning, Ms. Bliss, and you'd see that, and then sometimes it would be a regular episode. It wouldn't go in order, like, you know, like they kind of tend to do now. No, so. I, I, when I saw the reruns, it was kind of like in, uh, like on local TV. It wasn't on TBS. So that's why I didn't, I never saw the Good Morning. Yeah. Like I, but I, I'll tell you, this kind of does have a poker side to it. Uh, about, I don't know, three or four years ago, I don't even know how this happened. Uh, Mr. Belding, I know his real name. I can't think of it. Uh, Dennis Haskins. Dennis Haskins started showing up in charity poker tournaments all like around Vegas. And I met him at one of, I don't even know the connection. Somehow Karina Jet invited him to one of her anti-up for autism tournaments. And he came that they have some kind of friendship or connection through somebody. And then he started like kind of doing the whole charity poker tournament scene in Vegas. I saw him like at <laughs> Hollywood for something else. And uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of interesting. I never played with him. Like I saw him several times, shook his hand, was introduced to him, but never sat at a table with him. So uh, yeah, yeah. You know, other interesting thing here, just since it is a slow news cycle, uh, did you see the uh, very, very famous actor that died today? Yeah. I, I, in fact, the opening song had to do with that, Christopher Plummer. Yeah. It's always amazing to me because every couple of years, you know, I'll just think about it. It's just it's kind of mind-boggling that he starred in a movie that was made well before both of us were born. And he was like, you know, such a hit movie, and he was still alive like fifty years later. Well, not only that, I, think, I, I said at the beginning of the show that he didn't even play a young character in nineteen sixty four. He was right, playing exactly. Right. He That's was he was playing an older story. character in ninety in sixty four, and said he's still alive. Amazing. And he wasn't like he was a hundred years old. He was only like you know ninety. He's ninety one. Yeah. So he played a character that was older than his age was. Is the thing. So that's why. That's where the confusion came from. That, that so. I saw this thing today. I don't even know who started it, and I wrote something about this on, on Facebook under another thread. There was a thread I stumbled upon. Do you even call it a thread on Twitter, like when a bunch of people are yes. discussing something? Yes, that's what okay. yes. So I saw a thread where people were bashing him today because – do you know why? Take no, a guess. No, I, I couldn't guess. They were bashing guess. him because he was a bad father, dot, 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 in the fucking movie. <laughs> okay, and I'm just reading this. And I'm like, how do people not? He was a bad, you know. And I don't even know if he was a bad father. Like his wife had died, and you know, it was, you know, there were Nazis chasing you. But people were literally like, you know, I'm not so sad. He's dead. He like what the? He was. It was a movie. <laughs> 
But not only that, he was redeemed at the end of the movie. That uh, he was. That yeah. It just he, he just the whole point was that he was supposed to have gone into like a a shell after his wife died and 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 got yes. cold and then and then when when he met uh, the the uh, uh, Julie Andrews character that that he warmed up again. Yes, I'll tell you something. I've seen, I haven't seen that movie from start to finish in maybe 20 years. When I was a kid, I watched it or I was made to watch it or I watched it every year, usually during the holidays. Well, that's what I told, twice. that's what I said at the beginning of the show, that, that it was on every year and it was on yeah. regular TV and anyone who grew yeah. up in the 70s, 80s and 90s saw it constantly. But that would be a hard movie for me today to sit through, like from start to finish, because I saw it so many times and it's just like, you know, you know how it's all going to end and, uh, I'm not a big fan of movies where people are singing it, anyhow musicals, but uh, I don't know. I mean, could you make it through that whole movie like without literally – like if you couldn't look at your phone, you couldn't do anything but maybe take a leak, would it be pretty miserable for you to sit for three hours and th- make, make it through that movie? No food. No, no. I mean, you know, no breaks to go do this or that. Could you do it? Um, I mean like comfortably? I, I think at this point I could be. it's been a while since I've seen it. So that's mm-hmm. – I, I think I could. It's, I wouldn't want to watch every year at this point, but uh, – Back then, because there were fewer things to watch. I don't see it on anymore every year. No, it's not. Probably because it's on like licensed to Blu-ray and, and DVD and well, yeah, that, that and it's just it's just gotten so old that it's uh, it's. Gotten... I don't know if that's true though. Like every Christmas, I see It's a Wonderful Life still on, and I they they play. Well, maybe I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I just I remember. I mean, that was just like a, the, always. Was that Thanksgiving or Christmas? I want to say it was Thanksgiving. It always played. Yeah, I don't I remember just, what time of year it was. Yeah. Well, yeah, rest in peace, Christopher Plummer. Yeah. Sorry for the people that don't like him as a father because of a movie role he portrayed. That's <laughs> fucking nuts, isn't it? That's funny. Yeah. I thought there was something like maybe he wasn't a good father in real life. I didn't know they were mad about the movie character. No. Hey, okay, so listen, uh, I just thought of something that we can talk about. Yeah. It's Vegas, and it's interesting. Um, why don't you Google – well, first, let me just ask you, maybe you talked about it, but I doubt it. Did you mention a very wild event that occurred at the brand new Circa Downtown Casino just the other day? No. Okay, so right now, and you could always edit this if you want later. So I, I, I know the story, but it'd be better if you just read it because it's really outrageous. Google Circa Downtown and then go to like the news tab so you can see art. It'll be a ton of articles. This is a really, really crazy story. <laughs> I see here. Okay. Yeah. And just read it from – find find a good source. Don't find an out-of-state source. Find like – No, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here in a Las Vegas thing here. So yeah. Okay. So and just read it from start to finish. So it says, it's really uh, fascinating just because it makes no sense. Okay. So it says police arrested a naked woman after she allegedly shut off the power to a downtown Las Vegas hotel casino on Monday night. What the hell? For three hours. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Alyssa Neely, 28. I see a picture of her. It, it's not as exciting it as you might think. It ain't flattering, buddy. Uh, I was going to say, normally like a naked woman who's 28, you'd want to see a picture of her, but mm-hmm. no. I, I see the picture. I don't no. want to see I don't want to see anymore. Uh, she, she, Suffice to say, she got a little uh, junk in the trunk, too, if you know what I'm saying. That part, she's, a little, she's a big girl. I, I don't mind that part. It's just she just doesn't look attractive. she got that weird yeah. green hair. Well, it just, yeah. So, and you, she, you would always be worrying about electrical issues if she was a girl. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Read the article. It's hilarious. It says, Alyssa Neely, 28, had locked herself in the fire control room of Garage Mahal, the parking structure for Circa, and shut off power for the garage 
the police said in the report. A security officer told police that Neely was found sitting in a chair naked. She was recognized as a hotel guest who had been evicted and trespassed earlier to ira- due to erratic behavior. Security the erratic of- behavior was walking uh, on her floor back and forth, kind of like in a robo- robotic, zombie-like fashion, of course, naked. That's why she was 86 <laughs> Security explained that Neely had been walking around hotel floors naked and going into employee-only rooms. At some point, she was able to get into the fire control room, which is supposed to be secured. A maintenance worker went to the room after the power outage and found her still inside and naked. (laughs) I bet that's not what he expected as the cause. I bet he's thinking, well, I bet there was a short of some kind. Those damn rats. Yeah, a rat rat chewed the wires. He's like, what the? What? Uh, The naked woman? Why are you here? Why did you turn off the power? So what, what's confusing to me is it said slots, table games, and other parts of the casino had no electricity for three hours. Couldn't they just, like, flip a switch and turn it back on? Yeah. <laughs> I don't – like, how is it three hours with no slots? Unless she damaged it or something. But is it, well, yeah. It said she was handcuffed and the resort's maintenance director arrived to find eight – Shunt trips that control power to the hotel casino turned off and damaged. Oh, there you go. To the point that the control panel was inoperable. Police say that the power disruption started just after 10 p.m. Monday and lasted until 1.05 a.m. And that she caused $5,000 damage to the system. And she wouldn't answer officers' questions when she was arrested on suspicion of of theft of a fire prevention device. Wouldn't that be a a better charge than that, stealing a fire prevention device? I mean, yeah. How how about vandalism and uh, trespassing? Trespassing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So then she uh, appeared before whatever, whatever judge, and she was released on her own recognizance with one condition. What do you think the condition was? That uh, she wears clothes at all times. No, stay away from the circus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to do much, though. Like, she was already trespassed once, and uh, she may want to go back there. Jesus. She may so, be- that, yeah, that was like the headline, whatever, you know, big story this week or the last three or four days. Cause I don't know. It was I just fascinating because it, it made no sense. It's just kind of, I mean, obviously, like drugs or mental illness, because, like, you know, a rational person isn't going to do all those things more or less so naked. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's very strange. The Circa, of all things, the, the, the newest uh, hotel over there. I'll tell you, I was there once briefly, um, way before the rooms opened. It was before things got really, really bad. And it, it is a, it's an absolutely stunningly gorgeous casino. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I mean, you would just think that you were on the, you know, on the strip or kind of reminds me a little bit of the Borgata, New Jersey. It's just gorgeous. Like, it's it's really nice. I mean, I've lived here a long time. Casinos, for the most part, you know, or a dime a dozen. They don't press me, but it's a nice resort. I mean, it's a five-star. Like, I hope that guy knows what he's doing at uh, Derek Stevens because, you know, I mean, in terms of just, you know, being able to afford it and, and get that kind of clientele down there. Yeah, because I, your typical downtown gambler isn't going to keep the lights on in that place. You know what's funny? I would have actually been in Vegas this upcoming weekend for the Super Bowl if it uh, was not COVID. I was there last year. That was the very last thing I did. Uh, and then before pretty much uh, getting much more cautious about everything, the, in, it, on, I think January 27th, I quit going to Commerce. And then I went to a Super Bowl party that we, that weekend after that in Vegas, and then that was the very last thing I did. Then hmm. I was invited again this year. It's actually happening this year, and I said I can't go. 
that I will go away. I see all the, the poker rooms opened up like a week ago back in L.A. Is that correct? Uh, I did not I look, but it's possible. I didn't, you didn't know that? I didn't look, no. I did not yeah. look. Well, I didn't look. I just – it was on the – I didn't see it. spamming sure. me with emails, and I saw it on the news. Hmm. Well, I just – I, I know they want to really badly. And a lot of people have just this COVID fatigue. They're tired of it. They want to just go do it, even though it's uh, California. The numbers are pretty bad still, even though it, it, yeah. the virus numbers improved a lot, which we'll talk about shortly. But this, uh, well, they've been they've been on that Lester Holt tonight that he and, and then they had Fauci and other people <laughs> basically begging people not to attend Super Bowl parties uh, out of fear that it's going to in about a week massively create a massive uptick in new cases. Yeah, of all the parties and gatherings. I mean, I, so, I understand that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, when things get better and you do come down here, uh, definitely check out the Cirque and let me know what you think. I mean, yeah, I will. You know, I, I just, that's definitely a place I'm going to go and take a look at. And I, I'm hoping I'll get the vaccine sooner than uh, otherwise I'm afraid it might be. Yeah. Has your uh, mom or dad gotten it yet? They have gotten it. and they're, They finally got a, a second appointment. They haven't gotten the second dose yet, but they've got. They, it was tremendous. It was a tremendous undertaking to not only get the first appointment, but also to get a second appointment. They weren't guaranteed a second appointment. The whole thing was fail. And keep in mind, they put a lot of time every day into just hammering these sites, refreshing, 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 sure. both of them. And they're like, at least they are able to do it. They they are uh, sharp, and they have not declined yet. And uh, so it's. A lot of old people don't have this ability, and a lot of them don't have computers. So this is – they're at a big disadvantage, and there's a lot of old people who are very frustrated by this, and rightfully so. The whole thing's yep. a gigantic fail. Absolutely. So Okay, well, I'm going to get to the coronavirus stuff. You can stick around. If you want to hang up, you can hang up. I mean, it's up to you. Okay, go ahead. I won't uh, interrupt. Okay. Unless I have something uh, intelligent to say. Okay. Well, you, you can interrupt even if it's not that intelligent. But okay, we will go to the coronavirus stuff. So I have some good news finally. Some good news about the coronavirus that the numbers have declined in the U.S. after peaking on January 8th, that the numbers are going down consistently, especially in some places in the Midwest, which were hit particularly hard. Uh, California is still bad, and there are some other places which are still bad. But uh, the new case numbers are significantly improved since the peak of January 8th. In fact, it uh, looks like we're, we're getting close to being about half of the number of uh, new cases that we were seeing around then. The, the big improvement was in some of these uh, really, really terrible hotspots that had gone a while without it being bad at all places that had mostly dodged the pandemic from really hitting them hard and then got hit really, really, really terribly bad, which makes sense because it hadn't ripped through the population yet and then it spread pretty quickly. So uh, so the, the, these improvements uh, in the Midwest have brought down the numbers of new cases in the U.S. It does not appear that this is related to the vaccine because they, they're just rolling these out and, in fact, uh, Remember, new cases is not directly related to deaths. There, there's obviously a correlation, but uh, it, it depends of the age of those who are catching it. And people, the younger you are, the more reckless you're likely to be. So if you're 20 years old, you're not afraid to go out and do things. If you're 90, you are, or if you're not, you should be. So 
while most of the people dying are older, and in fact 99% of the deaths are th- over, over 35, the number of new cases have been trending younger because the younger people just are tired of locking down and getting it. But uh, we're seeing a decline, and obviously these people are not getting the vaccine for the most part. At this, they're not eligible for it unless they're like, quote, essential workers or, or healthcare workers. So the numbers going down seems to be just a natural process of the numbers declining after ripping through some populations that hadn't really been hit before. So that's good news that we seem to be seeing uh, declined numbers in these places. If you remember, uh, like the Dakotas, remember how bad it was over there? Remember the Dakotas and uh, how there was a talk that everyone's dying there? North Dakota had 61 new cases yesterday. South Dakota, 131. Wow. And this is, and now to compare it to the numbers they've had, uh, they've had, they were, uh, they had uh, 108,000, almost 109,000 in, in South Dakota, and in North Dakota, almost 100,000. So now they had 131 and 61 new cases yesterday. And, uh, North Dakota, four deaths and 10 in South Dakota. So even though these are small populations, these were two of the very worst places when they were peaking. And it was always so annoying to read about the, the politicizing and the blaming the politicians there. No, it was just these places that hadn't been hit yet. And then it did because there was a lot of people who didn't have it. So it was ripe to spread once it hit the population and uh, a lot of people got it. Then it can't spread it as easily. Then the numbers go down. This is happening everywhere. And I, I don't see why people are that surprised. So after hitting a lot of areas of the Midwest, we've seen a lot of improvement in a lot of places. But uh, there's others that still are having a lot of cases. Uh, California, Texas, Florida, not at their peaks, but still a lot of cases. Uh, and as far as new cases uh, per million population, there's some which are uh, worse than others. For example, uh North Carolina had uh, 5,500 new cases with a population of only 10.4 million. Uh, Tennessee, 2661, with a population of only 6.8 million. Uh, New Jersey, getting uh, hit a little bit again, 4228 new cases with a population of of 8.9 million. Virginia, 8.5 million population, 5,000 new cases. So uh, California, they had 13,000 new cases, but their population is almost 40 million. Texas, uh, 14,500 new cases, but the population is 29 million. So bottom line is it's improving. When we start seeing a higher percent of the population vaccinated, there's still not uh, a lot of the population that have had two doses yet. I think only like one point something percent has had two doses. How did did, uh, did your parents have any uh, side effects after the first dose? You know what? I didn't ask them, but if it was bad, they would have told me. Like even I'm not saying terrible, but like if it was something that was like yeah. uncomfortable to where it's really a problem, they would have told me. But what I've heard is that the first dose you generally that's have, the one where there's normally not any where you have like some arm yeah. pain, but that's it. And that's then, what my dad had a little bit of arm soreness, and that was it. Yeah, and then the second one, you're uh, some people feel kind of like they now, have the, uh, like a moderate version a, a for two days. There. You mentioned your parents had trouble initially getting an appointment for the second dose. What is the time period that the first dose would, I don't know, expire or not be good in your body if you don't have the second? You know what I mean? Because obviously they say you get it three to four weeks after, but say hypothetically, you know, six weeks go by or two months or three months. Does that null nullify the first dose? 
Um, there, there's a recommended interval, which is uh, uh, ideally uh, separated by 28 days, and then there's a window of uh, a number of days either way, where you can go a little bit sooner or a little bit later. Ideally, so in essence, though, if, if say hypothetically there's some people that for whatever reason can't get the second dose and too much time goes by, then they have to just start from the beginning? Well, no, that hasn't been studied yet, and that, there's a lot of controversy about this because – because of the inability for a lot of people to get the second dose, there's some fear that some won't get it until it's too late, and then they're not going to get, be as protected as they think they are, and then get COVID and die. So that's why my parents were really putting tremendous effort once they got the first one. So this is funny. Where they, where they got the first one, they were told at the time, oh, you'll get the second dose from us too. Don't worry about it. And so my parents were like, okay, good. And we'll get it in time. Oh, yeah, you will. Then a statement was made. That, oh, actually, um, we're not guaranteeing the second dose, so you may not get the second dose in time, but don't worry about it. It'll be just as effective if you get it late. <laughs> and that's not true. Like, it may be true, but it has never been studied. They have, they don't have any studies. So the guy, the, the, the idiotic mayor was just guessing at it. And my parents were really frustrated that that that, uh, that Gil Garcetti was no, it, was, it wasn't. Bomb. It wasn't city of L.A., but uh, no. they, they it was a Southern yeah. California city. But they were really frustrated with that mayor for mm-hmm. making that obnoxious statement, which he had no evidence to be making. He just throw, picking it out of his ass. So so then they went into uh, a major effort to find where they could get a second dose, and it was just by like refreshing a bunch of sites of different possible places they could get it. Uh, over and over and over again, and after many, many, many days of hours of attempts, they got it. So, uh, really crappy system. This could have done, been done so much better. And uh, that's it's not known. It is possible that maybe you get the second dose late and it'll be just as good. It is. It's also possible that this is going to give you much less efficacy and there's going to be a lot of extra people dying because of this, and that'll be unfortunate if that's the case. Something else that has not been determined yet that they're still looking into, and I'm very interested in the answer to this one, and that is, does the vaccine actually stop you from transmitting COVID, or does it just stop you from getting symptoms of it? So the reason this is so important to me is that my parents, now having gotten the first dose and on track to get the second one, that they're going to go out and do a lot more things. And I'm going to be afraid to see them because I'm going to afraid they will give it to me if it's just a symptom blocker. I'm glad that they're not, they're probably not going to get symptoms and that, that COVID is not going to be that much of a danger to them unless they're in the unlucky small percentage that isn't helped by the by the vaccine. But uh, and and also by the way, there's there's uh, now the shoe's going to be on the other foot. It's actually always been on the other foot because I've been more careful than they are. Even though even though they're more in danger than I am, I've actually been more careful than them. Well, I don't mean just for you. I just mean in general. The, you know, they'd show like a uh, back when this started, they'd show a nice young boy with a you know freckle and a you know gleaming smile visiting his grandma through the window <laughs> outside. Now it's going to be the grandma coming to see us through the window. Yeah, well, at least the, at least if the grandma gets the young, nice young boy. In fact, nothing will happen to him. But the problem is, I'm not a nice young boy. I'm I'm, I'm a not so nice older boy, and uh, and so I don't want to get it. If I was 25 years old, I wouldn't be worried about this. But I I actually am afraid to see them in, until they uh, until it's shown, and it may not be shown. This may not be the case that the vaccine also prevents transmission, and that's just not known yet. Now, there's a good chance that it does prevent or at least really reduce transmission because uh, 
It was found early in the pandemic that people who were asymptomatic seemed much less likely to transmit it than people who were pre-symptomatic. Pre-symptomatic means you're destined to get symptoms, you just don't have them yet. Asymptomatic means you're never going to get symptoms. So people who are asymptomatic, that just are never going to have symptoms, they don't seem to be transmitting it much, and people who are pre-symptomatic are the worst transmitters. They transmit it the most. There's also a, a, a belief that there's two reasons kids don't transmit it much. Number one, because they're asymptomatic usually. And number two, because they're low to the ground. I'm talking about like young kids, not like teenagers, but like Benjamin's age. They're low to the ground so they're not breathing in your face. Mm-hmm. So so uh, anyway, if it's like that, that, that asymptomatic people just aren't transmitting it or aren't doing it much, then the vaccine is going to really help with transmission. However, if that's not true, the vaccine may actually worsen transmission because everyone's going to be going out more and, and spreading it more. Right. So, so we'll have to see what happens with that. But in the meantime, like with my parents going out and doing a bunch of stuff, now I'm going to start being afraid to see them until I get vaccinated myself. And that's unfortunate, but I'm going to be really closely following this. Uh, the common cold, do, do you know when you're supposed to be staying away from people with a common cold? Not related to COVID, oh. just in general. Like, when are you contagious of the common cold? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. Okay. No. What is? It's not known for sure, but what is believed to be the case is that the common cold you are you are uh, contagious just before you show symptoms, which of course there's not you can't help because you don't know you have it yet, and while symptoms are increasing or staying the same, major symptoms are increasing or staying the same, but once your symptoms are starting to improve, then you're considered not contagious anymore. So if you have a lingering cough, a lingering congestion, you don't have to worry about getting people sick. If 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 every day you're feeling a little bit worse or if, or if it's kind of peaked and just kind of sitting there, then you're considered contagious, no matter how long it goes. It doesn't matter if it's been a week. It doesn't matter if it's been two days. If, if it seems like the symptoms, the major symptoms are either worsening or not improving, then you're considered contagious with a common cold. And yet if it's getting better, then you're not contagious. That's what is believed to be the case. Now, the common cold... Is it's a collection of different viruses that all have similar symptoms, including certain coronaviruses. So I guarantee, Brandon, you have had a coronavirus before, but it's it's been a cold. So the question is, does this behave in some ways that are similar to the common cold coronavirus? And so if, if you have a cold that uh, you're not showing symptoms, you're thought not to be contagious, provided that it's not on its way up. I'm not, I'm not talking about pre-symptomatic. I mean, if you have a cold that, let's say you had symptoms for a day or two and it gets better, then you can go out and see people. You're not going to give people that cold. So is it possibly the same with this coronavirus, with COVID-19, that if you're not destined to show symptoms because of the vaccine, that you're not going to transmit? That may be the case, and I hope that's the case. So we're, we're going to have to see. Hmm. Okay, so next uh, coronavirus topic Brandon, when you go out to casinos or anywhere else, uh, I'm sure you noticed a lot of cleaning going on, a lot of deep cleaning, a lot of sanitizing. I haven't been to a casino in about four months, but yes. Well, certain casinos I did, absolutely. The Venetian uh, slash Palazzo, yet I saw other ones such as, no offense, sorry, Caesars, where it looked like a pigsty. (laughs) That does not surprise me after spending time at the Rio. But the sanitizing, which was a good idea back when we first became aware of COVID and it was believed that it spread like the common cold does on soft surfaces. The common cold does it in the air too, but you, know, you can touch a door handle that somebody else with a cold used and, and catch 
the common cold that way. You can also catch the flu that way. But it has been found, and it, it, they're pretty certain by this at this point, that surfaces are just not transmitting the coronavirus. It, it is believed that the chance of getting the coronavirus from touching a surface that an infected person touched, it is believed the chance between zero and very low. So that it's just not really a realistic danger of getting coronavirus that way. Yet, there's still all this deep cleaning going on. There's still all the hand sanitizer being used. There's still all the deep cleaning in businesses. There's still this obsession with cleaning. Like, people just don't want to accept just because it... It's just probably the perception to make people the illusion of safety? Yes, it's the illusion of safety and also just kind of what feels right, what feels good to do. As if, like, it just feels like if everything's clean, it's going to be safe. And I, I heard that BS, like, I was talking about the, the colonoscopy I had on the 22nd. Where I, fortunately, I didn't catch COVID there. I would know by now. But I, I talked about, hey, I know I'm taking a COVID risk by going here, and there's a bunch of other people here, even if the healthcare workers are vaccinated, and even if they're not transmissible. There's still a lot of other patients there at the same time as me, and I could easily catch COVID from them, and we're all kind of close together. So I knew there was a COVID risk going there. Did you have a mask on when you did that? Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because the official policy there was that you have to wear a mask uh, all the way up until when they put you out, and then I guess they put they give you oxygen from that point. But um, I I didn't like that because I felt it was going to like increase my anxiety to just have a mask on leading all the way up to the moment when I fall asleep. So uh, what what I was happy about though, I was kind of happy and unhappy at the same time. They were actually very lax about the mask. Like, I, I pulled my mask down a little bit. At first, I was kind of, like, worried when they'd come in and see that, but they didn't give a crap. They were totally, like, very lax about me having the mask on, even though they, they said I technically had to. No one chided me about it. No one said anything. I knew I didn't have COVID because I was – I've exposed myself to nothing, and I'd been sitting at home and, doing, and not seeing anybody. So I was not – I knew I was not spreading it, but they didn't know I wasn't spreading it. They didn't know what I was doing or not doing at home. So um, I knew I wasn't being an asshole by not having it on completely, but they didn't seem to care. And I was actually happy about that because I was more interested in preventing anxiety than than prevent than I knew I wasn't I wasn't transmitting. I knew that wearing the mask wasn't lowering my chance of getting it that much. So anyway, the bottom line is yes, but. They weren't enforcing it very hard. So as I was sitting there, I'm like, you know what? I, I could easily get COVID here, but it probably the chance is low. My exposure isn't that long. I'm not here that long. There aren't that many people. So I, I knew it was a lot higher than zero like it is at, at home where I heard that I don't see anybody. But I knew I was taking a chance there. Uh, but but when, when I was expressing to somebody that I knew that I knew I was taking a COVID chance, but because of the anemia that came in the October blood test, I felt it was important to get in there fast, and it, I was correct. It turned out I had four polyps, one being very big and precancerous, that uh, I that it was a, a worthy risk to take. And they said, "Oh, don't worry, you know they clean it really well." And I'm like, "No, no, see, I, I don't care about that." Oh, no, no, they they sanitize it really. Well. I said, "No, again." That's not how it transmits. I don't care how well they sanitize it. That's not that's not relevant here. And that person had a real hard time getting past that the sanitizing well and that the cleaning is not going to matter. I said, I'm worried about the other patients around here breathing. I'm worried about the other, uh, maybe the healthcare workers, if the vaccine that they got uh, isn't stopping transmission. Like, that's what I'm worried about. And that's all the sure. cleaning in the world's not going to stop that. And the person I was talking to was having such a hard time getting past that. So... The funny thing is everywhere is still cleaning. 
everywhere still cleaning. And and I think the initial reason for this was that at the end of March, there was a laboratory study that showed that the coronavirus can stay on plastic and stainless steel for days. And everyone's like, oh my God, this can sit on everything for days. So there started being this advice, you know, get your mail, but uh, you know, wear gloves and don't open it and leave the mail sitting out for two days before opening it. And and leave your groceries sitting out except for the ones that uh, are perishable and quickly put them away and try not to touch them. And so it was always like you had to wait for this, this like waiting period before touching certain things and everything was being sanitized. It was impossible to get uh, disinfectant spray like Lysol because everyone was buying it up. It's still tough to get this. So, and it's annoying because you want to clean your house and you can't even get this shit. So, anyway, this was in late March, but it's no longer late March. And after uh, a while, it was learned that surfaces are not responsible, that it's coming through the air. It's coming indoors through the air, especially in places which have heating and air conditioning systems running that uh, it, it was never fully determined why heating and air conditioners were doing it. There was a belief that maybe just they're blowing air around, so it's making the virus blow around the room more. So it's the, so the six feet away from everybody doesn't help you if the air is blowing it everywhere. Or, mm-hmm. or it also could be that it's actually sucking it in and then, and then from one part of the building and then sending it to another part. Sure. Whatever yeah. it is, uh, heating and air conditioners indoors are said to be bad news. And, of course, it's a function of time. The longer you're indoors with other people that don't live with you, the higher chance that you're going to catch COVID. It's kind of like a, kind of like a math equation. So that, that was basically determined to be what's going on. Now, yes, you can be outdoors right next to someone who's talking very loud right next to your face, and, and, and uh, that, that can get you COVID as well. So if, if you're reckless, if you're very reckless outdoors, you can catch it too. But there, there's been a lot of poor understanding. That's why it's it's so frustrating to see where businesses are shut down and not allowed to have outdoor dining, that uh, people aren't allowed to go to the beach or the parks. They should totally be allowed to do these things and just told be told what to do to stay safe. And because there's very little danger with these with these type of things and what's really dangerous is going inside where there's where there's an air conditioner or heater even with, without one. That's where people are catching it. And just because something may feel safer, you can go in the grocery store and, and they can be cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. And the truth is it's way more dangerous there than it is at the beach or, or outdoor dining. So sometimes what feels safer isn't. It, it's not about how it looks or feels. It's about how it really is. And I, I do find it funny that there's still such an obsession with cleaning to this point and that, and that the popular perception is something that cl- businesses that clean a whole lot are safe. And businesses that don't clean a lot are not safe, and it's totally not true. And and it's it's fascinating to me how people just have such a hard time getting this out of their head. Part of it is performative, as you said, where the businesses just want to make it look like they're taking it seriously, and 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 part of it is people just want to believe that what looks good is safe. What looks safe is safe. What looks unsafe isn't safe. Uh, what's interesting is that. What has really really experienced a boom was companies that sell any kind of surface disinfectant. That uh, in 2020 there was a record of 4.5 billion dollars of surface disinfectant sold in the U.S. 30 percent more than the previous year, and the only reason it wasn't more than 30 percent increase is because they just ran out. 
So if you owned anything that sold uh, surface disinfectant or cleaners, you cleaned up, no pun intended, in 2020. Uh, so, and like, uh, the, uh, the New York subway system and the, not, not just the subway system, but the train system, all, all the transportation system called the, uh, New York, uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority, the MTA, spent, uh, $484 million last year in cleaning and sanitation, which was probably unnecessary. Now, I'm not denying that the subway and the trains and stuff like that largely contributed to the massive problem they had in the greater New York City area in the spring of 2020. Remember how terrible it was there. Remember how many people were dying in the New York City area, which included uh, uh, New Jersey and Connecticut, because a lot of people who live in those areas work in New York. So a terrible outbreak back then. And also the death rates were higher because less was understood then about how you treat COVID and prevent death. Uh, you still can't prevent death a lot of times if it's going to de- be destined to happen, but there were some things that have been learned since then on uh, procedures to do uh, for patients that are in trouble that uh, you can prevent them from dying. So uh, one of the big problems then was the spread that was happening on uh, mass transit in New York. But the funny thing was the solution was not shut down mass transit or, or really decrease the number of people in the mass transit. It was to clean, which did nothing. And they, they were doing this throughout 2020. Interestingly enough, the CDC still directs people to, quote, frequently dis- disinfect surfaces and objects touched by multiple people. And they claim it's, quote, important, even though experts say it is not. It's not bad to do. It doesn't hurt anything. But the lack of doing so is not likely to give you COVID. So the the reason I'm bringing this up is not only is it important with COVID to know where the danger is, it's also important to know where the danger isn't. Because you can be very, very diligent and vigilant for days or weeks, but once it becomes a year, you start to let your guard down. You start to say, you know, I can't stand this anymore. I've got to do some things. I've got to take some chances. You know, I'm actually the opposite. I've gotten more vigilant because I feel like I've gone this long and I'm okay that now I just, it would be a shame to well, I do too, right. Well, we f- we feel the same way. I, exactly I'm what I feel. I'm not committed now to use a cliched uh, poker term there. <laughs> yes. In fact, I use I that term. I was going out more before than I am now. Like, I'm, I'm barely, I mean, I, the only thing different between you and me is I do go to do my own shopping because I can't let these people touch my, I have to have my fresh fruit and, and meats and I, you know, sorry, I can't. Uh, no, I agree it's fail. I, I, I hate having people pick out I can't have people picking out, you know, steak, shrimp. You know, mangoes, cantaloupe, things like that. I just can't. I just wouldn't even eat it then. No, I, 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 I gave can't. up on getting steak for that reason because I got tired of that. But uh, I because I, they don't care. No, I don't, they of course they don't care. And then you also get things that are expiring soon. The whole thing's uh, very frustrating. Uh, like I, I'll, I'll get a milk that's expiring tomorrow, <laughs> and it's it's very tilting. But uh, I've never gotten that. But Jesus, that that would be terrible. Yeah, no, I've I've had a lot of like tons of fail with a uh, online grocery shopping, but. Anyway, I, I do have the same feeling as you that after all the effort I put in to ruin it at this point, so close to the vaccine would be really, really frustrating. Even if, even if I don't have any terrible effects from COVID, even if it's just I'm really sick for two weeks and then get better and there's no damage. Like if I have like a so massive, then the whole thing's been a waste. Yeah, the whole all the right all the time I put into this has been a waste. 
Yeah. So I, I feel the exact same way. Uh, and, and I was even. You could have done just been Anna Kate going to rallies, not wearing a mask. Yeah, right. I was, I was also talking about that involving the colonoscopy that I said I did have to consider that. I was, cons- I was thinking at one point, maybe I should just put it off because I feel pot committed to this and I, I don't want to catch it at this point. And it was, it was only because of that anemia blood test that pushed me over the edge to do it. That was the only reason I did it instead of waiting. So, uh, yeah, I feel like, but a lot of other people feel differently. A lot of other people are just sick of it and are starting to say, well, okay, let me reintroduce some things and I'll just be careful. And they just don't understand what careful means. They just think careful means, yeah. uh, uh, I'll wear a mask when I go out and, and I'll make sure everything is clean and, and I, and I, I bring hand sanitizer everywhere. And I go, no, that's, that's, that's like March 2020 thinking. It's not, it's not correct. It's like the people who tell me, um, they, they see me salting something and go, hey, don't you have high blood pressure? It, it, that's probably how you got it. I go, no, that's not how. I got it because my parents have it. And salting or not salting, it's not going to make a difference. It's going to be whether I take meds or don't take meds. So uh, it just sometimes what people think is, is – uh, what, what people think is the solution and feels like the solution is not the solution. So in order to have less COVID fatigue and, and focus on what really is important as far as prevention – you need to know what really is the danger and, and then make your decision from there and not just what feels like is protecting you. So anyway, mm-hmm. let's move on to the next thing here. The final. All right, thing- listen, hold on, hold on, hold the line here. How, how many more COVID related? Th- I'm not rushing. We have one. Show. How many, how many more do you have left? One. Okay. And then after that was the show over. Yep. You can talk okay. about what you so want. So then let's just do what they call maybe in a, in a Broadway play called a interlude or a little recess. Uh, before we get to the last one, if you don't mind, I ain't trying to come in here and, and, you know, take over the show. Would you mind if we had maybe a 15 minute interlude, uh, and discuss some sports? Well, actually, I, I, I'll tell you why I'd prefer to wait on that because this is oh, a short, it's a sh- no, it's a short topic. That's why. How long? Uh, it's a few minutes. This is just about, uh, oh, okay. it's, it's, it's something right, called. Let's do that and then we'll round. I'll okay. stick around and I'm going to go, uh, I'm gonna go take a little recess myself then for a second and okay. you do your short topic and we'll we'll wrap it up with okay. some uh some sports talk there. Very good. Your Dodgers uh they had a big signing. Yeah, today. they did. I, teaser, I knew, I knew you'd spoiler I, alert there. I knew you'd bring it up, yes. Yeah, so okay. we'll All right, about you that. do your little corona thing and I'll I'll be right back. Okay. Very good. Okay, so I wanted to ask Brandon about a COVID tongue, if you knew what a COVID tongue is. Wait, do what you wanna ask me what? Do you know what a COVID tongue is? No idea. Okay, well, that's what I'm gonna talk about. Okay. Never heard of it. All right. Be right back. So the COVID tongue, which he's not sticking around to hear about, and if he gets it, it's going to be his fault for not paying attention here. But the COVID tongue. uh, I was hoping you were gone. All right. Well, you know what? Now I'm going to walk with the phone. (laughs) He's afraid he's going to talk behind his back about the COVID tongue. The the COVID tongue is a new COVID symptom that uh, they're warning about that you need to be on the lookout for in case uh, you're getting a COVID symptom you may not realize is one. So you've probably heard by now most of the typical COVID symptoms. If you have uh, shortness of breath, if you have extreme fatigue, if you have a fever, these are signs of COVID. Of course, a huge sign of COVID is if you've lost smell and taste, especially if you otherwise never lose smell and taste. Like I will tell you in my, my life, I have never lost my taste. I've always had a sense of taste. So if I woke up one day and I could not taste anything, I would say, 
Oh, he puts the toilet on. I, I would say 99%. Sorry, I meant to mute it. Well, listen, I tried to discreetly go to the restroom to take a leak, and you're talking about the COVID tongue. Then I hear, well, Brandon's not going to know about no COVID tongue. So you kind of, you know, be honest here. You kind of, you know, did that one yourself there, buddy. I was trying to guilt you for walking away. Well, and I was trying to be discreet to go take a, a leak, but I, okay. it's already done. What's well, done well, done. So, so 90, so what about the COVID tongue, please? Well, what I was going to say is about, not just 99%. If, I know if I had, if I lost taste, I know 100% I have COVID. So that's a super specific uh, symptom to COVID, losing taste completely out of nowhere. Uh, but some things are less specific. Like you get a fever, that's not a good sign. It's a good chance you have COVID, but there's, it also could be for other purposes, for other reasons. So the, the COVID tongue is something they're warning people about, that if all of a sudden you get uh, strange mouth ulcers or discoloration of your tongue – or enlargement of parts of your tongue, if your tongue gets misshapen, that this is very possibly a sign of COVID, and that some people only get the COVID tongue and don't get the other symptoms, or or they'll get it combined with other symptoms. So if you start feeling fatigue and have some fever and go, hmm, I don't know, is this COVID, is it not COVID, and then you see your tongue is weird, then it's time to be very, very careful and not be around other people. So you would think that that would be a COVID tongue, if someone asked me and I didn't know, didn't Google it, I would think that that would be a symptom you would get after maybe a little cunnilingus on a female, of course, that was COVID positive. Well, you're close. I, I, I actually I knew, really? a, I knew a guy, not about COVID, but I knew a guy 30 years ago who told me a story that after he did that to a girl, that he got an ulcer on his tongue and he was very disgusted by it. And he said he knew it had to be her. That he did that, and at the time he was perfect. He never had an ulcer on his tongue before. It was really, really painful. He went to the doctor. The doctor told him he had an ulcer on his tongue, and he was like, "Have you? Do you have any idea what could have caused this?" And he was embarrassed to say what caused it. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, wow. so. The COVID tongue is one of the things that you have to watch out for. They've talked about last year, but you should also be aware uh, COVID toes. If your toes start having uh, weird discolorations to them. That uh, that this could be COVID, and uh, also like purple lesions that that are on your feet or actually your hands too. They just come out of nowhere. That could be something that uh, is a sign of COVID, and something that you may not associate with COVID. Pink eye is sometimes a, a sign of COVID. Though I will say I've had pink eye in the past, and obviously it was not COVID. I actually had pink eye in Las Vegas in 2010. Pink eye will often ride along with viruses like this. I got it uh, – it will ride along with colds sometimes. And uh, I probably had a coronavirus cold. I had a terrible cold in 2010, which actually knocked me out of the World Series for a little time. I missed the 10K uh, Limit Hold'em event that year because of the co- that cold. But uh, I got pink eye as part of it. And I actually – the pink eye – it was my worst version of pink eye I ever had. I actually woke up. With my eyes sealed shut, wouldn't it be a weird thing? You wake up and you can't open your eyes. <laughs> your eyes are actually sealed shut. I knew I was sick, but I'm like, I wake up with, what the hell? Why can't I open my eye? And I actually had to take my hand and force my eye open because like this discharge came out of my eye from the pink eye and actually sealed my eyes shut. And I go, this is not good. And then I looked in the mirror and they were all pink. And uh, so I went to some terrible like, giant ophthalmology mill of like every ophthalmologist in the city of Las Vegas was part of this 
and it was a giant ophthalmology center where I, I, I think I waited like an hour and a half to be seen past my appointment time. And then the doctor was really rude to me too. Like he goes, uh, he comes up to me, he's kind of like in a gruff voice. Hi, how are you? I go, like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. It's a kind of long wait today. So instead of him saying sorry, he says, well, what do you expect? You got a same day appointment. Be happy we saw you at all. I'm like, whoa, okay. Like I was kind of like, I just kind of offhandedly saying you kind of a long wait. Just kind of making conversation. And then he snapped at me like that. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but pink eye, it can be a COVID symptom. So watch out for all these things. If you're, especially you're seeing combined with other uh, COVID symptoms, but watch out for the COVID tongue. If your tongue starts to look irregular, even absent of any other symptoms, stay away from people. Unless, as Brandon said, you just went down on a girl who isn't very clean. Then maybe it's from a different cause. And my friend 30 years ago can tell you about that. Fortunately, I did not have that experience. I, I don't know if I ever could have done that again if I, if I got an ulcer from doing that. Like, like what, Brandon? If if you got an ulcer from from going down on a girl, could you could you go do this again, even to a different? No, girl? no, I don't think I could either. If that happened to me, mm-hmm. I, I I'm not really in contact with this guy anymore. We didn't have a falling out. We just kind of lost touch. I, I would love to ask him if this ruined that for life for him. If if 30 years later he's not doing that anymore. <laughs> but I don't know. Time time may heal all wounds, including the psychological wound of that. So that that's all I have here, Brandon. Uh, go ahead with the, with your sports questions and sports talk. Well, it's not really a sports question. It just well, we can start off with. Uh, I know this is your least favorite sport, and it still is mind boggling to me. But as I'm sure you're aware, there is a big uh, a big game coming up in less than f- about 36 hours from now. There is, and I told Do you, you I would comment. Any thoughts? Any well, I, the, the one thought I have is that it's pretty amazing how effective Tom Brady still is at this age. I, uh, like, I know quarterbacks can go a longer time than a lot of other professional athletes, but still, what, he's like 43? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I think he first started playing, what, what are you, like in 02 or something? Uh, 01. Wow. I believe. He won a national championship in 99. So it might have been 2000 he was on the Raw. He's either 2000 or 2001. Yeah. It's it's pretty it's one thing to still be in the game to but but to still be as good as he is. Let me check. At the age of 43. I mean that's that's really impressive that he's there there's two athletes that are really defying age that are, that are currently in their respective sports. Very famous. One of them is Tom Brady. The other one who is still a good deal younger but playing amazingly well for his age is LeBron James. That's another one who just is not playing like the age they are. And, 2000. You no, know, wow, 2000. Imagine that someone playing in the NFL in 2000 is is a prominent player in 2021. 2000, so this is his 21st season. <laughs> Will that be his 20 uh no, his 22nd season? Uh oh yeah, sorry, you're right. Yeah. This is his twenty second season. Yeah, yep. So that's that's what's pretty amazing. And uh, uh, when he moved over to Tampa Bay, I, I kind of thought, okay, this is kind of a failed thing just to extend his career. But he's gonna, it's gonna be, he's gonna be a shell of his former self. And I know last year it seemed like there was some decline already, and like it, it just kind of seemed like this is gonna be one of these end of the career fail. But this things. is the thing now. It's it's pretty apparent now that it wasn't as much that his career was in decline. It was more so that. 
New England just didn't surround him around the kind of players that he needed to be surrounded with to succeed. Yeah. Because this year he has playmakers around him. Um, you know, I, I, again, I know you don't follow it as much as I do, but, you know, he has a, a really good running back. He has a really good, uh, you know, handful of wide receivers. You know, he actually has two good running backs. So it, it's, it's just different. I mean, he has playmakers. He has people that can, you know, help him. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, that he didn't have that new England. He had Julian Edelman. So it's, he, uh, I'm not sure what site it was, you know, what interview it was, but it was one of the Zoom things, one of the Zoom pre-Super Bowl meetings. He, uh, this week said that he would easily consider playing until his age 48, maybe even up to 50, <laughs> if, you know, he was healthy, that he wasn't shutting the door and playing that much longer. Wow. Like for another five years, which is just insane. That is. And he's, uh, he's 43 and a half right now. He's not even just 43. He's 43 and a half. He's born in August 77. And in fact, he just turned 43 and a half on the third. Yeah. Yeah. His exact quote was that he would definitely consider playing till his age 47 or 48 season if he was still healthy. Mm. Yep. Well, uh, this is someone who, was just able to defy father time. What's amazing about this is that the human body really declines from a physical perspective as far as being able to perform physically at a high level after 40. Like, like, and it already starts after 35 significantly, but really after 40, there's a tremendous decline to where, yeah, you can, you can still be athletic. You can still play sports. You can still do a lot of very active things after 40, but as far as being having the ability to play at a very high level, that no matter who you are, for the most part, uh, you can't. It just it just goes away. It just declines, and that's why you see these professional athletes who are great. Uh, they'll be a very well, very small shell of their former selves uh, at forty. And and as I said, I know, I know quarterbacks can uh, in the nature of the position can last longer. But uh, still, past- there, was, there was some controversy a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, because he has this trainer and New England, specifically the head coach of the Patriots, basically banned this trainer because there were some things he did that were controversial from being on the team playing, treating players other than Tom Brady. But anyhow, they are a big proponent of I don't know the name of it, but it's this taking care of your body method, uh, you know, in terms of the exact fruits and, and vegetables and things you put into it, the exact fruits and vegetables you don't eat. I mean, it's a whole thing that, that Tom Brady claimed years and years ago that he believed in and him and his trainer specifically came up with this regimen to the effect where they, they've opened up, uh, you know, stores or studios or whatever you want to call it, you know, laboratories where people come in and they can pay thousands of dollars for, for you know, the same methods. And he said this ad nauseum five, six years ago that this was going to extend his playing career well, well past what we've ever seen. And everyone kind of laughed, you know, when you're 35, 36, it's, you know, but now, it, you know, as he turns almost 44, it, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, he's literally going to be the oldest and not just quarterback. He's going to be the oldest player to ever play in a Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, you know, 10 Super Bowls. That's just nuts. I remember when people thought Joe Montana's records would never be broken. And before Brady, he was regarded as, as in most parts, whether you liked him or not, as the GOAT. And now it's this is just preposterous. I mean, it's preposterous. Like yeah. 10 Super Bowls. 
like just 10. Almost half of his seasons have ended in the Super Bowl. Like it's just, it's nuts. Anyhow, there are some real crazy, sad, tragic, unexplainable news that happened today, uh, involving the uh, head coach of Kansas City, Andy Reid, his son. Did you uh, see any, see this? No, I didn't see that. So Andy Reid, he's the longtime head coach of Kansas, who prior was the very longtime head coach of Philadelphia. He had, Two sons, no daughters, and going back about 16, 15, 14 years ago, both were troubled to the point that uh, they both served prison stints for different crimes. Um, I don't know if it was the oldest or the youngest, but one of his two sons ended up dying of an overdose uh, maybe seven, eight years ago, six years ago. Um, and that was a son that had drug problems. He was in prison and got arrested in prison for smuggling drugs in his rectum into start a prison stay that he had. Anyhow, he ended up overdosing and dying. His second son, uh, got arrested for, for a couple DUIs. There was a very famous when he was, Andy Reid was the coach in Philadelphia. Uh, his son had a very infamous road rage episode where, Somebody cut him off or whatever it was, was driving too slow and he brandished a gun and, you know, started aiming it at the person and, and, you know, they found drugs on him. So he was in prison too. So it seemed by all accounts he had turned his life around to the point that in 2013, Andy Reid hired his son as a coach and it was like a low level type gig. You know, I don't think his son ever even played football, but he had worked himself up to the point where he was promoted last season, I believe, to linebackers coach. You know, a prestigious job. Like, you know, that's a real job. Um, and by all accounts, the, the defensive players that worked with him respected him. He was hardworking. So anyhow, he, he seemed to have really gotten his life back on track. He's still young. I think he's maybe mid-30s now. Anyhow, last night, it didn't say, it hasn't come out yet where he was coming from, but in all likelihood... He was coming from the Eagles training facility because it was literally uh, this accident that I'm about to describe was about a block or, or, or less or a little bit more than where the Eagles training facility was. And it was late at night, but he was on a highway and apparently another car prior had run out of gas on this highway in Kansas City. And the car that had run out of gas called a family member uh, to help them. I guess maybe they were bringing, uh, you know, some gas to pouring the, the car that ran out of gas. They were on the side of the road. Uh, no question about it. They were in the emergency lane. They were not blocking traffic. Andy Reid's son crashed into both cars. So I didn't, they didn't say, like, you know, if he swerved or how it came to be, but he hit two cars at a very fast speed on the emergency lane uh, on a highway. Uh, the first car, which was a car that uh, had run out of gas, uh, the person that was there was a person in that car, very minor injuries, no problem. The second car he hit had two children, two young children in the back seat. One was a five year old and one was a four year old. Fortunately, the five year old, um, although injured, is going to be fine. They, they just said it was superficial or minor injuries. The four year old has life threatening injuries and he's fighting for his life now. Police, uh, when they arrived, he didn't flee the scene. They smelled alcohol his name is brit like Brittany, but brit b-r-i-t and obviously same last name reed uh when police arrived brit was there he didn't leave the scene uh they detected 
a obvious smell of alcohol on his breath and he had bloodshot eyes. And then under, I guess, you know, questioning from the police, he had said that he had two or three drinks throughout the whole evening. And he also was taking a prescription uh, at the time for Adderall, which he claimed was his prescription. And there was nothing in indicating that it was an illicit drug. So in all likelihood, they'd already verified and checked and he was being prescribed it. Uh, anyhow, very, very bad. Uh, any way you look at it, very, very bad, especially, you know, factors, children involved. It overshadows the Super Bowl. It's yeah. awful all the way around. So uh, he was in not he wasn't in jail, which is really weird. I don't understand this. I'm wondering if later on something will come out that he received preferential treatment. But he was taken to a hospital for his injuries because he complained of massive stomach pain after the accident. And then I don't know if this is how it works. I've never had a DUI, but. Uh, from the hospital, a judge issued a warrant to have his blood drawn, whether he consented or not, and they took his blood. And there hasn't been anything leaked yet about what that's going to show, but I can tell you it's going to show that he was impaired. Um, there's no question about it. And then, mark my words, it's was it 3.10 right now in the morning on uh, February 6, 2021. Probably what's going to happen, or most likely what's going to happen, is that it's going to come to petition that he was drinking at the uh, stadium, which is where the practice facilities are. And it's going to cause a complete outcry, you know, amongst everybody, specifically the NFL is going to be forced now to, you know, have some policy because I guess there is none on drinking, you know, at the workplace, like, you know, in the offices at the stadium and practice facilities, so on and so forth. Uh, Cause that's likely where he was. You know, the fact this happened like a block or two away from there, uh, ben, you know, it's very bad. I mean, you know, the, the, the worst thing, obviously, that could happen is if this little four-year-old dies, you know, for both, obviously, the poor kid's family and the fact that, you know, he would likely go to prison no matter how much juice he has in that city. And, oh, his father's probably, you know, he's still alive. He's only 62. He's probably the most beloved sports figure now in the history of Kansas or maybe even the entire state because, you know, he brought them a Super Bowl last year, which they hadn't had in, you know, uh, 50 years so anyhow uh it's very very bad and obviously it's going to put a damper on on you know the festivities because this poor guy is going to be coaching trying to win a super bowl and his one remaining son is only a blood test and you know gets an indictment away from spending uh, i don't even know what what is on average what does someone spend in prison for that i have to think at least five seven years minimum you know if you killed someone oh yeah it's not yeah. So anyhow, you know, that's not a good story. I'm not, you know, it's terrible, but it's going to overshadow now for sure uh, the Super Bowl. You're going to yeah, hear about it on the broadcast. You're going to hear about it tomorrow. It's just a very uh, – and you know what? Listen, I, I'm all about people making mistakes and redeeming themselves. And, and you know, I, I was happy, you know, that this guy – you know, because I got a feel for Andy Reid. He only has two sons, and, you know, one of them committed suicide. The other one was a mess, and he got a lot of – hatred in some circles you know by being blamed for being an absentee father you know because he was coaching and you know as a head coach in philadelphia and you know that and you know his kids had drugs and guns and expensive cars and and you know also for pampering his his kids too much and anyhow the point is it it, it was a good story that i kind of followed loosely over the years this other son that was still alive this sole surviving son of redeeming himself and and you know just coming a coach and staying clean and but you know the thing is in today's world you know with with uber and lyft and uh, you know 
obviously taxis and friends and the fact that even the NFL provides for free, you know, these car ride services or the teams provide it. There's no excuse to ever get behind a wheel, you know, especially for anybody, but especially someone like that at that point in his life. And with that going on after he's both taken, you know, prescription medicine and drinking, I've never taken Adderall. So I don't know what the effects of it with alcohol would do. I'm actually going to Google it when we're done here. But there's just there's no excuse. I don't feel any sympathy. He goes to prison for 20 years. I mean, you, in today's day and age, if you don't know better at that age that you don't get behind a wheel, you know, when you've had drinks. And they said his drive, he lived 30 miles away, too, from oh. where he was. So it wasn't <laughs> like he was just – not that it make, you know, makes any difference, but he had a 30-mile drive. I mean, you just. Well, actually, it does you know, make a difference. There's a lot more exposure to this, and it's a lot harder to maintain concentration if you're in an impaired well, state. Well, right, but what I mean is, it, there's no excuse if you live a mile away to not call somebody versus if it's 30. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying, sure. And the, but this happened literally, you know, within a few moments of him driving. It, you know, it wasn't like he was, you know. But anyhow, the point is, no sympathy on my end. I mean, you just got to know better. You know, yep. like, I would never, no matter what. I'm not going to ever, you know, have more than one drink with dinner or something and, and get on the highway and drive. I just wouldn't, you know. I mean, I just got to know better. And it's so easy today. So anyhow, it's, it's it's sad because I'm hoping this kid pulls through and he's able to make a, you know, a full recovery and, and, you know, won't even remember it, you know, when he gets older. So we'll see, you know, saying my prayers for him. Um, but outside of that, forget forgetting that, it's going to be a very, very interesting Super Bowl because – you know, the, the many people are saying this is the greatest quarterback or it has the makings of the greatest quarterback matchup uh, in the history of, of the sports. Um, there's a guy, I don't know if you remember him, we talked about him or I talked about him in 2019 on the show with you. His name is, or the nickname is Moniker, is Mattress Mac. Do you know who that is? Yes, I know, but he has all these gimmicks having to do with he's a, a, a mattress store owner that he has all these gimmicks related to betting yeah. on uh, sports. So he uh, he bet, I believe it was three point three million today to win three million on Tampa, and he has a promotion with his store that I think if Tampa covers anybody that bought a mattress from this date to that date that was three thousand or more uh, will get it for free, which is why he claims he makes these bets to hedge. In case the team wins to help with the offset of the cost. And so, yeah, so he was in the news today. He made a, a real, real, real big bet. Um, someone else in Vegas, uh, you know, it's really cool that I don't know how much you follow this, but living out here now, um, with betting, sports betting becoming more mainstream and not taboo, uh, these different casinos and sports books are more inclined to talk to the press and you know they never mention names but give specific bets and and just make the public aware of what's going on so for instance someone today bet i can't remember what it was with the correct use it was i guess 525,000 at minus 105 on heads on uh, huh. the, the the coin flip which they claimed i think this was at westgate which they claimed was the biggest known bet ever on a coin flip so before the game even wins, this guy's either going to be half a million dollars richer or, or poor, which is just it's – a, it's a crazy – it's a sucker bet. I don't know why. I mean, you just want to gamble. Guy's probably worth, you know, $100 million, maybe more. Yeah, it's probably why he wants to gamble. $50 million, you know, because, you know, it's not getting any notoriety unless he wins. I guess he could publicize a ticket, you know, because they don't release his names. So – but it's very, very cool. A lot of these states now, like Colorado, um, you know, a lot of other ones, Arizona now – 
have sports betting um, where literally people can just download an app. That's what Mattress Mac did. Mattress Mac, instead of coming to Vegas like he normally does, he flew to Colorado. The article said he placed the bet. Now, so. I don't know about all these lines, but uh, I've seen some of these. I forget which states, but some of these are not doing it well. That They make the taxes so high for the – uh, yeah. the sports books that they, they can't offer, ca- they yeah. can't offer competitive lines. They have to have these yeah. 20 cent lines, 30 cent lines. Yeah. And it's just people. Uh, so, so other than rec- super recreational sports bettors who either don't know or don't care. And that's obnoxious because <clears throat> if that was me, I, w- I would be more inclined. And if anyone that's knowledgeable, they would be more inclined to just go to one of the offshore books. Right. And that's the, and that's a concern. Or, or, that- you know, that's the concern is that this is that the expansion of the sports betting all it's going to do is make it easier for uh for gamblers who don't know what they're doing public bettors who are already yep. often betting the wrong way they're going to really get yep. eaten fast by the juice and all, all the knowledgeable bettors are going to say screw this yep. and stick with the offshore books sure sure it's it's ridiculous i mean the people that don't know any better yeah you know but that's going to be in anything stock market poker you know any of it they're just gonna you know just be suckers but people that have been doing this for years that no, why would they even bet in their home state no they wouldn't I mean, I would. that's what that's why if, if it ever comes to california if, if i see these terrible lines i'm not going to bother i'm not going to get these. i can click right now on on bet online in my living room and make a bet on a sporting event anywhere around the world get it at a better line than i could in in many states and get paid faster than if i had to go to a sports book to cash out or using their app to cash out yeah. you know i could literally bet online and listen i'm not trying to be a shill for them i'm not you know i've been playing a lot of pot limit omaha on there i've been betting some sports when when i find better lines man i'll tell you this is what poker should have always been you know you cash out of there and i've cashed out since this pandemic has started maybe 10 times um so i'm not you know i have a, you know enough of a history to, to be able to speak you know a little bit of, with a little bit of authority on this I've never waited more than two minutes. Like literally, I get an email. Sometimes it's been almost instantaneous. And my money, my, you know, my BTC, of course, that's what I'm talking about, is there always within less than five minutes, which is very strange because even during peak times, it's always fast. And I, I wonder how can they process it when I've done it, you know, on other sites. And sometimes it takes, you know, I know it's sent or people send me Bitcoin. And, but anyhow, right away. And then you could, you know, obviously deposit into your checking account. You can keep it. I mean, you can have money within seconds. You literally could win, you know, a ten thousand dollar pot, and you know, if you're playing that high, and you could have the money faster than if you were at the Bellagio having to wait in a line, <laughs> you know, and fill up. Pay- well, you can. I'm, I'm being honest. It's 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 you know, this is a, it's as close to like how it used to be back in the day with Net Teller, you know, where you know, take money from Poker Stars, it goes to Net Teller, then from Net Teller, you could you know, put it on a card if you wanted instant cash, or you could just have it. You know, I think the checking account was would take you know two or three days back then, but. uh so yeah, so uh, second to lastly, we'll, we'll get to your favorite sport last. We'll talk baseball. Um, I'm still more or less kind of a soft boycott. I'll call it still on the NBA. I know you, you know, you bet it. I know you seem to do well, or at least it looks like you're doing well. You know, when I've checked up on you, so you kind of have to, um, you know, obviously watch it if you know, or monitor it if, if you're going to bet it. But I still have no interest. I, I I don't enjoy it. I think they're all obnoxious. You know, specifically LeBron James, just absolutely obnoxious. You know, yesterday him going on his rant about the All Star game, and you know, this is the thing. You know, I don't know how. What do these guys expect? I mean, just in general, like you know, they're getting paid 
phenomenal am- amounts of money, and yet they just have gripes. I mean, I, I've never even fathomed them. seeing people, so many people that are making upwards of thirty-five, forty-five million a year that just can't stop complaining. Yeah, <laughs> like, like I mean, but it, it's a, it's always it's something every other day. Yeah, like, it, it's the, just, the thing with the, the thing with the COVID fears like these are mostly people who are uh first of all of course they're in great and I get shape it, but you know what, but the whole, right i'm sorry to interrupt you but this is the thing they all could opt out no one's forcing them to play they don't have to play people opted out last year but if you're going to take 40 million dollars and then still complain and bitch like it's just it's it's and they're not much danger they're, they're they're young and of course they're in very good shape the the chance of any kind of first of all the ones under 30 the chance of any kind of Permanent damage. Forget death. Any kind of permanent damage for those under 30 is about zero. The, the ones like 30, 30, 35, slightly higher, but it's still pretty low. And then the. But I know of people literally, literally that as soon as this eviction moratorium is up, they're, they're going to be homeless. I mean, they have no yeah. outs. Yeah, like, I know. There's no way they can pay all the back rent. I have people that aren't, I know people that aren't paying bills in, in Las Vegas because, you know, they're using every penny they can to just you know, buy food. Yeah, I know and people like that too. Take care yeah. of their kids, and you know they have these. I don't know what it's like in California, but here they have a moratorium on the power companies. The power companies aren't allowed to do any disconnects uh, during COVID, so you know you don't have to pay your power bill, you don't have to pay your gas bill. Um, I'd imagine the cable companies or you know internet companies are still shutting people off, but maybe they're being more cooperative. I don't know, but I know people literally that that owe rent since you know April, May, June of last year. That no way when this moratorium's up, they're going to be able to pay it. And the point I'm making is you see these people that are complaining that are making 35, 40 million a year when there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that potentially will, you know, this is going to be a big problem, you know, when, when this moratorium's up on evictions. Like what's, like what's going to happen to all these poor people? I mean, would you get to have a million, two million, five million people homeless in our country? You know, on top of what we already Well, have no, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen is that, uh, people, these people who are just going to ditch out on the rent, They'll they'll just go somewhere else. The ones who are going to get more screwed are the landlords because they're just not going to be able to ever well, get the money. Well, I, I get I, listen, and I get that, but you also have to understand it's just there's just no fair solution to anyone. You know, the landlords, many cases that have mortgages on these properties, they're getting screwed. You know, but at, at the same time, I mean, there's no solution. You know, I'm sure some people are taking advantage of it, but I know there are a lot of people that literally can't pay the rent. Well, what I, what, actually, I, I had an idea that. Uh, they're not implementing, and I haven't heard anywhere else. But I had always thought that uh, what they should do is give some kind of uh, very generous tax break to landlords, and, and then you can even spread it over the next several years. That that as a result of uh, you know for, for for whatever they lose in rent that they get screwed, <laughs> that they get deduct deduct such and such from their taxes, um, not not just. Because they didn't get the income, I mean, actually, uh, some kind of tax reduction, some kind of tax credit they get uh, that that will counteract this, uh, and and then because the problem is, like, you don't see other industries where everybody's just able to get free things. You can't just you can't just walk into the grocery store and just just grab free things because you're you're, uh, but for some reason you can grab free rent. So for some reason landlords. Are being uh, the, the burden is placed on their shoulders to provide free free services, 
and everywhere else, every other industry is yeah, not. Yeah, but, but you, but, and I get that, but you, I mean, you can't just throw these people out on the street. Well, that's why I said the government, if the no, government says you can't throw them on the street, the government needs to take responsibility and say, okay, we're going to cover it in some way, either through tax credits or, or, or actually paying the back rent or whatever it is. They, they need to, the, the government needs to do something for, not to say the burdens on the landlords to provide social services, because no other industry is. You, you don't see any other industry that's being required to do this. So, uh, what I'm, but but anyway, separate from this. Well, I mean, okay, well, you know, kind of. I mean, the, the the power companies and and utilities have been told, at least in my state, that they can't do disconnects right now. So, you know, that, that's that's somewhat somewhat similar. Um, it's going to be a big problem. And, you know, I think it's eventually this is going to be pushed back to like September of, of, you know, this year, if not even later. But it's it's going to be a big problem. I mean, you know, th- th- you just can't have that many millions of people on the streets. And Well, well and another problem, though, for, again, for, this is a vicious cycle because once it, it's kind of like like someone who owes a lot of money in poker. Once the figure gets big enough what they owe, they just think, you know, like let, let's say they owe some guy uh, – Fifty thousand dollars. I'm talking about in poker, not not about this. But let's say some poker some poker player owes uh, one guy fifty thousand, one guy five thousand, one guy two thousand, one guy one thousand. If he if he gets some money that he's willing to use to pay back, you think he's going to take out a chunk of that fifty thousand, or he's going to say that's just so huge, there's no way I'll get it down. So I'm going to pay off the guy who owes one thousand and owe two thousand. They'll get off my back. And and the, the one fifty thousand, there's no point to to like if I get ten thousand that I, I'm going to pay out to these people. I'm not going to waste it on the guy with 50,000 still have 40,000 left and get basically sure. uh, uh, n- nothing out of it. So, so well, you I, know, a good example is someone like Eric Lindgren, you know, you know, he owes, if not millions still to, to, you know, sure, to p- poker stars alone. And if you look at his hand in mob, he hasn't played or cashed in a tournament in three years. You know, so he's probably, he probably got to that point where he realized it was so astronomical what he owes. He just gave up. He just said it's not even worth it. Yeah, so that's you know? th- so that's happening with these landlords. The problem is with with these tenants is even ones that aren't in total dire straits, but but at the same time are kind of struggling. Some these tenants, after enough months have passed, have said, "Okay, look, um, four or five months have passed. I haven't paid rent. Uh, I, I maybe could have paid it and just gotten by." But um, but I I've, I decided to use it for other things because uh, it was I still had to pay for necessities I didn't want to scrape that closely. Yeah, but, hold on, but, hold on. I I think you're you're talking in generalities though around uh, not are not about the same group of people I'm referring to. I'm talking about people that either lost their jobs or or had their hours severely reduced that can't even make it. It's not even a choice. I'm not talking about people that are. Taking advantage of no, it I'm not. I'm not talking know. about taking advantage. I'm talking about people kind of in the middle of what you're saying between taking advantage and people who are just really, really in terrible dire straits. I'm saying there's people kind of in the middle there where if they really, really lived a, lived a Spartan lifestyle and were super careful with money, they could pay oh, the rent. That, right, but that's going to be anybody. I mean, that's always the case that there are people that are. You know, I'm talking about people that literally don't have a choice. That it doesn't matter. But no, but this, this matters too. What I'm saying here is that some people who said, okay. Um, I, I like I've gotten reduced hours. I could I could pay rent and really scrape by with a Spartan lifestyle, but I'd rather not have the the, the super reduced lifestyle. And, and I'm, not, I'm not taking advantage. It's just I, I really have reduced hours. I'm not making as much money. Uh, I'm I'll just hold the rent back, and then in, you know in, in five months I'll I'll start working to pay it back. But once it gets to ten months of back rent, eleven months, twelve months, thirteen months, 
No one's going to try to pay I that think, back. I don't think it even matters. I, buddy, your perspective, I think, is a little flawed in your argument. When it gets to three months, it's done. It depends I mean, who it is. If, if, if there's someone have... who's flat broke that's never going to make money again, that's not going to make much money. They're going to work for low wages and, and even getting like 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 three thousand dollars to pay back rent is, is going to be tough. Uh, but there's others who, if it was only about three thousand to pay back rent, they might do it. But once it becomes like like a whole lot of months, it becomes where they're just going to say, "Well, it, this is too yeah. overwhelming. This is too big. When when it's time to leave, I'm just going to leave and go rent somewhere else." Sure. Even if I can totally afford to start making payments, sorry, I didn't ask for this. The, this, the pandemic happened. I lost my job. I got my hours cut. This isn't my fault. Uh, it's kind of sucks for the landlord, but whatever. They'll, they'll survive. I'm, I'm not going to pay my 11 months back rent. I'm not going to pay my 15 months back rent. I'm not going to pay even a portion of that. I just, there's no, I, I'm not going to pay a third of that. I'm just going to say, I'm washing my hands of the whole thing. Because I know there's no way I'll, I'll ever get that paid down, and I'm just going to leave and move on. And that's and that's part of the problem when you have these moratoriums, and the government has to recognize that this is going to happen, and that uh, th- that they have to help the landlords. I know that's a it's a whole different discussion, but uh, that's sure. something that I, I feel is unfair. And uh, so why while I understand that there has to be something done, not just to throw mass people on the street because they can't get work. Uh, there also has to be some consideration for the other side of what you do for them. So, and, and there's a, it's not just mortgages. There's a lot of upkeep, uh, upkeep and expenses, and there's people who are supporting themselves on their uh, on being a landlord and aren't necessarily making big money. So, uh, there's there's a lot. It's a lot more complexity to this than than a lot of people realize. But uh, anyway, let, let's get to. We got a little off topic. Let, let's let's get to the uh, the baseball topic, if you don't mind. No, sure. I was waiting for you to finish. Um, okay, so anyhow, obviously, uh, it's funny. You know, I can't even think of a more uh, terrible relationship. I mean, it's not even in sports; it's in general than the players' union, uh, baseball, and the owners in baseball. I mean, it's just—it's always been like that. It's just—it's absurd. So, anyhow, I don't know if you saw last week. Um, the owners went to the players' union and asked permission to delay the start of spring training until March. Did you see that? Yes. Okay. And then the players union came back and said no. And it wasn't going to affect the player's salary. They were still going to get paid a full, you know, salary. It was just to, I guess, hope that, you know, by start spring break or spring training in March, and the games will start to April, that hopefully more people are vaccinated. So, but anyhow, so it's not going to happen. Spring training is going to start literally in a handful of days, which is kind of incredible. It just seems like baseball just ended. Um, I guess of note, there's been you know, several things of note. I guess the first big off-season uh, acquisition was, I don't want to say his name wrong, Nelson Arenado. Is that how you pronounce it? The, the, uh, yeah, Ar- Arenado, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is he a shortstop? No, third baseman. Or third base, I knew he was, I knew he was the infielder. Was basically traded to San or San Francisco to St. Louis for peanuts. I don't know if you saw this trade, but literally, like the Major League Baseball should have stepped in and voided it. Not only is Colorado paying like fifty million of his salary, like he's paying they're paying him fifty million you know, to, to to not play for Colorado. They didn't give them one decent. St. Louis didn't give them one decent as close to surefire prospect as, as you can give. I mean, they were like second tier, even third tier prospects. Um, 
So I, I don't know. I mean, that's just it was really, really a bad trade. Um, so it's obviously in the NL Central. I think St. Louis now, you know, it's definitely going to, you know, well, be okay, a team this, on the rise. This does elevate them. This was a salary dump. This, they, they signed Arenado to a massive contract to Colorado and then Arenado was very unhappy with, uh, interestingly enough, a team that was largely responsible for this trade occurring was the Dodgers, but not the way people would probably think. It's because the Dodgers were too good. The, the, he was so frustrated watching year after year the Dodgers just stomping on the division and, and basically his team having little chance. And then the, the, they came close in, in one year, but, uh, he was he was just seeing it going the wrong direction. Too. It's not even like he thought that this is going to be their year. He was seeing that uh, this was pretty much becoming a two-team race in the NL West with the Dodgers being the favorite and the Padres becoming the second and the Rockies falling further and further from looking like they're going to be likely contenders. So he, he, he began in 2013 with the Rockies, and uh, during that entire time, the Rockies did not win the division. Uh, they made the wild card one year. But uh, they twice they, or twice, I guess. But uh, they, well, one of them was the playing game, so I don't know if you would call that the wild card. You know, the baseball yeah. playoff. Yeah, right. That one, that one game playoff. But and they but lost it, to the anyway, Dodgers in that. Yeah. So he was, so he was looking at this and going, okay, uh, this is going the wrong direction, and uh, he is. Let's see, he's twenty nine years old. He's gonna be thirty soon. So it's he's not old, but he baseball players tend to peak around twenty seven. And then after they pass 30, it's kind of a slow decline. So he's he's looking at this and going, if I just stay here, I'm never going to win anything while I'm still good. And uh, so he what he actually kind of wanted was to go to the Dodgers because he grew up in Southern California. And uh, the, he, that's where he wanted to play. But it just – it wasn't happening in the Dodgers. There was some talk about him go, going to the Dodgers in some way. The problem was the Rockies didn't want to send him there because they're in the same division, which used to be really taboo. They just didn't want to do it back uh, for a while, but uh, now teams have warmed up to it and do it a little bit more. But still, it, it was it's still tougher for the Rockies to do to send him to not just a rival, but a, a, a team that's been dominant for so long in, in their division. Sure. So so the Dodgers – and then the Dodgers also they, – they're still trying to decide on what to do with Justin Turner. So the Dodgers weren't sure if they wanted him and then all the money that comes with him. Also, there's, there's a concern that Arenado is one of these Colorado players who hits much better at home in the thin air than he does on the road. And some of this you can say, okay, maybe it's because just it's harder to perform on the road than at home in general. But also, obviously, the thin air – of uh, Colorado has definitely helped him. So there, there's, there has been some concern. I'm sure the Dodgers had it too. That once you send him over to uh, somewhere where half his games are not in Colorado, the numbers are going to be much lower, and he'll look much less impressive. Now, defensively, he's excellent. So he does play very, very, very good defensive third base. So there's some additional value there as well. But uh, th- this, this was there was a lot of money in this deal, and he just like at the very beginning of it, and they—that's why they gave so much money. This is really just a salary dump, and and believe it or not, this could actually—I don't know if I agree with you. From everything I read, the owner seemed committed to spending money to win, and it was Nelson that was the. Uh, it's actually Nolan, know, but you're close. The one that I'm sorry. It's Nolan, not Nelson. Or I'm sorry. I mean Nolan is the one that. Wanted this to happen. Well, I know that's what I said. He he wanted no. It was a salary right, dump once he wanted a salary out. Salary dump if they're only doing it because of players insisting he, he, he's miserable and wants out. But that's what I'm saying. I mean, the reason they're giving this money is because um, 
Well, other other teams have the concern of taking on this kind of uh, contract of for someone that has not proven yeah. that they can hit away from Coors Field at a high level. Sure. So sure. that's that's that, that's some of the reason that uh, in order it's a, it's not like taking him is uh, is a slam dunk that he's he's going to be a uh, super strong player for the next seven years. He's not going to be terrible, but uh, or or he could be. I mean, you just don't know because of the wild card of him playing at, at Coors Field. Yeah, he, you just he, don't know. But uh, so anyway, that's this definitely does help the Cardinals, and uh, the, the NL Central just is not a good division. And uh, that's the other thing that they, it's a it's a very mediocre division. And you know, I remember when the Cubs won the World Series four years ago or five years ago, and everyone just thought that this was just the beginning of a dynasty yeah. with that core. <laughs> and that's been probably the and you know they've made the playoffs I think four out of five years or maybe even five out of six, whatever it is. I think that's been the most underwhelming core, uh, you know, that I could think of of, of like you know of a core. You know what I mean? Because they, they are, you know, no, Ryan, it's, it's already, Rizzo, it's, yeah, it's already considered. Baez, I mean, they all kind of came up together, but really, really underwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really already considered uh, that they underperformed and what was expected of them when they were uh, doing really well in 2016. That it really was thought that they're going to just be this force that's going to be very hard to beat for years to come, and no, nope. or at least they'd be there every, you know, they'd be right in the thick of things every year. You know, yeah, and they haven't been bad. It's just they they they've been mediocre in, in recent years, and it's uh, and it it looked like that was still going to be the case without without moves being made, and that wasn't expected. Yeah. So yeah. A- anyway, that's that that does help the Cardinals a lot, and uh, and the uh, so the the, the big the, the there's still I still think even with that there's still really three teams, just like last year in the National League, that. That are significantly better than the others, and that's the the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Braves. Yeah, and two of them, of course, in the same division. So the Dodgers are going to sure. have a real battle with the Padres, and uh, the Dodgers move today with signing Trevor Bauer, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, that was pretty much an answer to what the Padres are trying to do to improve, because the Padres have these young players. Uh, who are improving and who who may become uh, already were excellent last year and may be, be getting better. So the Dodgers are a little worried that the Padres are just improving on their own. Plus, these players they added they added uh, Hugh Darvish and Blake Snell. That uh, the Dodgers felt they had to do something because they don't want to. They have such a good team they don't want to now finish in second and then losing the playoffs to the Padres. So they they saw what the Padres were doing with, with, to shore up their pitching. So the Dodgers added uh, – they, they got Trevor Bauer, and it was thought for quite some time now in this offseason that Trevor Bauer is going to the Mets. And then you started hearing rumblings that maybe the Dodgers could happen, but I wasn't even taking it seriously. I thought this is kind of a thing just being thrown around to get a better deal with the Mets and that he wasn't really serious about the Dodgers and that it was – but no, it was, it was the Dodgers and – that just kind of hit me out of nowhere. I woke up in the morning. That was the first thing I saw was uh, that the Dodgers had signed him. And uh, at first, I wasn't happy about it, believe it or not. The reason I wasn't happy about it until I saw the details. Now I am happy that I see the details. But before I saw the details, I had a fear that the Dodgers signed him to a long-term contract. And I'll tell you why that scared me. What a lot of people don't know about Trevor Bauer, who won the Cy Young in 2020 at 
really good year, shortened year, but you know, he's still an excellent year, 1.73 ERA. Uh, that uh, and and had that uh, had a very strong uh, 2018, the 2.21 ERA with with the Indians. What some people don't realize is that every other year of his career, which if you ignore uh, some very short stints in 12 and 13, here were his ERAs. In 2014, 4.18. In 2015, 4.55. 2016, 4.26. 2017, 4.19. 2019, 4.48. So where were the good years? It was two years, 18 and 20. That's it. He has had two years and a bunch of mediocre years, pitching since 14. Well, he also plays – hello? Yeah. I thought I lost you. He also plays in the American League, or he had played in the American League a lot. So, you know, you always can but, tack on a little bit more. No, but, but then the, he, de- he he was with the Reds in 2019 and uh, for, for part of the year, and he made 10 starts and had an ERA of 6.39. So he did even worse over there. And I, he obviously he was excellent. Right, but most the, of that was his first few starts, if I recall, were really bad, and then he just killed it afterwards. He didn't kill he got, it. He, he, he'd gotten better, but it was, uh, it, it was, looking, it was looking like he was yeah. on the improvement, and then in, in, in 20, obviously, he, he did kill it. But he's well, pitching some, is always going to be a premium in baseball. I mean, you remember those 2000 Dynasty Yankee teams, how they overpaid for, you know, older, broken-down Kevin Browns and Randy Johnsons, and, you know, just pitching is always going to be a premium. Well, I know, but but the know? thinking somewhat changed, and what, what concerned me was I didn't want the Dodgers signing someone to, like, a seven-year contract for a ton of money who – had only two good years where you're not sure what you're getting, especially because one of the bad year, one of the mediocre years is right in between those two years. If, if like the last two were excellent, I could say, okay, he figured things out. You had an excellent year, a mediocre year, an excellent year. So which is the real one? Which is the real Trevor Bauer? So, uh, am I saying it's, he's going to go back to being mediocre? No, he, he could go several years where he's excellent. Uh, I also wouldn't be shocked if he goes back to his 2019, uh, number. You don't know. Well, so, so, no offense, Andrew Feldman is a lot smarter than you. He's way smarter than me. And, you know, with the analytics that are involved in baseball today, I'm sure they've done their due diligence and whatever they've come up with has given them a pretty good, uh, you know, indication that they think that those good years are going to be what, you know, they're going to see now. Well, okay, I mean, so, so I'll, no, I'll, I'll give you my answer. I know the answer. He actually, yeah, so what they ended up actually doing. What wasn't wasn't dumb? See, I, when I first woke up and saw this, I thought, and I even criticized it on Poker Fraud Alert before, when we were talking about the Mets. I said, "Ah, oh, the Mets are gonna. This is gonna be the hard luck Mets new story. Is they signed Trevor Bauer to seven years and he's terrible." Like I, I was mocking that before I even thought there was a chance of going to the Dodgers. So when I, I wake up and with the Dodgers, like, "Oh no, what I was making fun of the Mets for." Now the Dodgers just made this possible mistake, and I'm, I'm really, I really hope this doesn't backfire. Well. When I saw the details, then I'm like, oh, okay, this is actually good. Because Andrew Feldman must have had the same concerns I did and, and must have thought, we don't want to have this contract albatross around our neck for the next seven years if he turns out that he sucks. So we, we've got to make this a shorter-term thing. So what they did is they made it a three-year deal worth about $100 million, but it is front-loaded, which is kind of unusual, where usually they're paid – little up front and, and the big money at the end. Here, he's getting about $40 million per year for the first two years, which is crazy. And then uh, about uh, $17 million 
in the final year. So what they're what the Dodgers are basically doing here is they're saying, okay, we think there's a pretty good chance that for the next two years he's going to be really good. In fact, he could be the best player, best pitcher in the National League for the next two years. So he may not be. He could go back to his 2019 form, but for everything we're seeing of him, we think there's a better chance than not that he's going to be excellent. So for for two years, we can believe that. But this is also not a pitcher with a career-long dominant history, and I could easily see things going south with him. Uh, so what we're going to do is not only are we not going to do more than three years, but we're also going to make the third year the cheapest one by far. So if he is a fail, then bailing out at that point won't hurt us uh, down the line. But we think we'll be fine. Even if he sucks right off the bat, our team is good anyway for the next two years. We don't want it. We don't want this dragging the team down in future years when we need the money to sign others. So we're going to spend it up front here. Hopefully it works out. And then the third year, uh, he's much cheaper. And and then uh, and then after that, the, the deal's over. So this is really a short-term deal for the Dodgers to still capitalize on Kershaw being effective. Uh, he kind of had a, a renaissance last year. On on, uh, on they're really capitalizing on the current team, which is an excellent team that they're adding on the best pitcher in the National League in 2020 and and saying, we're doing this to one-up the Padres or to keep ahead of the Padres. Well, but also you have to remember, he everything I read stated that he orchestrated his contract this way. So depending, he's betting, he's basically betting on himself to a degree. Uh, you know, and that it's very smart what he's doing because if he outpitches what he thinks he's, he's worth – both at the end of this year and then next year, both years he can opt out and get even more money. Yes, he does. That, he does, I was going to mention that he does have the opt out. That's that's why he agreed to this. Two years. Yes, that's why he agreed to this with the opt out. And I have to think he's probably going to opt out out of this, after the second year, no matter what, unless he's terrible. Oh, of course, or if he's injured, because what's the the third year was how much seventeen, 17 million? million yeah. So yeah. Of so course. I, I have of to think that. So so and the Dodgers see that. So I think the Dodgers. Like we've got to have an answer to the Padres adding to their pitching. We don't want to uh, commit too much here, so it's pretty much we're willing to pay, kind of overpay up front, and, and we're willing to overpay per year here because it's so important to keep this team on top because they have such yeah. a good team there. It's so important to not let the Padres beat them that they're willing to overpay for him here and 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 not hang themselves with a terrible, super long contract. So this may be a short stay, though. I will say that uh, Trevor Bauer did uh, – he does have a preference for the Dodgers. He's another one from Southern California. And, uh, in fact, the Mets were worried about this. The Mets were believing that he really wanted to come to the Dodgers and play for the Dodgers and that he was just using them. So they actually put a deadline on when he has to make a decision. And yeah. then he said, yeah, actually uh, – yeah, screw your deadline. I'm going to the Dodgers, and they're like, ah, this is what we thought we were. <laughs> that's what we were yeah. afraid of. So, anyway, I, I'm happy to see this because whatever happens here, well, they, how can you not be? Well, yeah, because they're not. They're not. They're not committing themselves to a long time, and now they have the best pitcher from the National League last year and an excellent pitcher from 2018. They, you know, they they have him, and also th- what's being overlooked is. Uh, Starting for the Dodgers in 2021, his well, salary this year, by the way, is going to be more than the entire more than the entire Pittsburgh Pirates wow. make this year. <laughs> the, the combined, it's amazing. Just that's why I hate baseball. 
the, it's not the, even fair. It's not even fair. The pitchers that people are also overlooking past Kershaw, uh, Bauer, and Walker Bueller is Julio Urias, who is a hero in the postseason of 2020, that he's going to be used as a starter this year. And if he has a very effective season, can you imagine that foursome? Going, it's going what to about be... that guy that was sleeping in the in the Key West airport? Whatever happened to him? <laughs> Remember the Dodger? Yeah, that was yeah and Andrew Tolls. I, I don't think he's ever coming back. Uh, I think he's just he's kind well, of. Well, at done. least he picked a nice tropical airport to sleep in. Yeah, well, he he went full circle. He was like out of baseball and working at a grocery store, and then then the Dodgers picked him up, and he actually rapidly rose through the system, and uh, and like within a year and a half, he was playing Major League Baseball and actually looking like he had potential to be a starter one day. And then got injured, yeah. and then everything's in a spiral, and then he ends up sleeping in the... Speaking of which, uh, if anyone that listens to the, the fraud show is interested, I found it really, really unbelievable. Uh, about maybe a week, two weeks ago, there was an article made national news. There was a guy that was arrested at the Chicago airport who had been living there. And not only living there, but he was sleeping every single night in a restricted area of the <laughs> airport for about four and a half, five months. And he never left, never left the premises. He literally lived there for five months. And in all fairness, he did somehow forge a badge or get in a badge, or steal a badge, get one off of an employee that lost or whatever it may be that people didn't question him. But he he lived there for almost five months before he was detected. I had wondered, in- I had wondered if such a thing was possible when I would see people just kind of like sprawled out sleeping in the airport. And I thought to myself, five months. I had, I thought to myself, and I'd see things like this in big airports where there's so many people coming through. Provided you kind of move around and you're not in the same spot every day, uh, could you just kind of move around the airport, sleep in different spots, and as long as you don't look like a homeless person, could you get away with it? Because no one's going to question because people sleep there all the time because of uh, being tired after flights or or uh, sure. whatever, or waiting for flights to take off. Like there, there are people who fall asleep at airports all the time who aren't uh, vagrants. So, like, if as long as you spread yourself around enough in a big airport, could you get away with this? I guess the answer is yes. And he only was caught because two air, airline employees asked him to come closer so they can inspect his credentials. It wasn't like there was any other suspicion. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I don't remember why it came to be that that one day that these two employees asked to, to you know, but five months, just no problem at all. And he would, you know, the crazy thing is how do you eat? How do you eat? How do you get food? Uh, I have an idea. This doesn't sound the most appealing, but people are throwing food away all the time. Yeah. Because, especially at airports, because this is what happens. You go, you go get a snack, you get a meal, you're starting to eat it, and then you hear they're calling, uh, to go board. So, you quickly take a few more bites and toss it in the, in the trash. So there, there, there's but you a, would think somebody at some point would have seen him rummaging through trash. Well, he, he could just be watching strategically, like he's kind of milling around yeah. the restaurant, and then they see someone dump a, a, a large portion of a like, meal. What do you do all day to kill time? That's, like, that's insane. That's insane. Um, listen, since this is a uh, poker-centric show, and I know you do want to wrap it up, there were two more relatively quick, quick things I wanted to – uh, mention that I think your listeners will find interesting that if you had, haven't mentioned yeah, them already, ahead. which I doubt. Um, the first one is, as many people know, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, I'm pulling up the article. As many people know, but they might have forgotten because of all that's going on, the biggest 
uh, on a cost basis, casino in the history of the United States is opening in in just a short few months. Uh, do you remember the name? Yeah, you're talking about uh, Resorts World. I am. Uh, so that's going to be opening in the summer. I don't know the exact date. May, June, maybe July. So on February 1st of, of you know this year, just five days ago, um, they opened their portal online for jobs. I think I read they're going to be hiring, uh, what was it? It was maybe six or 8,000 people. But, it, you know, other than upper management positions, which are already, you know, a lot of them filled, you know, basically everything, you know, the restaurants, dealers, you know, the, the hotel staff. Uh, how many applications do you think they've received in this article is yesterday? So in four days, how many applications do they receive, you think? For six thousand jobs, oh, probably something huge because of all the unemployment there. Like, they uh, received eighty-five thousand applications. That's bigger. I was going to guess fifty thousand. So yeah, eighty-five yeah. is pretty big. <laughs> for every for every job they they are offering, there's eighteen people applying for that one job. You know, meaning that you know, in theory, if all things were created equal, the average person would only have a one in eighteen chance of of getting hired there. Um, pretty pretty ridiculous, but. Nonetheless, want to remind people that obviously outside of just the Circa, that there's another resort. And this is going to be the resort where there literally is going to be a live panda bear that they're paying several million dollars a year to China to lease. Um, and uh, this is supposed to be just the, I don't know, the, the you know, Macau Bellagio in, in terms of it's going to be an Asian-centric themed casino uh, you know, so you're going to see a lot of baccarat tables, a lot of just a lot of pie gal, a lot of you know. I mean, they're going to have everything, but the market that they're catering to uh, are the rich Asian whales that you know they want to get back to Vegas and they don't want to go to Macau. Um, so you know, you're going to see a lot of people with multi-million dollar credit lines playing there, and uh, you know, number of restaurants are ridiculous. And so anyhow, that's you know, it's going to probably be as close as. Stepping into uh, Macau as we can here from uh, Las Vegas. The second th- – oh, I'm sorry. Do you have any comment on that? On no, the- no, no, no. And then I guess the last thing, uh, I remember I wasn't on it on the show. I did listen to it uh, some point afterwards. But if I recall, maybe it was last summer right before you had Houston Curtis on. Is that is that I did, yes. Correct? I did. Well, anyhow, he's been writing a column. I don't know how long it's been going on, but he's been writing a column that's really, really popular. I enjoy it, and it seems other people do, on card players. Yes, I've, I've seen um, that, and he started that right around the time he appeared on this show. Oh, okay. So, anyhow, interestingly enough, uh, you know, I've been reading them, and, you know, they're, they're, I don't know how true they are. You know, some of them are pretty outlandish, some of the stories he tells, but... Uh, his column this week that just came out uh, three days ago, uh, I don't want to ruin it you know, for people that want to read it, but it's on Card Player on their main website, and it involves a story that he tells in 2004 about how he got banned for life from the Golden Nugget for winning too much at Blackjack. And it recants how uh, in 2004, the year after Moneymaker won and poker was booming, uh, he had booked a room for I don't know, a week, 10 days at the Golden Nugget. Of course, this is one, the last year that the World Series was held at Binion's, and he wanted to stay somewhere nice. 
Uh, so he stayed at the Golden Nugget and he brought with him his bankroll was, I think he said 10,000, 15,000, whatever it was. And he recants a story about how uh, he ran it up to the point where he, you know, later on was banned. But what I found even more interesting is during his run up, uh, he had someone who he called one of his best friends in the world sitting next to him, rooting him on. And it's somebody I would have no idea that he was friends with. It's a really, really odd person. Someone you know, someone we've talked about, someone that's a strange connection to PFA. It's an older female. Can you take a guess who his friend was that allegedly was next to him during his very high blackjack run-up at the Nugget? Huh. All right, let me give you some don't, – don't cheat, obviously. Let me give you some more hints. Um, we've, you've talked about her. She's been mentioned on this show dating back to radio we've done on other shows uh very wealthy a lot of money is it uh beth shack no very wealthy lots of money on her own and i think she's got to be in her late 60s if not early 70s now and she was connected to uh i guess an unsavory chapter of these forums part of history that was just uh, undoubtedly uh will be remembered as just bizarre, fascinating, crazy, shady, scamming, all these different adjectives I, I can think of. Um, she lives in Malibu. I was, about to, say, I was about to say that that phone sex woman, Betsy Superphone. Yes, yes that's who it was. Yeah, that's Betsy Superphone. Wow. Is it Superphone or phone? It, it probably is – I don't know because it's supposed to be about phones because she ran – she owned right, 976 lines. Yeah. But uh, but I don't know how you pronounce the super font. That, that was obviously a, a, a name she changed. I don't know if that's even her real name or if she just changed. She just no. It's funny that. enough because it says in the article that's her real name. Like that, okay, she must have changed her it. name to that. There's no way that was her original name. But uh, okay. Uh, anyway, she. That's funny that yeah he was. Well, people call her. It says in the article people call her Betsy Superphone because of what she did with her real name. It says it's Betsy Superphone. Uh, I guess there's a possible. It's a coincidence like Chris Moneymaker, but. Yeah. Uh, well, anyhow, uh, so you, Tony, or, uh, Houston Curtis recants this story and how she was sitting next to him the entire time and how close they were back then. And then he also mentions two people that I know really well. Um, I don't know if you know them. You might know the names, but he also talks about Dan and his wife, Sharon Goldman. Do you know who they are? Yeah. I know, I know okay. Dan. I, uh, Sharon, I don't know. Well, that's his wife. Okay. So, but anyhow, it, it, it's an interesting story. If you guys like D-Gen run-up stories, just hop over to Card Player. Uh, and again, as, you know, I'm not a shill. I don't get any paid any money for saying this. But go there and just read his article because it, it's, you know, his column. Uh, really, really interesting. And it kind of just gives, you know, just a perspective for those of you that weren't around in 2004 or weren't in poker, have how things were back then. It doesn't just talk about his run-up. It talks about, you know, just the aura at uh, Binion's for the last WSOP and kind of cash games that were going on, the amount of money, the people that were there, so on and so forth. And, you know, since he was on the show, I, I know people, I remember it got a, a really good response, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it did. Yeah, people that, enjoyed that, that interview. Yeah. So, anyhow, that's really all I got. Um, I'm, I'm really eager to see how this Resort Worlds is going to do. I am because too. Your, I mean, this is billions and billions and billions. I mean, this is this cost. This is going to end up costing three times what the stadium cost. 
you know, the, the state of the art, you know, Allegiant Stadium. This is an expensive. No, I know. It's, it's, it's I mean, a super major property. People don't realize some, some people don't realize how major of a property this is going to be. And also, I'm interested to see what kind of impact it has on that area of the strip. I mean, if you, uh, if you ever came here, if you're, you know, our age or maybe a little younger, obviously older, and you remember what it felt like when you walked into the Bellagio, in the late nineties for the first time. And you just were like, wow, like this is just this high end <clears throat> resort worlds is supposed to be like that, but like times 10 in terms of the luxury, just the, in, the insaneness of the amount of money spent to, I mean, just no detail being, you know, left unturned. I mean, it's just supposed to be a, a marvel, you know, a wonder of the world. And they got so lucky I'm, in a way that th- it was scheduled to open when it is, when uh, instead of having to open right into the pandemic, that probably by the time it opens, there's going to be uh, a lot of people have the vaccine by then, and there may be a recovery starting to go on, and uh, some of the problems which are still going on in Vegas uh, regarding all the crime sure. and, and, and all the other and unsavory characters that are coming because the rooms are cheap and things like that, that a, a lot of this may start to go away. Sure. By then, and even if they're at the tail end of it, they won't have to endure it that long, unless we're. Well, unless I can tell you one thing: they're never gonna, they're never gonna allow that place to get overrun with that kind of crowd that they would ever even. They would rather have their rooms stay, you know, uh, unused than have you know people come in there and terrorize the. You know what I mean? They're not yeah, gonna have yeah, hundred dollar night rooms there. You know, you're talking three hundred, you know, four hundred dollar, you know, for standard room. And for those that are wondering, because I was wondering myself. Uh, I found no mention of a poker room being there or not being there. I suppose I could navigate over to the employment website and see if there's any mention of any jobs that indicate a poker room or that may be one of the last things, but I've not seen any confirmation yeah. or, or otherwise about the poker room being there. But it'd be interesting if there is one. Yeah, it would, would be, be interesting. I mean, what would be useful for them to have one is it would uh, prevent people from leaving the property to go to one and sure. They may, but this is not going to be a place that's going to, you know, just offer, you know, one, two, two, five. They're either going to go for, you know, if they do one, they're either going to go for the juggler or they're just not going to have. That's what I thought. They're either going to try to compete with the Ari and the Bellagio, or they're just going to say forget it. What I could probably see them doing at least is what you know the Wind did with Negranu, and and you know Aria did with some degree with with Phil Ivey, is. Pay whoever the big name poker player is. I don't even know if there is one these days to try to get those games there. You know what I mean? Just pay, you know, now with poker go and high stakes poker coming. I mean, Aria really, you know, I guess in turn, Bellagio really has a stranglehold on high limit poker. I mean, the win isn't even trying at this point to get. Yeah, I know. That. Yeah. Um, but so it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to, to see if, it, you know, what they do, but they're not going to be embarrassed and have a bunch of one, two games. No, there. I know. I know that's not what they don't want for. those kind of players in there. Well, that, they, they don't, don't want the kind of players and, and that's not, that's not going to keep people on property. They're looking to play poker. If they have the higher end yeah. clientele, they're not going to want to go play one, two. They're going to want these, uh, pe- these people are going to want to play for higher stakes. A lot of them. And so if they're going to sure. bother with a poker room, which really doesn't make much money compared to the rest of the property, it really isn't worth the space it takes up in a place like this. Uh, it would be more just to keep people there, or or also the benefit they can get, where sometimes people will win in poker and then go chunk it off uh, elsewhere in the casino. Yeah, I'm trying to see if there's any. There's just nothing. There's nothing denying it, you know, or, or confirming it either way. So I would just have to wait and see. You know, if, if there is, if you were gonna wager, what would you think? You think they're gonna try? 
Yeah, I would think there's probably a better chance than not they'll try, but I could easily see it either way. But there's also oh, a chance it'll, be del- chance it'll be delayed, too. Nope, there is going to be one. Hmm. And this is an old article. Well, okay, actually, hold on. It's on their website. Um, hold on real, real fast. Uh, where is it at? Where is it at? I just saw it in the little byline. Um, but yeah, so it looks like there is going to be one. Uh, it's going to be, okay, so for those that are interested, since we're talking about it, uh, here's some of the stats. Um, the casino is going to be over 4.3 billion. The budget was 4.3 billion and it's, it's gone, it's gone over that. Um, the name of the casino operator that owns it, it's called, this is not a company that has any other, Dealings in Nevada. Um, it's called Genting, G E N T I N G, Malaysia Burhad. Well, yeah, it's, it's a huge company. I, I'm, I'm familiar with them. They they own a lot of uh, different. They own uh, other casinos. They they actually mm-hmm. own cruise ships. They they own a lot of different okay. things. They're huge. So this is our first vaunt in into Las Vegas for you know in, in the, or Nevada, I should say, in gaming. Maybe even the United States. I don't know. Um, the casino is built on 87 acres. On the northern end of the Vegas Strip, the casino, the main casino, slots, table games, and such, uh, is going to be 110,000 square feet. There are two towers that, not just one, there are going to be two hotel towers that are going to both open, apparently, uh, if everything goes as planned, at the same time. Um, there are going to be marketed, I, this is what I'm reading on, their, on the World Casino Directory, it's a press release. They're both. They're going to be marketed both towers under the Hilton and Conrad brands. Does that mean that they're going to manage this and not the? That's company? weird. I, I didn't that know means. that. That is weird. Yeah, I'm reading that now. Um, it's also going to offer 350,000 plus of convention and meeting space. Uh, so just to give you perspective, do you know offhand how many uh, square feet of meeting space, convention space is at the Rio or is that Sands? Do, do you know roughly? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Or, or the new uh, center that was built in uh, for, for Caesar, the Caesar's Convention Center. I don't know how big that is either. Okay, they don't have an exact date other than it's going to open uh, in the summer of 2021. Um, they're going to have a 5,000 seat theater, a quarter million square foot pool complex. They're going to have an on-site Chinese garden surrounded by a 60,000 square foot lake. Jesus. Um, and obviously the aforementioned Panda. Uh, and the whole complex will play host to a 50-foot video globe, as well as a dedicated poker room, a 14,000-square-foot poker room, um, as well as an entertainment zone, which will offer a sports book and other amenities. Um, yeah, so that's basically it. This was an article in September of last year, so it's not too old. But it says here that they will have a poker room, so we'll see. It's going to be a massive property. Jeez, yeah. you could live there. You could live there for <laughs> five months, and no one would know. <laughs> Golly, jeez. Now some people might try after they get uh, evicted. Yeah, they may go. Okay, well let's go hide at Resorts World. Jeez. So anyhow, that's all I got, my friend. I don't know if you have anything to close with. No, uh, that, you know that's it. In fact, I I have not taken a break. So one thing I I have to do is I have to go to the bathroom, and I'm just gonna 
I'm going to end the show. I'll just go to the bathroom after okay. the show. So uh, th- thank you well, for listen, coming on. It was a pleasant thank you surprise. for uh, being such a gracious host and having me on and letting me do my thing. I hope people enjoyed it and uh, I think it was a very good show. Yeah, thank you for joining us here. Sure, it's great. Always Trader Ruski never showed up. He said he's going to wake up at three and show up. He never came. <laughs> yeah, buddy. I have to have fake Trader Ruski instead. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Brandon, for coming on, and uh, we will be on again next week on February twelfth, Friday. As a so. Valentine's Day edition, no, sort of. It's, uh, it's February twelfth, yeah. close, but uh, yeah. you know that's that's uh, you know you know it's. Uh, for reasons I won't explain, this is going to be something that people won't understand, and I'm not going to fully explain it, but for reasons I won't explain, several Valentine's Days in the 2010s, I spent with my ex-girlfriend instead of my present girlfriend. <laughs> I did. Not in 2020. But uh, we talking about the one I know. Yeah. Okay. 2019, 2018. I did. I saw my present girlfriend somewhat that day, but I saw the ex a lot more. Spent a lot more time with the ex girlfriend on Valentine's Day. I'm not going to explain why, but I it's a fact. And my present girlfriend was not mad about it, or at least she appeared not to be mad. But this Valentine's Day, I will. I was just going to say, I doubt this Valentine's Day. The no, it's not tradition happening this will year. continue. This this year, I'm I'm not going anywhere. Right. Uh, also, one other one other thing about Valentine's Day, I'll say, uh, I I was glad that my present girlfriend had the same feeling about going out on Valentine's Day as I do, and that is, don't. If you really want to go out for Valentine's Day, go out the day before or after, because it is awful going to restaurants on Valentine's Day. They cram extra tables in. The service is terrible. Sometimes mm, they mark up year. the price. Well, then, yeah, normal years. This year, I'm just afraid to go out. But uh, that's it's just in a normal year, it is awful being on going out to dinner for Valentine's Day. So just do it the day before or after. It doesn't have to be that day. It's more of the thought. So anyway, that's all. Yeah. That that's all I've got. Uh, thank you for coming on, Brandon. And uh, we will start the music. We'll be back next week thank you for having me on buddy alright good night so as I said one week from today will be the uh, next show I, I dropped you, cut you me off well you can never hear me over this you, you, you can never hear me over this just every time it's like I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you so I, 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 sp- I spared you the confusion I can't hear what you're saying right now I get the gist of it right, ah, see, that's, uh, that's my point see, you proved my point can you, can you hear me now? I just I stopped yeah, the music. I, I, heard I, I stopped it yeah. temporarily. See, I, I I proved my own point. I mean, it's 2021. You can't figure out a way for me to hear you while you play the theme song. No, it's it's, it's a Skype limitation. Mm. I don't know why it does mm. this, but it does. It doesn't let me. It does, it, the audience hears me fine. You just can't hear me well. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but you can listen. You can sit and listen. Uh, and you know the deal. I was trying to be just. I was trying to make it simple. I'm trying to make it. Uh, 
without hear the usual confusion of how he can't hear me and then think something's wrong. But anyway, I'm happy we had Brandon for this unexpected visit in the second half of the show. That's always good to have, always adds to the show. And he probably won't even hear these compliments because he can't hear me. Can you hear me, Brandon? No, he can't hear me. And uh, I don't know when I'll get the vaccine. It doesn't feel like it'll be soon. It's kind of depressing in a way. But the old people can't even get it right now. A lot of them are struggling. So my time seems a long time away. But what's not a long time away is now just about six and a half days until the next show. On February 12th, around 9 to 10 p.m. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for those who do. I'm hanging out. I'm having Okay. <laughs> Good night. Shalom. Shalom. <laughs>